Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats as the evening's festivities are about to begin. You're in for an evening of thrills, chills, heartbreak, laughs, and more Ahmed Johnson than you could ever imagine. The New Generation Project Podcast proudly bring to you The best of the New Generation Project Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the New Generation Project Podcast, where we honour the heroes of Hulkamania and analyse the architects of attitude in looking at the dark ages of WWF the mid-90s. My name is Mark Wajat, and you'll remember me from podcasts such as Skip to the End and Mark and Me, both available now on Spotify, iTunes, Podomatic, you name it, it's out there if you want it. When people ask me my favourite episode of the New Generation Project podcast, I often tell them I'd have to say the best of the New Generation Project podcast, which I've latterly realised somewhat of a faux pas at this doesn't exist. But now it does, I'm here to count down the top 50 of the greatest moments in the show's history, as suggested by you, the listeners. Special mentions must go out to Scott Cavaliero and Richard Query, who have both gone above and beyond in contributing to this very special show. Let's kick off with moment 50 from the debut episode of the show, King of the Ring, 1993, with the revelation that a certain Native American wrestler has an unorthodox method of telling the time. Tatonka sprints to the ring and it's on. Luger attacks him as he enters and throws Tatonka out. This, I noticed, was also the first match which didn't begin with a lockup, so it was yeah, nice yeah. to see something a bit I, I, like the, I like the way that he sort of he chucks Tatonka out the ring and then gets back to his mirror, mirror. to yeah. do a bit of posing. That, I like that. The match has started, but he's still busy that's, with his. Uh, that's you know. a good gimmick. Yeah. I must say, I, I didn't like this early on in this match when they did bring up the relation of time limit, as you kind of alluded to earlier because they did mention that it was a 15 minute time limit but Tatanka would apparently class that as one third of a moon yeah. excellent <laughs> excellent I, speaking of Randy Savage's commentary I get the feeling he sometimes begins sentences with no idea of where they're finishing kind of how he cut promos as well true he keeps babbling and there's a sentence he says that goes king of the ring prestigious um something <laughs> <laughs> you say it in the macho man voice, voice, it probably sounds a bit better. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably has a lot more gravitas to it than mine. <laughs> so they get a fairly hot open with throwing to Tonker out the ring. He re-enters and throws Luger's mirror on top of him. It then settles into what can loosely be described as a pace. I presume in wrestling, when you book a 15-minute draw, a 30-minute draw, or an hour draw, you inform the wrestlers of this and they plan what they're going to do in their sequences around building to something. And either if you are going to do a draw, you build to something like where someone hits their finisher and just doesn't get the three or something like that. Mm. This just went on it was 15 minutes but it felt like an hour it it lost my interest but for at least the first 10 minutes I had no interest in this match there was nothing of note going on until they started bringing up the the time limit because that started coming up I think with 4.45 so I'm immune to go they they... (laughs) how long is that? well that's 4 minutes (laughs) 4.45 of a moon at one point Heenan claims Luger is ahead on points by 23,000 to 4 
Um, again, no one really sells it, which which kind of sucks. Monsoon would have, but Heenan and Ross don't. Tonka's offense, all he really has is chops. They even go to repeating the Brett Razor armbar body slam stuff, which they did in their opening match. And it again, it it just kind of drags. I noticed Luger repeatedly adjusts his pants. There's not really any any holds or moves in it. There's there's someone looks like they're going to do something, then you get chopped or punched down. Mm. Then they move slowly around and just do it again. So nothing ever has any sort of like momentum to it. It's just all very flat all the time. I think that's what makes it just last forever. Yes, and, and, and for myself. The difficulty that I have watching this is that you're used to kind of planning things around a couple of big spots, but the big spots that we see in this era of wrestling aren't the same as the big spots that I'm used to seeing, and it takes yeah, it takes yeah. a little bit of getting used to. And actually, because the peaks of the match are different to the peaks for a more modern match, so it takes a bit of getting used to. Your big, your big, your big spot is like a, a top rope chop. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's not or, or a flip over. Yeah, that's that's the that's a technical term. I, I wonder if both of them are just so gassed from the start. They both do look completely out of breath after that fairly rapid first minute. I mean, I knew this was a fifteen-minute draw going into it, and I thought of all the people to choose to give fifteen minutes to, they picked Lex Luger and Tonka. Then the first minute happens, and I was kind of like, oh, maybe this will be okay because there's a good pace. You get the mirror tossing over spot, that kind of thing. And after that first minute, the following fourteen minutes happened, and I remembered why. I thought, why would they give? 15 yeah. minutes yeah, I mean, I mean, in the first place after they call the uh, after the commentators call the 445ths of a moon they, they count us down to 115th of a moon <laughs> 245ths of a moon um, <laughs> um, to, and then they, and then they get to what do they get to uh, 30th of a moon and then a 90th of a moon again that's the problem with the end of the match is that you would think the referee would be communicating right yeah. you've got 90 seconds yeah, left there's the, there's the countdown but there's no urgency whatsoever yeah. like Lex Luger is still moving at just a snail's pace with everything that he does there's not even like a rush to get a pin no it's, it's like he doesn't know there's a time limit for this yeah, match he's, at all it's like he, he's just not being watching see, he thinks there's still on five minutes yeah, yeah. and Tatanka can't see the moon I mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he has no idea in my notes for the final minute of the match, I've, yeah, I've got that Luger certainly isn't wrestling like there's a minute left. Savage covers for them by saying he wonders if they know the time. Luger suplexes Tatanka and adjusts his pants for a two count. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's been absolutely sucking wind in this match for ages. He gets a really shitty looking backbreaker and does another pants adjust for another two. And that's the time limit. I suppose the other options for 15 minute draws were Mr. Hughes and Mr. Perfect and Pam Bam Bigelow and Jim Duggan. And I really wouldn't want 15 minutes of either of those <laughs> yeah it's kind of there's, there's no way to win is there really with that sort but of surely choice. we could have done kind of I know obviously they want to protect both men selling undefeated streaks they could have done a DQ or a double DQ or a double countdown after five minutes and avoided yeah. ten minutes of dullness it's like they had enough to do a four minute match but they were asked to do 15 minutes I, I, um, I think it was just the, the pacing towards the end it didn't pick up it didn't build and you can excuse a lacklustre first few minutes of a, of a longest time time limit draw, but what's inexcusable is the last few minutes lacking any tension whatsoever. Yeah. Moment 49 is from episode 78, Survivor Series 1992, and sees a murder committed live on pay-per-view. Virgil tries punches, but gets rock-bottomed for his efforts. Mm, nice. Suplex, says Vince out of nowhere. <laughs> then there's also a big long pause and he just goes come on Virgil get up that that is some of my favourite ever Vince commentary because it, it's like it's like a dad 
telling his kid to get moving. Come on, Virgil, get up. <laughs> Virgil nails Yoko in the chops. More of Vince's vernacular. <laughs> I've heard chops before, but he keeps saying chops. <laughs> I swear this is the only pay-per-view we've only ever heard him say it. He says it about three times. He whacked him right in the chops. Mm. Why chops? Don't know. I told you, it's Vince and his word of the day toilet paper. Mm. <laughs> Yoko drops a big leg to a nice reaction. Yoko whips Virgil into the corner, but Virgil leaps over Yoko as the big Samoan charges. In contender for worst decision ever, Virgil tries for a schoolboy. So Yoko sits on him. That's flu- really fluid, though. I- I'm assuming they meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit on him and bounce off him. <laughs> it's full weight. Bounce on oh, Virgil. But... I, th- I thought that was a really well executed spot, if I'm honest. I, I really liked it. Not for Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not clearly not for Virgil. And, and it's only the precursor to the bonsai drop. <laughs> I think this one's actually a bit heavier than the bonsai yeah. drop, though. I think he catches everything right in his fucking chest. You're right, like it is so quick and it's so smooth, and they clearly meant to do it, but it's just got this amazing, like, tone of comedy to it where it's like schoolboy, oh no, bang! Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And it also yields a great line of Vince commentary. Yokozuna went right down on him there. <laughs> Did they also say that that was devastating? <laughs> there's also there's a kind of there's a move earlier, I forget which one it is. It, I, I put a sidewalk slam down, but it, it didn't necessarily look quite like a normal sidewalk slam. But they talk about, I don't know if it's Vince or Bobby, Hindenburg with a sidecar. Did you catch that? <laughs> no, I missed that. Because I thought that was incredibly distasteful. <laughs> well, speaking of taste, Heenan says Virgil is sushi. Virgil's selling is actually really quite good now. This might not be selling, this might be actually injured. <laughs> but uh, at the end, where mm. the ref's like, hold, I think he holds up Yoko's in his hand or something, and you can see Virgil <laughs> in the back. <laughs> He's fetal. <laughs> <laughs> With his legs together, just like crippled out on the floor. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> As he lies there, yeah, with shattered ribs and a punctured lung, <laughs> thinking, I wish I'd got for that schoolboy. <laughs> I should have never taken Vince's extra $10. Yeah. <laughs> in at 48 is a moment from episode 25, The New Generation Game Part 2, where Paul struggles to pronounce the name of a Japanese wrestler he may bear some resemblance to. If the WWE ever made one of their successful movies... Sorry, I did the the, the whole kind of air quotes thing that you can't see. About the New Generation Project podcast, which wrestlers would act as each of you three? Who wants to take that one? Well, well, have have I got to pick for you as well? Go on then. Adam would be played by Mark Henry. We are very similar. Adam would be played by Ronnie O'Sullivan. (laughs) I guess uh, it's not not a new generation. He's not really a wrestler. Not a new generation wrestler. But apparently I'd be played by Taka. (laughs) You said that, not us. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. Well, he's not new generation, but I thought... Well, he is. We'll cover him. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. I'll say it now. I sometimes get accused of... Not not accused of... I'm saying it's a bad thing, but I often... (laughs) uh, I'm told that I look like Taka Michinoko. Taka Michinoko. Yeah, did I say it wrong? Yeah, Taka Michinoku. People often say I look like Taka Michinoku. You just said it. Taka Michinoku. Taka Michinoku. There you go. Can, now, can you do the whole line? <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's not what Hulk Hogan said. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> People often say I look like Taka Michinoko. <laughs> It's a very specific speech impediment. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't affect your day-to-day life. But... I've got a vowel disorder. <laughs> I can't I can't say it. Sometimes people accuse Paul of looking like Taka Michinoku. Yeah. And, and as I say, accuse is a long term, but I, apparently I bear some resemblance to him. I do, don't... do you have Japanese descent? No. It's it's an interesting one. Who who would play who would you want to play you, Stuart? Sean Michaels, for my fantastic haircut. Okay. Kevin Sullivan. Mm. Kevin, Kevin Sullivan would play me. Yeah, you, yeah. I think... oh, am I the taskmaster? Yeah, I think okay. you, you kind of are the yeah, taskmaster. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. Actually, what I'd like to hear is I'd like to hear certain people do their impression of me. So I'd like to hear Paul Bearer <laughs> do his impression of me, Razor and Moan, Macho Man. Yeah. I'd like to hear them do my voice for a change. Okay. So Macho Man Randy Savage will be doing a Taka Michinoku impression. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, uh, maybe I should just be put, played by Paul Bearer. It'd save on the names on the back of the chairs. It would, yeah. <laughs> we don't have names on the back of our chairs. We should. <laughs> Trying to think who could play Adam. Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Stop picking people who have clearly different <laughs> ethnicity to me. Uh, if, I don't know, if we're, if, if I'm honest, you know who I'd really like to play you? Gold dust. You're, no, you're, you're, you're not like. I don't know if you'd like this or not, Adam. But I would actually genuinely. I think this is a good answer. Scotty too hotty. Because <laughs> he's around in the new genera. Yeah, new, yeah, he's uh, around. Era. Yeah. So what are we settled on? I'm being played by Kevin Sullivan. Adam is Scotty too hotty, and you're Taka Michinoku. Yeah. There's your answer. <laughs> Photoshop that. Ever wanted to get out of a social engagement you can't be bothered to attend? Moment 47 from Episode 3, Survivor Series 1993, sees a certain hardcore legend reveal a watertight excuse for your absence. Our next match is Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Bruce Hart and Keith Hart versus Shawn Michaels, the Red Knight, the Blue Knight and the Black Knight. So, let's talk about these knights then. Who are the knights? Well, first off, let's talk about some of the rumoured names for the Knights. One of those was Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, who at the time was wrestling in the USWA as Doomsday. Well, I don't, I don't think any of them were Kane, although one dude was pretty big. He was not Kane. Yeah, he wasn't Kane. The other big name that was supposed to be a Knight was Terry Funk. No, none of them were Terry Funk. <laughs> Would you like to know how Funk got out of the match? Would I ever? I'd love to know. He cancelled on the WWF at late notice by, and I quote... I wasn't happy with some of the promotional people, so when I woke up on the morning before the show, I left them a note which read, My horse is sick, I think he's dying. (laughs) (laughs) And I was gone. I ask you, can you think of a better excuse than that? If you ever need an excuse, just say your horse is sick and you think it's dying. It works every time. It's fair enough. Is is that because this was a bad idea for a match? Uh, Terry Funk had realised this. I stuff. think he gathered this, he didn't this want to will be, a, be a bad match. So my horse is sick. I can't make it. Well, I've got to say that was the excuse I, I used last time. I didn't go into work. Did it work? Yeah, horses. Works every time. The actual knights are USWA wrestler Jeff Gaylord as the Black Knight, Greg the Hammer Valentine as the Blue Knight. Yeah. And perennial WWF jobber Barry Horowitz as the Red Knight. I've heard of one of those people. Moment 46 comes from episode 90, NGP Live, and sees Adam regale the story of a night out in Wolverhampton. So this night as well, we had a bit of a night out afterwards. 
big weekend for us, especially me. I, I don't mm. tend to go out of my house if I don't have to. So. I really don't go out, so this was just like new territory for me, really. But I think probably when we left the Starworks warehouse, like we probably had, what, say about 12, 15 of us people I think we just had conversations with throughout the weekend, and it was like, what are you doing after the show? Come for a drink with us, etc. So we had like a really nice group of people. Yeah. And we went to the Gifford Arms. Recommended by Mr. Bryce Rensberg. Yes, it was indeed. It's bizarre. Uh, you know, we went to a pub on the recommendation of an American. Bryce in Wolverhampton. Well, he'd, he'd been, been there before. before. We yeah. hadn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. apart from you, to see yeah. Rain Man. Yeah, but we didn't need to go to see any theatre, so... <laughs> <laughs> but it was very loud, very sort of cramped, like rock and metal pub, which, which played some good music. It, it seemed to be a mix of, like... 80s and 90s, like, metal, yeah. mixed with Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, every now and again that would just spring up, wouldn't it? Like, a random track from Rumours would appear, but, yeah. Like, what... like, like someone's very limited iPod was yeah. shuffling through music. Yeah, I've got all this music I like, and then my uncle put this one album on there for that car journey that one mm. time. And it's the only full album on there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But as well, like it was extraordinarily cheap. I'll give them that. Like when we got there, <laughs> yeah. you're like ordering this round. It's like yeah, it's about fifteen beers on this or something, and it was like thirty quid. Or yeah, it was like thirty six pounds or something. But how was it that cheap? And this is after like she didn't put like two pints of red stripe on there or something, so it would have been even cheaper if I hadn't been so honest. Yeah. Good pub. You saw a girl throw up on the floor. Well, it was really weird because there was careful how you say, it, Adam. Yeah. We were standing at the bar and, like, by the windows, there was this group sitting of one guy and these three or four women, one of whom was just absolutely fucking stacked to the rafters with tits. She had... (laughs) She had two. (laughs) You're so crass. Stacked to the rafters. And... But she was wandering around getting people to poke them. I, she I'm, was. I, I'm, I'm disappointed she didn't come my way. But, <laughs> I think but, she saw you rubbing your legs and dribbling. And, um, but, uh, there was, there was, literally, I was at the bar and I was talking to someone and I looked in their direction and I thought, oh, they're drinking tequila slammers. And then I went back, I took a sip on my beer and then I looked back and one of them just chucked a ball over the floor. Like, literally, massive, <laughs> massive pool of it. Oh, good pub. Good pub. How do you describe your body parts? By their actual names? Well, Grilla Monsoon thinks you should describe them by what they actually do in moment 45 from episode 11, Survivor Series 1994. The kid turns around anyway, and it's his turn for a jackknife too, and he's out. Sione is in, in short order. He gets jackknifed, and he's done too. So Diesel's eliminated three people in short order. And at at this point, I will make a comment that Gorilla Monsoon really overuses the word kisser. Yes, I noticed (laughs) that. He can't say face. It's, you know, look at the kisser on him. Oh, he took that to the kisser. As we get through the pay-per-view, Vince starts doing it as well. So the (laughs) women take back kisses all the time. But you're all right. It's it's just one of those weird things to start to refer to body parts as the function that they perform. Yeah. I mean, I guess you you can talk about peepers for eyes, maybe. He doesn't say that he smellers. smellers. He, he got hit right in the smeller. <laughs> so, yeah, he got, he got kicked in his walkers. <laughs> and booted in the shitter. <laughs> I, 
I don't know. It's, it's, it's just odd. Is it as you bad got as... a low blow in the pisser. <laughs> <laughs> Is it as bad as Vince's use of the word unquestionably? <laughs> well, un- unquestionably. <laughs> Oh, that was very good. Yeah, it, it just irritated me slightly. No, no, you're absolutely right. I did pick up on that. That it was during this match. It was about like every other word, wasn't it? <laughs> For a while. Booking a wrestling card is quite clearly a complicated process, especially if it's your biggest show of the year. In moment forty-four from episode thirteen, WrestleMania eleven, Paul has a go at rearranging the less than stellar lineup. And now our main event of WrestleMania cards. It's the WrestleMania 11 card of Paul Scrivens. Go. Okay. So I booked it in a, in a different way. I didn't quite pick up on Stuart wanted us to do something that was going to be realistic. I, I, <laughs> I kind of thought this is this is what you'd want to happen with the people available. I got the fact that you wanted people available at the time. That's what I took out of it. Right, okay. So okay. you did take that. So it's not got Stone Cold on it or anything. <laughs> no. No, no, it's not. It's just... Wife beater. <laughs> Zandig, people like that. No, it's it's what we've got is we've got, to, to kick it off, we've got a tag team title match and we've got the smoking guns against the heavenly bodies because I would want Jimmy Del Rey on my card. Yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. They're knocking yeah. about. Yeah, and, and I would have it so the heavenly bodies win. I think they deserve it. And I quite like smoking guns. I think they're a decent team. But yeah, heavenly bodies going over in that match. As I said in the last show, I would like to see pushes for a couple of guys. And one of the guys that I'd like to see push from their current status up towards the, the very top of the card is Razor. I think he's having a, a very good run of things. He's very well loved by the crowd good performer in the ring I think and to get him up there because we know what the main event's going to be I'm going to have him in the gauntlet match where if he can beat three hand-picked opponents who's hand-picking these opponents? someone <laughs> um, hang on uh, I hadn't thought that through but okay <laughs> hand-picked by Pat Patterson <laughs> who is of course okay hand-picked by Pam Anderson okay there you go <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm with that. And, and the three people are going to be Bob Sparkle McCauley, because I thought he did a really good job in that last pay-per-view. I, mm. I thought he performed very well. Um, Mabel, because they're probably going to put him in somewhere, and I know that 95 is going to be a big year for Mabel, so, you know, he would be a difficult opponent to beat, theoretically. Yeah. And, and Lex, because Lex is obviously relatively well still in favour. Why is it a handicap match pitting a baby it, face against three baby faces? It's, it's not a handicap match. Well, sorry, match, a gauntlet match. A gauntlet match. match. <laughs> I'm not caring about that. I'm, I'm caring about <laughs> what I want to see. And if he can overcome these three people, he gets to be the number one contender. And I'll, I'll spoil the storyline for you. He's going to win. Race is going to win. Um, <laughs> is Pamela Anderson the evil heel authority figure now? Yeah, she can be heel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, next. And then we've got the Bulldog against Jimmy Anvil Nineheart. Just because I think, I mean, I've not, I don't know a massive amount about either of those apart from Nineheart's Beaver. I would like to see a match between those two because actually I've seen little bits of Bulldog and, you know, in this era, I think I've not hated what I've seen. I've not loved it, but I've not hated it. I've not really seen Nineheart wrestle, but I think he looks like he could be good. You are aware that on the last pay per view I said Nineheart had left again? I missed that bit out. <laughs> But anyway, I, I kind of feel that, that they should be this bit. They've both been involved in this Brett Owen thing, but I'd like yeah, to see Yeah, I, I do see it. the logic there, if not, um, if not, was still around, yeah. I would like to also see Jeff Jarrett against Owen for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think they could have a really good match. Also, I'd like to see Owen win some gold, but I, I think he deserves a belt, and I think that he could do 
good job and have a good run with a few people as, as an IC champion. You are aware they're both heels, right? I'm booking this as I want to see it. <laughs> Stop pulling holes in everything. It's ruining my fun. Bam Bam against Yokozuna. You are aware they're both heels, right? Yes, okay, they're fine. <laughs> you are aware you've just booked two heel versus heel matches in a row on no, a WrestleMania well, card. Well, no, I wasn't. But actually, <laughs> you, you see, although for me, Bam Bam is a heel that I like, though. So he's, he's one of the, the, the people, okay, he's, he's, he is a heel. But for me, I want to, I, I like him. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so I almost said, although I do realise that he is a heel and he's booked as a heel, for me, he's a face. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about necessarily what they're supposed to be. I care about what I want to see. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I'd, I'd like to see that. And I'd like to see Bam Bam win. Yep. Because Bam Bam is another person that I think has had a really good run since we've been doing these podcasts. Who deserves to be higher up the card. And I think beating Yoko could be a way of doing that. I'd like to see Brett versus The Undertaker. So we've had our heel, 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 then face, face. Yeah. It's <laughs> fine. Okay. And then uh, I want to see... And, and this is almost... If I'd have had the Divas match at my disposal in terms of... The Divas and not... The women's match at, yeah. at my disposal, I would have definitely had Bull against uh, yeah. Blaze yeah. here. But I had the one 2 3 kid against Bob Backlund in a bull rope match. Now, the story behind <laughs> this... <laughs> the story behind this would be that Bob Backlund's been bullying the one 2 3 kid uh, and that the one 2 3 kid is going to win this match. And then I'd have the main... Hang bombs. on, when have we seen a bull rope match? We haven't, but I... <laughs> I presume that they're, they're not a particularly current invention. I, I'd have thought they're quite... No, old. they're a bit more NWA than yeah. WWF. But they're around. They exist, yeah. And then I'd, then I'd have Shawn Michaels against Diesel, and, and I'd have Diesel winning following some interference from Razor. So Razor screws Shawn or Razor screws Diesel? Razor screws Shawn. So he's still a face? Oh, you, you're confusing me with all this hat. Yeah. Face heel stuff. <laughs> well, thanks for that. that. That was definitely yeah, very interesting. It was interesting, yeah. Perhaps one of the biggest strengths of the show has always been Paul's quality impressions. Moment 43 from Royal Rumble 1994 sees Scrivens have a go at impersonating The Undertaker's manager. Another feud that kicked off at the Survivor Series was The Undertaker versus Yokozuna. Similar to when Lex Luger received his world title shot, Cornette's amazing legal skills saw Yokozuna accept this title match on the condition that it would be The Undertaker's only title match. However, in a glaring oversight of small print, he failed to note that Paul Bearer had added a stipulation to the bout and it was announced on the 12th of December episode of Wrestling Challenge that the match would be a casket match. Vignettes aired throughout December and January of Taker and Paul Bearer in the Deadman's Workshop built a casket. What type of casket is it, Adam? <laughs> double deep, double wide. Featuring a cameo from the casket used for Kamala. I yeah, did like yeah, that. With, with the moon and the star on it. Yeah, it looks a bit like a smiley face. <laughs> I thought. I did, it does actually. I did notice that the Undertaker is obviously a very handy guy. You know, using his woodworking tools and doing a bit of oh, iron his, mongery as it's, well. It's his profession. I know it's his profession, but you don't think of the Undertaker as necessarily just being a handyman. Being an Undertaker. Well, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's his job, Paul. Yeah, that, wrestling's that, that, like that, his that's side what he does. Wrestling's his hobby. I've not seen. <laughs> yeah, I just I just haven't seen him to that side of it. I was quite impressed. If I if I, if I need a bit of work doing at my house, I'll I know what to call. My note here is that I hope Kamala's not still in that casket. <laughs> I hope he is. <laughs> that's terrible. Um, He's got no legs yeah. now. <laughs> He's got no legs. Yeah, he had his leg and or legs amputated. Shit, what? Yeah, he's in a wheelchair. Diabetes, I think. Fuck. Thank you for, for lowering the mood. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do, I do think, I did like these little spots. There was, a, there was a nice bit where Undertaker does a very creepy ho, ho, ho. 
I'm unsure of where your Undertaker impression re- sits in relation to your Matching Man impression. My Matching Man? I'd like to think they're on a par. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's some really good stuff in that. I mean, I, I like this. Um, there's a bit where they do, um, they look at the double wide, double deep caskets, and they go inside that it. That was a terrible Paul Bearer impression. Do it again. Well, if you do it with me. No. They, they, they go to a bit where they look at the double wide, double deep. Is that better? <laughs> It was mildly better. Okay, thank you. Go on, one more try. Okay, they um, they go to this part of the promo where they go to look at the double wide, double <laughs> casket, <laughs> and stop it, stop it. They, they take a view from inside the casket so we can get a, a real kind of close-up view. And then they close the lid of the casket and carry on with the promo. So obviously, the, the, mic's, the mic's kind of on the position of being inside the casket, so the, the level of the sound goes right down. And it's just darkness for about seven or eight seconds. Which, Sorry. Which I really enjoyed. I, feel, I do feel persecuted again. Anyway, on the uh, 2nd of January episode... There must be a phone number I can ring. <laughs> the WWE hotline. <laughs> I'm being mocked for my impressions. <laughs> By the way, I don't want Lex Luger to be in the Royal Rumble. Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, is this now like a Samaritan's WWF line you can ring up and tell the one, two, three kid all your problems? <laughs> uh, of all the superstars of this era, who is the one that you'd want to tell your problems to? <laughs> um... Giant Gonzalez. <laughs> right. IRS. But, but I don't... <laughs> Tell you a tax cheat. But the, there is there is the... Um... He cuts his throat right down the phone to you. I'm thinking of killing myself. You're a tax cheat. Do it. <laughs> Taken from episode 16, In Your House 2, comes moment 42 which features an assortment of discussions from Lumberjacks, Time Travel, Pickles the Dog, Mooing and Dick Faces. Diesel cuts another awkward talking into shouting promo where he sort of tenuously goes from something normal to shouting about something completely different. Yeah, still not like it. Still not a fan of these, Adam? No. Undertaker fans are at ringside again, which leads to our main event indeed, Diesel versus Sid for the WWF world title in a Lumberjack match. This match was announced the night after King of the Ring on the 26th of June Raw in an In Your House segment presented by Todd Pettingill. On the July 10th Raw, Vince McMahon interviewed Sid and Ted DiBiase. DiBiase claimed that Sid wasn't in fact a coward after he left at the end of King of the Ring and was indeed the master and ruler of the world. DiBiase then introduced the best lumberjacks money can buy, 15 mid and lower card heels. Ted's promo included the immortal question, what are you going to do, Diesel, when you run into the crowd and the mantar chases you? <laughs> D- Diesel didn't answer it. I'm, I'm left wondering. Spot on. It, it was interesting that, that during the start of the match that the king talks about the combined mass of, of all the wrestlers, which is £4,838. Yep. Averaging out at about, or, or meaning out at about 200, sorry, £323 
to three significant figures. Well, I suppose Mabel would skew the figures slightly. Yeah, it shows that they've got some bulk there. Truly a dilemma anyway, running away from Mantar. Sid then did some shouting. On the 17th of July, Raw, Vince interviewed Diesel, who introduced his lumberjacks. Sid and his lumberjacks then made their way to the ring, leading to a stare-down between champion and challenger after accusations that Sid was a chicken, although Sid wouldn't enter the ring. So, the lumberjacks for this match are... You ready? Yeah, be ready for me to say who. King Mabel. I know him. Sermo. I won't do it for everyone, it'll be tedious. IRS, Karma, King Kong Bundy, Tatonka, Henry Godwin, Rad Radford. Who? We'll cover him another time. Skip. Who? We'll cover him next month. Tom Pritchard, Jimmy Who? Del Rey, Jacob Blue, Eli Blue, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Who? We'll cover him at In Your House 3. Mantar, Hunter Hurst Helmsley, Bam Bam Bigelow, Razor Ramon, Savio Vega, the one, two, three kid, Man Mountain Rock, Adam Bomb, Bob Holly, Duke Drosy, Fatu, Billy Gunn, Bart Gunn, Techno Team 2000, Travis and Troy, and Sean Michaels. The, who was the really small blonde one? In the blue singlet. I, I couldn't see. I, I, I kind of saw his head from a distance. It would be Skip, I imagine. Skip. Okay. So would you like to know who Techno Team 2000 are? Yes. Why not? Travis and Troy. They are Chad Travis Fortune and Eric Troy Watts, son of former wrestler and Mid-South promoter Cowboy Bill Watts. Eric Watts had previously wrestled for WCW and been on the receiving end of a handful of pushes, coincidentally whilst his father was WCW Booker. Hmm. No nepotism there. Techno Team 2000 made their WWF debut on a Madison Square Garden house show on March the 19th, 1995, and their TV debut on the May 16th Superstars, defeating Barry Horowitz and the Brooklyn Brawler. Not long after this appearance, they were sent to the USWA to improve their skills. They would resurface in the WWF in May 1996, but would be released in the summer of 1996. Watts would later show up in TNA as part of a stable alongside David Flair and Brian Christopher, known as Genetic Disappointment. No, they were called (laughs) The Next Generation. While Fortune would sign with WCW and do nothing of note, apart from beating Goldberg in his first ever loss. What? Well, uh, it's credited by Goldberg himself in his autobiography. It must have been something in the power plant or some sort of dark, 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 dark match, as I can't find any record of it anywhere. Mm, he wow. would later go on to be a monster truck driver. Wow. <laughs> can, can I ask, what is Techno Team 2000's gimmick? They're, they're from the year 2000, Adam. They're dressed they're, in tinfoil. They're, they're time travellers. And... Time travellers. We've travelled back in time five years to a time of really awful wrestling when we might just make the card. <laughs> and in five years' time, we'll all be wearing tinfoil. That, maybe that's it. Maybe that's they bizarre. were. Maybe they were part of the Attitude Era and they travel back in time. Because with time travel, there's two different things. There's two different ways of time traveling. There's... Go on, the, I want to hear this. There's the sort of version of time travel where you believe that you travel back within the same continuity. And that's true time travel. Then there's the other way where you can go back and change things, and but that's different universes and you're not going back to the same place you left. But maybe, yeah, they did come back to try and change something. But being as everything they know as history already happened, they can't go back and stop Mabel keep winning King of the Ring. So they're just there, sat, ineffectually doing nothing. Kind of stuck there in limbo, knowing, yeah. knowing what they want to change but not being able to change it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like me saying, I'm going to go back in time to kill Hitler, but what I can't do is kill Hitler because I live in a history where Hitler wasn't killed by me. Yeah. So I could go back and I could attempt to kill Hitler, but 
I don't actually manage to do it. Maybe I actually stop him being killed or something to that effect. Or, or maybe it could be like the World Cup and maybe you could be like, find the World Cup. Like Pickles the dog. Like Pickles the dog. <laughs> yeah. So that's somewhat of an in-joke between us, isn't it? <laughs> Adam didn't know who Pickles the dog was and thought we were making up a story yeah. about... Sounds like a fucking Ad- joke. Adam thought we were making up the most convoluted story <laughs> About a dog finding the World Cup. Yeah, just... Read about the World Cup was stolen and it was recovered by a dog named Pickles in a bush. <laughs> it does not sound like a true story. But anyway, maybe Travis and Troy were actually really big in the Attitude Era and they just ended up travelling back through time <laughs> and just being rubbish. The, 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 there's, there's like a film in there somewhere. Back to the Future or something, I don't know. <laughs> Starring Eric Watts. Yeah. Sid enters to pretty much silence. These but, are... but, see, this is the thing. It does allow you to hear that music, which I quite like. <laughs> Advantage of not being over. Yeah. <laughs> Silver linings and all that. Diesel gets a slightly better reaction and enters with Sean at his side. They high-five their lumberjacks, Adam Bomb, Bam Bam Bigelow, people like that, and I can only imagine it goes something along the lines of, high-five, killed your push. High-five, killed yours too, mate. <laughs> you ain't going anywhere. Diesel enters the ring and Sid attacks and they exchange fists. Sid goes to the outside and gets immediately tossed back in and Diesel punches him back out and then immediately gets thrown back in by the lumberjacks again. A body slam by Diesel, and Sid goes out of the ring by his own choice into his friends. Mo pats him on the back and gives him a, it's all right, mate. Sid then chucks Diesel into the heel lumberjacks who lay in the boots to Diesel. They're, 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 they are heelish. They, they dig the heel in. Yep. Sean steals the spotlight, diving onto the heels and a brawl erupts. The million-dollar team throw Diesel back in and Sid gets a two. Manta moves loudly on the outside. Just constantly. I think he'll be too anxious to head back out there. Ready for this matchup, considering the elbow injury. Johnny goes. Yeah, that, that's a lot yeah. what it's like. But it's one of my best impressions to date. I've, I found it one of the most entertaining things about this match. Actually. Yeah, Just every, every now and 10 again, seconds. You yeah. hear a move from Manta. Fair play. Like, if you're given a really shit gimmick, it's like, you know what? I'm going to be the best fucking bull you've ever yeah. had. <laughs> It's that sort of investment I want from people. Yeah, yeah. We get some Diesel chants, which are slightly overdubbed with mooing. Sid works over Diesel, but I'm way more preoccupied with listening for more moves. Diesel lays on the ropes and gets some punches from the heel lumberjacks. Again, more moves. Diesel gets back to his feet and counters a Sid punch before taking him down with a clothesline and an elbow drop. And another. I'll forgive the elbow drop thing now as I guess he's trying to show, yeah, my elbow's better, it's fine, mate, fuck you. Yeah. Diesel, out of nowhere, dives over the top rope and takes out several of Sid's lumberjacks. Unexpected. It w- it was very unexpected, but I'm a kind of okay with him doing this. It shows guts and you want to get at them. But also, it takes away from what's happening in the ring. Yeah. And and this, presumably, is the whole point of booking this particular angle. Correct. This particular match, because there is just no, no way. way they're going to have a good match in the ring. So the the only decent action has got to take place on the outside. Yep. And again, points for going outside of his comfort zone because in no fucking way have we seen Kevin Nash diving over the top rope before. Mm. He's got at least 10 people there to catch him in this. Yeah, which definitely helps. Back inside, Diesel lays Sid across the ropes and hits a boss man attack. Diesel then hits Snake Eyes, and I swear, and put this soundbite in, Duke Drosy shouts, how does that feel, dick face? You, you replayed that to us just before we started recording, and that is what he says. Yeah, it's, it does pretty much. I'm pretty like sure that. it's Duke Josie. It may be someone else. It's not Mantar because he's mooing. But yeah. <laughs> moment 41 is the most serious of the countdown so far, but came in as a suggestion from many listeners. 
Taken from episode 79, Survivor Series 1997 Part 1, it's time to say farewell to the British Bulldog. And last, but definitely, definitely not least, Survivor Series 1997 sees us forced to say goodbye to the one, the only, the bizarre British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith. Wow. Now, he really will be missed. As a result of the events at the conclusion of this show, the Bulldog would ask for and be granted a release from his WWF contract, though it wouldn't be a simple process. The following is from the May 27th, 2002 edition of Figure 4 Weekly. Quote, Smith confronted Vince and told him he wasn't happy with everything. Vince callously said maybe he should just go find a new job. 20 minutes later, he'd signed a new deal with World Championship Wrestling. However, despite Vince's claim that he'd be given a full release, he later recanted, demanding instead that Smith paid a $150,000 penalty in order to get out of his deal. Wow. That's a fair chunk. Desperate to leave the promotion, Smith paid the fee Vince requested. Before he could reappear in WCW, however, Davey re-injured his bad knee and would undergo arthroscopic surgery on December 4th. Making his debut on the January 26, 1998 episode of Nitro, Smith would be allowed to use his British Bulldog moniker in Atlanta, even though curiously he hadn't been granted permission during his previous tenure with the company in 1993. Mm. So when he mm. went there in the early 90s, he was only ever Davy Boy Smith, he wasn't the British Bulldog. The Bulldog was quickly placed in a feud with Steve Mongo McMichael, which led to a series of matches that were every bit as good as you would expect. Mm. Davy would form a tag team with his brother-in-law, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, until suffering a back injury on September 13th, 1998 at Fall Brawl, when he landed awkwardly on a trap door that had been placed in the ring to allow the Ultimate Warrior to make a surprise appearance during the show's main event. The injury led to a spinal infection that nearly took the Bulldog's life and led to him spending nearly six months in Calgary's Rocky View Hospital, during which his sister Tracy and his mother both died. Whilst in hospital, he also received his release from WCW. What a crappy time. Yeah. After a stint in drug rehab in early 1999, Davy Boy was offered another shot in the WWF, which Power Slam magazine in June 2002 suggested was arranged for him by Owen Hart. As we all know, Owen sadly wouldn't be around to see Davy Boy's return on the September 7th, 1999 episode of SmackDown, where he defeated the Big Boss Man to capture the WWF hardcore title, which he instantly bequeathed to Al Snow. Davy Boy would quickly turn heel a few weeks later on the September 21st Smackdown when he cost The Rock a Brahma bull rope match against Triple H. Davy Boy would then feud with The Rock for a short time, including a losing effort against the People's Champion at No Mercy on October 17th. Sadly, this iteration of the British Bulldog barely resembled the man that was a bona fide megastar in the early 90s, wrestling in jeans and hardly able to take flat back bumps. Mm. Davy was quickly moved down the card and given the Mean Street Posse as backup, though he would have one final run with the strap he held throughout much of 1997, the European title, which he captured from D'Lo Brown on the October 26th Smackdown before losing it to Val Venus in a triple threat match that also included D'Lo at Armageddon on December 12th, 1999. The Figure 4 weekly obituary for Davy Boy Smith suggests that he was back in rehab in early 2000, fighting addiction to painkillers, morphine, sleeping pills and muscle relaxants, following what is described as a frightening incident where he nearly died after swallowing his tongue. Vince McMahon would pick up the $75,000 tab for his stint in rehab. Davy Boy Smith would make his final return to the World Wrestling Federation at Insurrection in London on May 6, 2000, where he pinned Crash Holly to capture the hardcore title though he would drop the strap back to crash three days later on SmackDown. 
Davy Boy's final televised WWF appearance would be a bout against Eddie Guerrero, where both men were disqualified after shoving the referee on the May 28th, 2000 episode of Sunday Night Heat, though his actual last match would be a pinfall victory over Steve Blackman at a house show on May 27th in, fittingly enough, Calgary, Alberta, mm. Canada. Mm. He would never compete again for the company before being released from his contract in December 2000. Following his release from the WWF, Davy Boy Smith would divorce his wife Diana and begin dating Andrea Redding, the wife of his brother-in-law, Bruce Hart. What? On May 10th, 2002, <laughs> Davy Boy Smith would team with his 16-year-old son Harry in a bout against Rob Stardom and Ryan Wood in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. Davy's final match would come a day later in a six-man bout alongside his son and Zach Mercury against Robbie Royce, The Axe and TJ Bratt in Winnipeg. A week later, on May 18th, Davy Boy Smith would pass away in his sleep, aged just 39, after suffering a heart attack whilst on holiday with his girlfriend Andrea in Invermere, British Columbia. Shit. 39? Yeah. Heath McCoy's Pain and Passion, The History of Stampede Wrestling, states that, quote, The coroner's report said Davy died of natural causes, but made a point of stating that he had used anabolic steroids in the past. A bottle of Trenbolone, a steroid extracted from cattle, was found in Davy and Andrea's hotel room. End quote. McCoy continues, Natty Neidhart said that despite his problems, Davy had a warm and kind heart. He was always there for us, she says. When there were big fights between my mom and dad, he would always help us out financially and give us a place to stay. From Bret Hart's autobiography, Hitman, My Real Life in the Cartoon World of Wrestling. Quote, there were two funerals for Davy. Diana called to ask me to give a eulogy at the one she organised and I agreed, but first I attended the service Andrea put together. Poor Andrea was crying hard and I was glad I made it there for her. Diana timed her memorial service for Davy for May 29th, the same day the WWF was in town. Vince, Hogan and others came. Ellie, Brett's sister, wife of Jim the Anvil Neidhart, who spoke just before me, ripped into poor Andrea with a vengeance. Wrong place, wrong time, awkward silence. Eventually, one of the funeral home staff eased her away from the podium. I rose to clean up her mess and to give Davy a fitting send-off, which left both poor Harry and his baby sister Georgia smiling with tears in their eyes. I love Davy like a brother. His biggest mistake was letting bad people influence his innocent heart. I spoke of how I remembered him best as that shy, handsome kid with the big dimples. I'm sorry, I thought. I should have been there for you. End quote. A little tingle, then. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's so sad like it's such a sad thing to to be talking about here's a guy that's 39 seems like a a, a good guy it's got all family it's just so so bad that wrestling seems to cause all this fallout it's kind of the the polar opposite personality wise to the dynamite kid everyone seems to think he was an ultra arsehole yeah and davy boy was nice mm. and kind and generous and just happened to make one or two ropey decisions i guess one of the standout people from our timeline one of the people that i remember most fondly as a kid i guess because i'm british but it wasn't just british people that loved the british bulldog he had a massive following in america he had a massive following in canada he did stuff in the ring that was genuinely like we've seen now has still been incredibly impressive even at that sort of like really latter stage of his career, he's still doing awesome feats of strength. He gives shit to the crowd like yeah. no one else that we've seen. His mastery of pissing people off is incredible. Yeah, 
sorely missed. Yeah. What can we say about the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith? As Adam just pointed out, if you're too young to remember, in the early 1990s, he was a genuinely huge star and was certainly a big part of why the WWF drew 80,000 people to Wembley Stadium on August 29th, 1992. While not a top-tier talent on the level of his brothers-in-law, Brett and Owen Hart, he was certainly capable of contributing to high-level matchups, and his bouts with Brett at SummerSlam 1992 and In Your House 5, his bouts with Shawn Michaels at One Night Only, and Owen Hart at Raw in Germany all speak to his abilities, never mind that his tag team with the Dynamite Kid is regarded as one of the greatest of all time. As far as what he's meant to this podcast... Whilst his bouts have not always been stellar, he has been a constant source of entertainment, with perhaps the exception of that match with Diesel in your house for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> his bizarre promos about frogs' fat asses have provided us with endless amusement, and his war of words with those fans at ringside giving him shit whilst waiting for a tag from Owen have been a joy to spot. Almost Easter eggs for us to discover 20 years mm. later. Yeah. Mm. No, sad, sad to say goodbye to him. Yeah, they'll be missed. Is it D'Lo Brown? Moment 40 from episode 44, Raw is War 4, reveals the answer. Up next is another rather important match in WWF history. It's the Sultan versus Alex the Pug Porto. (laughs) Finally. Yes, a match that we can all get behind. Yeah. On Raw Championship Friday on the 6th of September, Bob Backlund cut an in-ring promo where he claimed he would soon introduce a man that would win the WWWF Championship. (laughs) He would also bring back to the WWF the man who defeated him for the WWF title back in 1983, the Iron Sheik, who Backlund claimed would be his new charges trainer. He also told us he had a lot of abomination for him. (laughs) Not not sure what you mean by that, Bob. (laughs) On the 16th of September edition of Raw, Backland and Sheik debuted their man, the Sultan, who went on to defeat Jake Roberts via a humbling clamel clutch. The Sultan's backstory is that he doesn't talk as he had had his tongue cut out, this also being the reason he wears the mask. The real reason he wears the mask? Well, to hide who he is. Who is he? It's D'Lo Brown. Adam, who is it? It's Fatu. Well... What? Yes, it's Fatu. <laughs> Seriously, you let me think it was D'Lo Brown. I didn't say that it, it wasn't him. No, you him. didn't. I was, I was convinced it was D'Lo Brown. His ass is way too big to be <laughs> D'Lo Brown. D'Lo Brown used to be quite fat. Well, it's difficult, though, because I don't know that much about Alex the Pug Porto, is it? <laughs> yeah. So it's difficult to get that idea of perspective and size. <laughs> <laughs> I was convinced. I thought it was a good spot. Plus, if it was D'Lo Brown, they wouldn't really need to hide his face. But with Fatu, obviously, they need to kind of disguise the fact that he's been on TV for the last four years and be like, hey, no, that guy isn't a sultan. He's got a tongue. He's got a tongue and everything. We saw him eat a chicken. While you were out of the room earlier, I did say to Paul, oh, I hear you figured out who the sultan was. (laughs) And he just so confidently just went, yes, D'Lo Brown. (laughs) And I just had to keep my mouth shut thinking (laughs) the ultimate reveal. Has that rocked your world? I thought it was Pat Tanaka, really. (laughs) (laughs) They could never cut his tongue out. Yeah. Moment 39 is from episode 38, In Your House International Incident, and wonders what Steve Austin's career would be like if he drank something other than beer. Stone Cold Steve Austin enters with a lovely Stone Cold symbol on the back of his pants. I'm just going to put this out there. This symbol is most certainly not main event and will not last very long at all. (laughs) 
What is the symbol? I've forgotten it already. Yeah, it, it says Stone Cold with some something around it. I think it lasts this pay-per-view and the following night's Raw taping, if I remember correctly. It's not around very long. See, I, I, you know, given the story that you gave us about how the Stone Cold thing came around, I think they should just portray him as a tea drinker. What? With a stone cold tea, stone cold cup of tea, and I think what should happen is he should be in quite a good mood. Have it like somebody every week, a different wrestler can can bring him a cup of tea, and then it will just get mad when it turns out to be stone cold tea. It'd have a different effect, wouldn't it? If at the end of like your WrestleMania, he's stone cold wins, and people are lobbing in mugs of tea, tea. <laughs> and they just get everywhere. As good as a catcher, as stone cold Steve Austin is. If he tries to catch a, a, a thrown mug of searing hot tea. <laughs> It, it might end badly for him. He stood on the top turnbuckle, pouring hot tea down. <laughs> smashes the mugs together, pours hot tea down his face. I'd love to say it. I think it'd be better if it was in lost styrofoam cups. <laughs> well, I suppose now you can get like those frappuccinos and things yeah, in cans, cans can't yeah. you? So you could perhaps do those. Slightly fancy for Steve Austin, I think. <laughs> you, do, you don't think he'd be a frappuccino kind of guy? I, I think he's a much more regular coffee kind of guy. I think or, or he'd plain just, tea. Just have a bottle of scotch. More scorch. It would have been a very different character, wouldn't it? <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin was a if I'd have booked was him. a coffee drinker, <laughs> not a beer drinker. Have you ever had Haribo bowled at you like the deciding ball in the ashes? If you have, moment thirty-eight will probably sound quite familiar to you, as you were probably in attendance for episode ninety NGP Live. You're number four, then, Paul. But before you do that, there is a bag behind your chair. Yeah, there is. Do you want to reveal what is the contents of the bag? Does anybody want to guess? Harry Bow. I couldn't fit that in a bag. <laughs> what do you want me to do with this, Stuart? Just throw some bags out. Throw some bags out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there we go. Well, and just, in, just enjoy it as, uh, as we podcast. Does anybody want to stick their hand up for me to take that? Right. There you go. <laughs> Anyone over this side? Oh no, see it. Right. I'm going to have to go over on that. Any more? He's seen tough. I was going to say, you're not playing the fucking outfield in England. Nice gentle throwing. Yeah, but low ceiling and people at the back putting their hands up. Typical those late pullers. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Is everyone okay? <laughs> oh, we better do this again. All right. <laughs> this is what it's really like. Upon his debut, Kane was the most feared wrestler in the WWF. Would he have been if he did Melina's entrance? Moment 37 from episode 79, Survivor Series 1997, part 1, ponders this. Do you think it makes it look like his matches are taking place in a brothel? No. No? Because if... tonally it doesn't say brothel to me. <laughs> if he was um, if he was fighting Mark Mero and Sabre was sauntering around <laughs> the outside under these red lights, she's got like she's coming out with like a, a riding crop or a flipping flog or something <laughs> all, the, all the time. So yeah, she's kind of got a bit of this dominatrix thing going on. That could work. I get what they're going for, like it's to set the Kane character apart mm. and make it unique, but I think, Adam, you're probably right in that actually they probably realised they were pissing off loads of people in the crowd who turned up and then couldn't see what was yeah, going on. Yeah, if you're any way past, I would say, even a third back, you'd really find it difficult to see what was going on in the ring. 
Did the, is it? This is what they did with Sin Cara as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, do you ever wonder if like ninety seven came for twenty eleven Sin Cara would they fight under purple lights? Yeah, that'd be good. Difference being, this early Kane stuff is cool as it's really good. And Sin Cara, and Sin Cara's was just like him breaking his fingers during all the matches or something. Mankind leaves the ring to meet Kane in the aisle. He rams Kane's head into the steel railing, but Kane no-sells it and throws Mankind against the steel steps. Mankind gets up, so Kane rams him again. Still under the red lighting, Kane rolls Mankind into the ring and steps over the top rope. He makes the four corners of the ring explode to a big reaction as the bell rings. But, the, the, I mean, that, that pyro must have been, like, about 30 feet in the air. <laughs> Can I just make the point now that Kane's big... Yeah. Kane steps over the top rope. Giant Gonzalez was big. Giant Gonzalez steps over the top rope. The interrogator is sold on commentary as being a massive, colossal man, yet goes through over the second rope. Uh-huh. Yeah, he does. Which yeah. is really bizarre. Like all massive characters to sell that they're bigger, even ones where you kind of think it's cutting their nuts a bit to do it, yeah. like Test, always step over <laughs> yeah. the top rope. I just uh, wondered why the interrogator didn't. Maybe he fell over and uh, he practised it. But... At least he didn't do Molina's entrance. <laughs> if the interrogator <laughs> did Molina's entrance. Well, Kane could do it, but when he landed, all the pyro went <laughs> off. <laughs> like, Glenn, we've got this idea for your entrance, mate. You've got to stand on the apron. Yep, yep, wait for it. And then uh, you need to jump up and go split leg akimbo down on the apron. <laughs> And then uh, sexually slide under the bottom rope. And as you do that, the Apyro's going to go off. Everyone's going to go bonkers. And he probably just said, no. Yeah. Not doing it. Just, sli- just sexually slide under. <laughs> like a sexy snake. <laughs> Instead of the big red machine, you're going to be the, the sexy snake. Kane. <laughs> the, big, the big red snake. <laughs> Over the course of the show, Adam researched everyone from Mr. T to Chuck Norris to Jezebel to the Yeti, but perhaps his most thorough entry came when he was asked to look on the details of Pamela Anderson. Moment 36 from episode 12, Royal Rumble 1995, details what he found. Adam, why don't you tell us about Pamela Anderson? He's got a whole separate section of notes. Yeah, Much yeah. more comprehensive than for the rest of the paper. We figured this could be his gimmick after the Chuck Norris thing. Although there's no amusing Pamela Anderson facts. I, just... I don't know. I'm sure there's some out there. Pamela okay, Anderson then. can slam a revolving door. Yeah, yeah she probably when, can. When Pamela Anderson jumps into a swimming pool, she doesn't get wet. The water gets Pamela Anderson. <laughs> right, then. You, you can't search Pamela Anderson on Google. <laughs> Something about she finds you. <laughs> can't remember the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like a brief history of Pamela Anderson over about three pages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's more than your notes for the wrestling. Oh, completely, yeah. Although uh, I leave big spaces in between the uh, the lines. Yeah, so. Adam, your handwriting there is a bit shaky. Was <laughs> 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 something to do with my left hand. <laughs> <laughs> when you say you googled Pamela Anderson, are we talking image search? <laughs> At one point. <laughs> but but pri- primarily, it was from different bio sites. Okay, it. okay, let's I, go. Like, any of the information I can't really state as being 100% accurate because the, the accounts seem to differ from site to site. She first saw it came to prominence in 1989 when she was spotted at a Canadian Football League game wearing a, a Labatt's 
shirt. And how bizarre. And then she was put up on like the big Titantron type screen and everyone sort of like jerked inst- instantly, yeah, stood up to attention. And uh, they decided they'd make her the face of Labatt's. So she did that. She then got picked up in October that year to be on Playboy first time. And she did the last Playboy cover in 2011. That makes her... She does the most covers of anyone ever. She started off acting in Home Improvement, yeah, which I think With was Tim shown. Allen. Yeah, I think it was shown a lot. Channel, Channel 4. Channel 4. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And then she got the part in uh, Baywatch, which I guess is what she's most famous for, uh, which she was in from 92 to 98. And apparently a reunion movie in 2003 called Hawaiian Wedding. Which Sounds I've, great. Which I've never heard of before, but I'm sure it's awful. But ordered off Amazon. <laughs> this afternoon. I, I didn't, but I might. She was just in like loads of bad movies, like Snapdragon in 93 and Raw Justice in 94. Snapdragon. I know, I, I don't know what that is. Barb Wire is the only one that I'd really I know heard that, of, because yeah. that was a, a big deal in 96. That's uh, that's the one with Sabu in, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Paul. Yeah, he's the love interest. <laughs> isn't there uh, a love triangle with yeah. Abyss as well? Uh, Abyss, Sabu and Pamela Anderson <laughs> starring Barb Wire. Hmm, this Barb. sounds like it's in TNA, so there's definitely a pole involved. <laughs> and then she, uh, she kind of then slipped into... What is mainly cameo roles, I think. So she was in Scooby Doo in 2002 and Borat in 2006, yes, which, which, yeah. was, which was very, very funny. She married Tommy Lee yeah. after knowing him for four days <laughs> yeah, in February 1995. And she had two sons with him. They got divorced in 98. They reconciled later on and split up again finally in 2008. She contracted hepatitis C from apparently sharing a tattoo needle. Mm, with sounds him. likely. Yeah. Seems very odd, really, but she didn't announce that until 2002. She then got engaged to a Marcus Schenkenberg. I don't know who that is, and they broke up in 2001. Then she got engaged to Kid Rock. I remember that. And then broke up in 2003, but then married him in July 2006, and then filed for divorce in November 2006. And then in October 2007, married this... Some some think Statham has been a film producer, but I think he's one of those people that's famous for being famous. You know, sort of general celebrity. Called uh, Rick Salomon. So she married him in October 2007, then they annulled the marriage in February 2008. Fucking hell. Then she started trying to see Tommy Lee again in 2008, and then she married this Salomon guy in January of this year. Now, he's an interesting character, so I clicked on, <laughs> I clicked on him, and he was, a mar- he was married to Elizabeth mm. Daly, who's like a voice actress. Oh, wasn't she in Rugrats? Yes, yeah, she yeah. The voice, that's what she's most famous for. And he was married to Shannon Doherty. Okay. And Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, no, it means nothing to Scrivens. Yeah. Yeah. Mole rats, yes, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. Rats. My, my face said it all. And this is very interesting. He was the guy in the Paris Hilton sex tape. Because <laughs> okay. he was going out with her. And basically that all just ended with Sue, 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 Sue. Oh, cross, cross lawsuits all over, the, all over the place. Obviously there was the sex tape that was released on the internet in 1995. And apparently there was another tape made before or the Tommy Lee one with Brett Michaels from Poison. Okay. I know. But he managed to put a block on that before it was released. And then just various other things. She's been in loads of Big Brothers. I don't know if these are all accurate, but apparently she's been in like Big Brother for Australia, India, Bulgaria, Germany, and the UK. Jesus Christ. Now, I know she was definitely in the UK yeah. one. I remember that. But I don't and how know. many times was she married there? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Probably in every one. To John McCurick. <laughs> she. <laughs> 
apparently she wrote a, a letter to Barack Obama trying to encourage him to legalise marijuana. It did not say that he responded. It's legal in a couple of states it is now, now yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's her doing. Well done, Pam. I did come across... Have anyone ever heard of a website called Unencyclopedia? No. It just seems to be like Wikipedia, but full of absolute bullshit. <laughs> and I found, I found, I found her, her page on it, and after reading about two lines, I thought, no, this is crap. But it did list her favourite books on there, and two of those being Boob Explosion... <laughs> And stick your pole in my asshole. <laughs> and you ordered those off Amazon as well, presumably. I don't, I, I don't think they exist. And then obviously the, one, one of the things that she's most famous for is having breast implants. I can't work out when she actually got them, but sometime in the early 90s, after the first Playboy and before she did Baywatch, and she went up to a D cup. And then in 1999, had them lowered to a C cup. Um, and then in 2005, had it boosted up to banging double Ds. And which are your personal favourites? Probably the D cup of Baywatch era ones. Okay. And there you go, that is the rundown of Pam Anderson. That was Celebrity Watch with Adam White. In a nutshell. <laughs> Moment 35 from episode 17, SummerSlam 1995, sees Paul try a starter he's never had before. Out next is Bob Holly. He has a rather lovely red jacket as well. Mm. I, I noted down that Bob is hand-slapping happy. <laughs> because he really goes to town slapping everybody's hands on the way to the ring. I think it's really nice to see Triple H and Hardcore Holly at the same level on pay-per-view. That is interesting. Well, yeah. well I, I think Bob's still a bigger star at this point. Well, arguably, yeah, he's been around longer. Yeah, but they're at the same point on the bill. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're low card. Yeah. What word do they use to describe Bob Holly here? Like, almost like a veteran or something, even though he's been there about a year and a half or something. I imagine Steve Austin had used the word mechanic. Mechanic, yeah, very which good. would fit his gimmick. He would well. fit his gimmick. <laughs> Triple H takes his time undressing while Lawler suggests he Kentucky Fried Quail. Yeah. Or squab. <laughs> squab. I'm not entirely sure what squab is. Is that another bird? I've no idea. Is it kind of pigeony? Doesn't sound very tasty. No. No. Do you want to hear a story about the first time I ate pigeon? <laughs> Of course we do. I went, I went to this kind of slightly fancier restaurant than I'm used to. Didn't like the look of most of the starters. I found, I found the choice of pigeon the kind of least offensive thing or slash the thing that I kind of recognised the most from the names that I what couldn't pronounce. What else was on the menu? I, I can't remember, but I remember thinking, I'm a little bit of a fussy eater. Unless it's McDonald's. Unless it's Mac and in which case I'll eat anything. <laughs> Apart from the Happy Meals that don't make me very happy. They, they upset me, I'll go into that at some other point. <laughs> Sorry, but but um, no. I, I kind of, so I ordered the pigeon, and it kind of it took a little while to arrive. I kind of thought I've, I've never tasted pigeon before. I wonder what it's like. And I just remember thinking, this is nice. It it, it tastes a lot like bacon. Probably uh, because it'd been eating loads of bacon pasties from Greg's. No, it's because it, there was lots of bacon in the dish as well. Oh. The, 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 <laughs> I just couldn't spot the difference between. Pigeon and bacon, apparently. But but it was very nice, and actually I do like pigeon. And bacon. Pigeon and bacon, good combo. I think it was pigeon, ba- bacon, and some kind of potato rosti. It, it was very nice, but I, I didn't... I failed to pick out that there was bacon in there originally, and just thought... I, I remember commenting to somebody that, oh, pigeon tastes a lot like bacon. And they're like, you what? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that, that's bacon there. What a, what a lovely story. Thanks for that, Chris. You're welcome. Think pigeon and bacon is the oddest combination you've ever heard? Moment 34 is from episode 19, In Your House Free, and contains something even stranger. This DVD came with a pre-show as well, didn't it, Paul? It certainly did. Are you going to take us through that? No, but there was a couple of points... It's kind of like a couple of random things because we again we watched this one together and just got a couple of things that came up for it and we saw in Dean Douglas's kind of little vignettes there was certain things like 
he wasn't consistent with his use of upper and lowercase letters. So, for example, he wrote no-brainer with all the letters other than the I as capitals. So so that was just something that didn't really seem to fit with the character for me because that was sloppy. I also didn't think his writing on, on the chalkboard was particularly good. Yeah, it's a little bit messy. HBK at some point, I forget which point it is, is talking about ice cream and ketchup don't mix. Yes, he did mention that. I mean, I've not tried that, <laughs> but I have tried ice cream and gravy together. You, you have, I remember. <laughs> I have. And actually, I thought that that was really quite nice. Uh, where, where was the ice cream and gravy from? Just just reveal that for it, the audience. It was, it was a chicken outlet. <laughs> Chicken-based outlet. That might be from Kentucky. Might be from somewhere around there, yes. May or may not be fried. It looked disgusting. Yeah. But it, but it was kind of this, it had this kind of whole hot, cold thing going on. So you know if you've had like some like... <laughs> it's just hot gravy and cold ice cream. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you know if you've had something like hot apple pie with ice cream. Yeah. And that's really nice. It had a similar kind of thing going on. Only one thing tasted of chicken and the other one was ice cream. <laughs> yeah. I still quite enjoyed it. I mean, I think, did I not make about 50p out of doing that? I think, yeah, I'm, I'm almost wishing that I'd have just tasted it so that I could have some sort of grounds to say mm. that it was horrible, but we'll I didn't. pop there later. So, yeah, we, we'll go get some uh, I, I like how a couple of episodes ago you told us about a fine dining experience where you had pigeon, <laughs> and now you're telling us about the time you ate ice cream and gravy mixed together. Well, yeah, maybe this is why I thought that pigeon tasted of bacon. <laughs> I'm, I'm less on my secrets out now. We then got on to kind of, there was something about Razor Ramon, so we kind of spent a little while just doing our Razor Ramon impressions. Meh. <laughs> And then, then we were kind of deciding who his friends might be. And so we came up with Manfred Ma. <laughs> that was his favourite band. That, that was his favourite band. His favourite snooker player is, <laughs> is Alan McMatus. <laughs> <laughs> and my personal favourite is his favourite ex-Liverpool football player, <laughs> Steve McMatt. <laughs> This was all based so, upon the so, way Razor says McMang, by yeah, the way. This yeah. this is where all this came from. Oh, yeah, that, that's where it's from. And then I just noticed a sign in something that said, Jerry Lawyer, you should be locked in your house. He probably has been at some yeah. point. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> but yeah, so, that was the free show. Moment 33 is lifted from episode 22, Survivor Series 1995, and is perhaps the most revealing one yet. Goldust gets another little inset interview quoting Planet of the Apes, and Vince describes Goldust as a little androgynous. Can you be a little androgynous? I think it's, I think it's, it's digital, isn't it? It's either off or on. You either are or you aren't. That's what I thought. His outfit has also changed slightly from last month. Yeah, I think it's, it's slightly better. How has it changed exactly? Well, there's one prominent feature, isn't there, Adam? Is there? You know what, what? we're talking about. <laughs> what, 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 what is it, Paul? His penis. <laughs> So you've been looking at Goldust's penis? No, well... It sounds like you have. You can't miss it. <laughs> so, I, 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 I'm joking. Yeah, you can see his cock all the way through this match. <laughs> I came home from work to find these two watching this match and discussing who would be handling Goldust's penis when the topic came up during recording. Second point down in my notes just says Goldust cock. <laughs> What's the first? Something about a clothesline. Oh, okay. but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's... It was very distracting. I, I really haven't got very few notes in this match. <laughs> because it's, it's one of those things, you know, the Hypnotode, which you've watched it, you can't unwatch it, or whatever the... It's Futurama, is. you've watched it, you can't yeah. unwatch it. Yeah. And, and it's like that. But it's, it's like there's some kind of, I don't know, what's it called, where like you have motion capture or something where your eyes are physically drawn to that part of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> because you think, 
he can't be that poorly dressed, can he? You think, like, he must have, yeah, tried this out for out yeah. with people, and someone must have said, nah, nah, Dustin, you can see your knob in that. <laughs> but no, Evidently not. But no, no one that, did, and that, he never looked in a mirror. That material is A, very tight, and B, very thin. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a fat back. You're not going to give it MVP, are you? Adam had it down on his first set of notes. <laughs> he did do a drawing, but he crossed most, it out. <laughs> most valuable penis. Yes. <laughs> Is this gold? <laughs> it could be in a Bond film, Goldcock. Yeah. From episode 59, WrestleMania 13, comes moment 32, and is our first full match review on the list. What happens when Armour Johnson, the Legion of Doom, the Nation of Domination fight on the streets of Chicago? Awesome. That's what. Up next is Armour Johnson and the Legion of Doom against the Nation of Domination in a Chicago street fight. Another feud, with nearly a year's build to it, is the conflict between Armour Johnson and Farouk, dating back to the 22nd of July 1996 Raw, when Farouk first debuted as a blue-helmeted gladiator kicking Ahmed in the kidneys, causing the Pearl River powerhouse to miss six months of action. In the interim, Farouk received a change of gimmick, forming the Nation of Domination at Survivor Series, alongside Crush, Clarence Mason, rappers PG-13, and a bunch of nameless goons, including D'Lo Brown. You said nameless goons, including D'Lo Brown, but he has a name. Shut up. Ahmed would get his first shot at Farouk at the Royal Rumble, but nothing would be settled after interference from various Nation members. Later in the evening, Ahmed would eliminate himself from the Royal Rumble match before returning later to attack Farouk with his now trademark massive plank of wood. Dumbass. A week later, on January 25th at Madison Square Garden, Savio Vega would turn on Ahmed and join the nation during a tag team match where he partnered Ahmed against Farouk and Crush. Classic. He would deny joining the group a little later in the evening for reasons I'm yet to ascertain. Following In Your House Final Four on February 16th, the match between Ahmed and Farouk would be quickly set for WrestleMania, with Farouk the next night on Raw demanding that it be made a Chicago street fight. Ahmed would accept the challenge on the March 3rd Raw, but stated that he would not be coming alone. One week later on the March 10th Raw, Ahmed would reveal what he meant. The Legion of Doom would be joining him. Nice. The LOD had returned on the February 24th Raw from the Manhattan Centre in an ill-advised 11-minute match against the Headbangers that went to a double countout before saving The Undertaker from a post-match beatdown at the hands of Farouk and The Nation to close the broadcast. You what? Hawk and Animal would take on Savio Vega and Crush on the go-home March 17th Raw is War as both Ahmed Johnson and Farouk watched on from backstage before the inevitable multi-man brawl. On the March 22nd, Shotgun, Sonny, in an Undercover with Sonny segment, nice. would attempt to create rumours that prior to their return, the Legion of Doom had been contacted by Clarence Mason and would turn on Ahmed at WrestleMania. A segment the previous week hyped on the Raw is War debut episode that actually ended up getting cut for time, but apparently, in it, she claimed that Ahmed was the illegitimate son of Arnold Skoland and Juanita Wright? Unlikely. You, <laughs> Who is Juanita Wright? Sapphire. In that case, that is very unlikely. That is very unlikely. Who's Sapphire? Dusty Rhodes' valet from the early 90s. Uh. Oh, and let's never forget the time Ahmed gave D'Lo the Pearl River plunge on the roof of that car. Vintage Ahmed Johnson. I think, you know, when we finished the podcast and you think back to what are the favourite memories of things that you've seen, that will stay with me, mm. I think, because it's such an odd image. I'm, I'm really shocked because I didn't think any memories stayed with you. <laughs> Some do. It's actually pretty impossible to describe this match in the manner that I normally do, so let's just discuss it in bullet point format. 
Legion of Doom, Ahmed Johnson looks fucking badass. Yeah. He does, yeah. I mean, he should thing. carry on with this. I think it is quite a um, a good thing, because they do talk about, are they allowed to use the spikes? No, they should be. But if it's... And, and what is the difference between a Chicago street fight and just a street fight? This one's in Chicago. Is that the only difference? Presumably. We could have a Leicester street fight. We could. But let's not. Let, let's not not dwell on how amazing Armour Johnson looks in Legion of Doom gear. It's Let's the, not gloss over it's that. It's the best that he's looked. Yeah. He does need an LOD name, though, and I think I've got it. Hawk, Animal, and Botch. Botch. <laughs> plank. Hawk, plank. Animal, and plank. plank. Yes, that's it. it the, the only thing about having that plank of wood, it reminds me too much of Hacksaw. No, Ahmed's owned it for himself. Yeah. He's reclaimed he's, it. He's well, way well, better. You know who has claimed it? LOD, because they've written their LOD on their plank of wood. Well, so, if you write your name on something, it's yours. Yeah. Well, so no one else uses it. Yeah. The kitchen sink is there. Hilarious. Um, is it Hawk that brings that? Yeah. So presumably Farouk had seen him with it backstage. Because it's Farouk that says, oh, just wait and see, when Todd mm. says everything but the kitchen sink. Well, it's, it's a single bowl, though, isn't it? So it's not like a one and a half. No. I really wanted, when we got our kitchen done last year... <laughs> I really you wanted want, a rinser? I wanted a rinser. But I wasn't allowed it because it would like make it about five millimetres too big for our cavity that we had. Bastard. Cavity. It's a dirty word, isn't it? (laughs) Wallops Clarence Mason in the face. And everyone loves it. Young Colt Cabana gets in on the action, wailing on Hawk's back. That is weird. What? When they brawl up the crowd, there's a guy on the left, I think he's in an ECW t-shirt. That's Colt Cabana. Really? Really. Did not notice that. Yeah, I don't think it's the sort of thing you'd probably notice unless you were paying really specific attention, but he talks about it on his podcast and stuff, so it is him. Dangerous Ahmed dive into the crowd, followed by dangerous Ahmed dive out of the crowd. Absolutely, back to his best. (laughs) And the best part about the latter one is that it happens in the background. (laughs) Yeah, something else is happening, isn't it? In the foreground, yeah. He's um, just hurling himself over everything. Amazing. Uh, I did I did write that this is hard to follow. <laughs> this kind of tornado rules. Yeah, but it's e- exceptionally good fun. Mm. Mm. Spot of the millennium. You ready? Hawk looks to whack Savio with <laughs> Ahmed's plank. It bounces off the turnbuckle really high in the air and he catches it. It, it was a, a marvellous catch. <laughs> that was five stars. It's probably the wrestling equivalent of one of those catches where somebody catches it just inside the boundary, but their momentum's going to take them over the boundary, so they have to throw it up in the air. Get back jump, up. Yeah. Jump back up and, and catch it just inside. It, it was really lovely stuff. Animal botches a pile driver to Farouk on a flimsy table. That's unfortunate, oh. but I, I was kind of glad that, because that, it looked like it was going to kill someone. Yeah. I can't believe that they were going to do that. <laughs> but I, I cannot believe. And I also can't believe they messed it up so badly. But like Adam, I was relieved that it didn't happen. Mm. It po- quite possibly saved his life. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible looking spot. Plus, that table has a better use about five minutes later yeah. on. Fire extinguishers. They use a powder fire extinguisher. Which are really messy to clean Which up. Which are incredibly messy, yeah. I was say, later on, they, they, they stop using that and use the CO2, CO2 one, yeah. which looks as impressive but causes less it's mess. It's more comical. You, you get, yeah, you get that plume that really travels around the ring later on, don't you? Mm, Did yeah. you notice it? Like, it almost turns the corner. It would have really pissed you off if you were in the... In, in the crowd. In, yeah, in those it. rows. 
Hawk puts a bin on Savio's head and then full-on whacks him in the face. Nice. Ahmed slams Farouk through the flimsy table mm. in just the most Ahmed Johnson manner and ever. I, I love that we're still in this time period as well where, like, monitors on the table, fuck it, leave him. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that probably won't hurt at all. <laughs> Massive LOD chance. Yeah. The nation tries to use a noose to hang Ahmed. This, I, I really don't want to ever see <laughs> a noose in a wrestling match. What yeah. about that time the big boss man got hung from the Hell in a Cell? I didn't really want to see it then. I mean, I like Hell in a Cells. Not when people get hung in them, though. It's just like, what are you trying to achieve by doing this? Hanging. Kill. Well, yes. But, <laughs> like, no. Like... You can't do that. You can't do well, that. You, 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 this is the problem. Is I know the guests are trying to get a bit edgier, but you've got young kids in the crowd, and if I had baby Scrivens there, <laughs> if I, like if I took him to, to a wrestling match, and okay, you expect to see a fair bit of violence and fighting, and although, you, you know, if you, if you know you're going to get a street fight, you know it's going to be a bit of... On the aggressive side. You don't expect to see somebody hung with a noose. Mrs. Scrivens might like it, though, because she likes the violent wrestling. Yeah, I'm not sure she'd like that. I just, I just don't think it's a nice image, and what? I don't think it does anything for the match. What about those tickets for you and Baby Scrivens you bought for CZW last week? Yeah, unfortunately we can't make it because it's, uh, it's in America. <laughs> Hawk gets hung also, but drags Farouk to the outside from the top rope. Yeah, he's not having any of it. D'Lo Brown tries to get revenge on Ahmed's kidneys, but Ahmed kicks him in the balls. Right square in the balls as well. Farouk gets the noose, but Ahmed forgets how hanging works and nobody has the other end. <laughs> Just putting that out there. There's a note here, or a bullet point rather, that says, No, D-Lo, don't stay in the ring alone with Ahmed. This will not end well for you. <laughs> Poor D-Lo Brown has had his head kicked in by Ahmed Johnson so many times. I presume this is actually why they give him a full-time job and roster spot, because it's like, yeah, we should probably just do something for it's this It's almost kid. like he's building up credit but, yeah, in yeah. order to gain a, a job. LOD hit the doomsday device to crush, and Ahmed and Hawk plank him with animal covering for the pin and the win at 10.45. Again, I was discussing this with Adam earlier. It is it's seemingly a member of PG-13 that hands Ahmed Johnson the plank. Really? Mm, yeah. yeah. I noticed this. It's, it's from the back of the ring as we're looking yeah. at it. But it, it's almost like someone realised the plank down here, Ahmed Johnson should have it. Oh, fucking <laughs> hell. He's about to do something. He's not the, got his plank. The big ending. We've not got the, it's the one thing we didn't want to happen. The plank. Who's got the plank? Who? Give it Ahmed. Vince quote of the night, it's not over, although officially it is. <laughs> Post-match, Ahmed Pearl River plunges D'Lo, thankfully not on an automobile, and the LOD and Ahmed hit a double doomsday advice to murder PG-13. I've got to say, like, you don't like the look of that. You think it looks very dangerous, but I thought it looked awesome. Every yeah, doomsday or- device looks dangerous. Awesome, but really dangerous. It's basically... Turning a man inside out via the neck from about <laughs> six foot in the air. I thought it looked spectacular. <laughs> yeah, that's why it looks really dangerous. My final bullet point on this match is two words: Ahmed's buttock. I knew you were say that. Yeah, I've got Ahmed's buttock is out. It's it's <laughs> it's managed. To, it's remained elusive for most of this match, <laughs> but in the celebration, he has his right buttock firmly out. His buttock remained elusive. <laughs> 
So, booking a street fight after an I Quit match could be probably considered pretty crappy booking, but you know what? This is fucking amazing. <laughs> it actually works, and it's such a different match to the one before it in so many ways that they don't clash despite being next to each other. Yeah. And against every single possible expectation anyone could have ever had of these six men in this match, <laughs> it just was good fun. Unless, I guess, you were PG-13 or D'Lo Brown. And it's more than likely the best crush match in existence. Yeah. I, I thought this this was good fun. I think that is the best way of describing it. It's all over the place. Story? There is no story. But there's a plank in a kitchen sink and six <laughs> bastards kicking each other's heads in. So it's fine. You see, I think you guys were a lot higher up on this match than I was, I'll be honest with you. It's, I didn't hate it. But one of the things that was quite nice, it was quite brief. Yeah. For, for a six-man... It's ten minutes, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's what it needed to be yes. after the... I quit match. No, no, yeah. I, I think that was fine. I think, for me, the fact that it was so all over the place, it was very difficult to follow. Like you say, there's there's no storyline. After you've just come out, such a, a storyline heavy. It is such, again, I'll use that phrase, chalk and cheese, just because somebody said the lights the other week. That, I don't know, it's... I didn't hate it. Like, I didn't hate it. And a lot, I certainly liked some of the spots, but I did not like the use of the noose. I, I think it's the wrestling equivalent of a palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're saying that this is a lemon sorbet? Yep. <laughs> Ahmed Lemon Sorbet Johnson. It, 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 this is not... A Chicago Street Fight is not a palate cleanser. <laughs> it might be like, in CZW. It, it, this is just like a sandpaper to the tongue. <laughs> and, and inside of the mouth. A palate aggravator. <laughs> Maybe it smooths it off. Palette sander. I can legitimately see that when we get to the end of this timeline and we we do a show, something like the you know our personal ten best matches from the show, I can see this certainly being on my list and being part of the discussion. It won't be on my list. I really like it. Might might just be like 10 Hogpoint matches. (laughs) (laughs) And this would just be such a great point to end the Ahmed Johnson fruit feud, wouldn't it? Does it end it? No. No. Oh, for fuck's sake. It'll probably go for another four years. Because this (laughs) this has been very protracted, right? Ahmed's been injured for a long time, but this is a nice blowout to it. Ahmed's won, the nation have been defeated. Jobs are good, right? No. Oh. The bleep button has been used on several occasions in the show's run, but Moment 31 was the first thing ever censored on the podcast and comes from Episode 2, SummerSlam 1993. Vince plugs the WWF hotline with Perfect yes. and the One Two Three Kids, so you know, get spending your fifty cents a minute to so, hear so an interview you, with. You ring up the WWF hotline. But what what do you get on the other end of the wrestling hotline? <laughs> Hi, Stuart's here. Welcome to Intermission. What happens here is a pretty upsetting discussion about the potential contents of a WWF phone line. So while we have that conversation, enjoy this musical interlude.
Exactly that. You get people. Do you get, co- do you get wrestling commentary, or do you get the one, two, three kids saying how much he hates the million dollar man? What's the. Stop interrupting me and I'll answer the question. <laughs> Stop asking the question eight different ways and I'll answer it. <laughs> You're not answering quick enough. Yes, you get exactly that. You get, <laughs> you get people cutting promos down the other end of the fucking line. Did you have a call? No. <laughs> was it available in this country? I don't believe so. And yes, it was something ridiculous per minute. It's a staple of mid-90s wrestling. Pay and hear this. Latterly, you'll occasionally get clips on pay-per-views of, oh, look at Stone Cold on the hotline. Ring this number, pay $5 a minute and listen to what he's saying. There's a match going on <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I don't care anymore. <laughs> Words with D and G close together are quite difficult to say, aren't they? If you agree with this statement, you'll definitely sympathise with Paul Scrivens. Moment 30 comes from episode 38, In Your House, International Incident. Chris Walsh, Alan Partridge versus Tony Hares in a second series contract on a pole match. <laughs> Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> you were being all smug then, weren't you? Do you want to have another crack at that word there? Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in tragedy. <laughs> what? Where is this what is wrong from? with you? It, it, it's just a normal word. It's the G and the D thing that's confusing you, isn't it? it it's the reading thing. You know what? I need to read it to a dog. What? A- apparently, they're less judgmental and people read better in front of dogs. <laughs> They're doing it in some primary schools now. We should do another podcast where you just supplant us two with dogs. <laughs> just like a, a Jack Russell and Labrador. <laughs> there'll, there'll be less swearing, at least. Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in tragedy. <laughs> Try and sing it like the Bee Gees song. Or Steps. Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in a tragedy. <laughs> tragedy. 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 Is that right? Yes. Yes. Tragedy. When the feeling's gone and you can't go on. (laughs) I can't go on. (laughs) Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in tragedy. (laughs) 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 You got it wrong again. Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in a disaster. (laughs) Good thinking. Unfortunately, this five-star classic ends in an unfortunate incident. (laughs) As the BBC's head of programming died in an unfortunate fall. Needless to say... Alan had the last laugh. Fucking hell. Moment 29 comes from episode 94, WrestleMania 14, part 2. And this has Adam wondering how different his life would have been if he had murdered someone with a forklift truck. I have some reservations over the use of a forklift in in the match, but actually the fact that nobody was horrendously injured, presumably by it, means that it was all right and they got away with it. It's my second favourite use of a forklift in wrestling. After, after Brock, Brock Lesnar. Lesnar. After Brock Lesnar, he bins it into a crowd because yeah. he's driving way too fast. <laughs> and it, it looks amazing. He almost he tilts it onto a couple of wheels, I think. Yeah. I, I, well, my heart leapt into my mouth. Have you ever thought, tilted if, it? If, if, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. But if you tilt it off a ramp into a crowd, <laughs> you, you'd kill ten people easily. Have you seen... Because you occasionally get these videos on some like Facebook or YouTube where... It's footage from like a warehouse, and obviously somebody in the warehouse just catches like a bit of shelving wrong. Yeah, and, and clearly like half a million pounds worth of stock of something <laughs> fragile. Is... You, you, you can't be a forklift truck driver wor- worth your salt 
unless you've smashed at least a bit of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the problem is with forklifts, you've got to be very careful with them because they're incredibly stable front on, mm-hmm. but very, very unstable sideways. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's quite easy to tip them if you if you just drive them at a decent pace and turn the wheel pretty quickly, you will flip it over. Yeah. Someone should have told Brock Lesnar I, that. I mean, I, I've got a solution to that. If you say the very stable front on, have two fronts. Have a front on the side as well. <laughs> serious, yeah, yeah, good, serious suggestion. Good plan. I do. I've, I've forgotten about that Brock one because not only does he nearly crash it on his way doesn't down, he, doesn't he nearly he cl- catch some scaffolding? He, he climbs upon top of it, doesn't he? <gasps> yeah, and oh, then yeah. does like a lunatic leap off the top of the forks onto the big show. Yes, wow, mm. absolutely marvelous. We should do that match now. You know what I thought would would actually be a potential use of the forklift. And this, this, I know it's a bad idea and it wouldn't work. I'll, I'll preface <laughs> it with that. But I, I did think of a possible use for ladder. So you know how sometimes people kind of might get their arms trapped in it, kind of uh, across their back, kind of uh, stretched outwards horizontally? Yes. Uh, like they're going to do some kind of spinning around and knocking people over. Well, actually, if, if they had their arms kind of trapped like that and then a forklift kind of like pinned them against the wall, it would kind of trap them there and they wouldn't be able to move. Because it, it, it would be a bad idea, because obviously then it would make, make it really hard to get them in the dumpster. But I just think, like, as a use of a forklift and a ladder, I think it's a good one. Good thinking. They're, they're very dangerous bits of kit to be mm. using in a wrestling match. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yes. Do, do you think they actually considered, or even asked Terry Funk, have you ever driven a forklift truck before? Well, <laughs> I've, I've driven a horse. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much the same. If you got if you got a horse with fork sticking out its face, my, my, my forklift is sick. <laughs> I nearly killed someone with a forklift truck once. Did you? Tell yeah. us. I often think that my life could have turned out very, very different because I was only about twenty or twenty-one at the time, and I was working in a powder coating factory. And essentially, there was big metal frames that you had to put things on so they could go through painting baths and things like that. So it's pretty big. So the the it might be. About half the size of one of our sofas, this thing. But it's essentially like a big frame with lots of chains going off because you have to hang it up um, so that it can be dunked into different like vats of stuff. And I was just driving along through this, through this warehouse, this assembly line. I was going pretty fast and I was quite tired. I'd just done a night shift. And someone had clipped one of the chains properly onto the top of, onto the, top of the framework. So as I was driving along, it fell off and went under my wheel and flipped off basically a sofa-sized stack of metal to the left at about 100 miles an hour, and some guy jumped out the way of it. And if he hadn't have just seen out the corner of his eye and jumped, it would have killed him in a rather messy fashion. And I would have probably been sent to jail for manslaughter. Well, that's... Really, the story the entire podcast has been building towards. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, just one of those moments that I sometimes think back to, like a fraction of a second, like if he hadn't seen it, or if I'd have been in a slightly different position in the truck, then he would be dead, and I would have at least spent quite a while in jail. Mm. You, know know. The, you know the stories you tell, Paul? Like, I think Adam may have just gazumped them. Did the guy who jumped out of the way used to play football in goal in the 60s? No, he's an old guy called Matty. He jumped out of the way and said, Fucking hell, he nearly hit me with that. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
But most importantly, did you later go on to capture the WWF tag team titles? <laughs> I'm guessing not. <laughs> did you ever trap anybody in a dumpster with a forklift truck? No. No, Should I have. I smashed loads of stuff up with one, though. But that's a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> in at 28 is another moment from episode 44, Raw vs Nitro 4, and contains a future WWE Hall of Famer making a decision on how to look threatening. Back to whatever match was going on in the background, and both men tumble to the outside of the ring. Rocky and Mero throw Goldust back in the ring, so Crush and Lawler get themselves involved. Hunter Hearst Helmsley throws Wyndham back in the ring, and for no reason, the match is a double DQ. Well, I guess all the interference was a reason. Yeah. Yeah. It just ends. That's it. In a damp squib. Super babyface Rocky Maivia hits a flying crossbody to Crush and Goldust as the two teams brawl, and eventually the heels bail as the faces regroup in the ring. I've got to say, I didn't think that looked particularly clean as a move. I. I didn't think it quite went as planned. He certainly stopped doing that sort of stuff, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that doesn't form a part of his repertoire ultimately, really. The, the people's crossbody. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody should do that. <laughs> you, you had a particular note throughout this brawl, Adam. Was it about Mark Henry's trousers? <laughs> I don't believe it was. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Lawler who's goading him, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so Mark Henry's in this rather nice American flag shell suit. I wonder if him and Brad Armstrong shop at the same... <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe. Uh, and, and a hat. But, so in order to display that he's ready to beat up Lawler, he takes off his jacket. And then, <laughs> and then, wait, and then we come back, and he's not wearing his trousers <laughs> I understand what he's trying to do, but to stand in the runway like, and take your trousers off... <laughs> To look imposing at Jerry Lawler, it seems a bit backwards. I'd say take off the jacket, fine. Probably the hat. But, but leave your trousers did, did, did he have to take his shoes off and then put them back on again? I don't know, because it very cleverly cuts away to something else happening. Just when you come back, he's not wearing any trousers. Maybe he did it like sitting down on the chair. <laughs> He had to ask Jerry Lawler to stand there and wait while he took his trousers off. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. It's brilliant. Adam's been bleeped plenty. Stuart's been bleeped a few times, but Paul's only ever been bleeped once. Moment 27 is from episode 46, Survivor Series 1996, and features this very occurrence. We get the ominous cage music as Sid walks backstage toward the arena. I do love it when they do that. Mm, It was a really good shot, that. They did it for Sasha and Bailey at TakeOver, didn't they? that whole walking through the backstage with the ominous cage music. I think it looks particularly good with Sid because he's such a hulk. Yeah, and it just gives matches a great feel. Obviously, you can't do it every match or it would, you wouldn't care. But. No, I think that that music is very clever. It's kind of very fast heartbeat is kind yeah, of what, what it, I describe it? it. Yeah, And it does just get you in the mood, doesn't it? Sid's music hits and he enters to a decent pop, bumping fists with fans down the aisle and asking them, who who's the man? Who, the who man. exactly is the man? You the man. Yeah, it's... It's Sid, isn't it? Sid is the man. JR tells us that Shawn Michaels has made a lot of money beating up men bigger than Sid, and Vince laughs. <laughs> Sid has awesome pyro that spells out his name in the ring. That looks amazing. It's, it's on really a par good. with the Warriors face paint sort of pyro yeah. that he had. It's I, dead good. I think it might be slightly better because it's got more definition. It's it, got the sharp angles. Yes, I mean, I, I would say that for me, it's the second behind Adam Bomb's Mushroom Cloud pyro. <laughs> Which is the greatest pyro That will never ever. be topped. Yeah. 
at some point we'll have to draw up a list of our top five pyros. Yeah. yeah. JR tells us that it stands for suddenly I'm dominant. Huh? I'm not sure Sid would have come up with that himself, <laughs> if, I'm, no. if I'm honest. Stands for Sid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine well, if it was called Sydney. Well, actually, it's, it's, it's a... Isn't it? It's actually... <laughs> it is... No, 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 I'm not saying that, that is, but, but it is, and I'm, I'm fairly sure that that's an acronym for. <laughs> Devastated. <laughs> Don't put that in, because you've made it into something bad. <laughs> but... Well, you've made it into something bad, saying, see, that's pyro about. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not saying he's got a pyro about. <laughs> or he's got pyro about. Uh, I'm it's, saying it's that, just his name. It's just uh, uh, yeah. Sid. <laughs> but, it's, it's short for Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> we get, it. Cut that bit out. We get Sid chants from the crowd. I don't think they're chanting. WrestleMania 32 was so long it drove people, more specifically Adam, to drink. Moment 26 from episode 60 details the consequences of getting plastered at the biggest show of the year. Corey Burns. <laughs> How did our American bars stack up to the ones back home? I'll let Adam take this one. American bars are amazing. I was put that. I like a good English pub, but the American bars, you've got a huge range of beers, just absolutely amazing. And particularly when we went to the Ginger Man, the range of ales was absolutely superb. All the beers are, you know, fresh and from clean lines and everything tastes like it should mm. the bar staff are very knowledgeable about the beers so if you can go in there and like you know you've got 50 draft beers so i'm looking for something like this they'll be able to recommend the right style of things for you and obviously they're full of those uh, the american craft beer movement that's happening mm. so wonderfully hopped pale ales and things it was yeah absolutely brilliant yeah I mean, in terms of bars in Britain, I, one of my favourites was when I was at university in, in Norwich. There was, a, there was a cracking bar. It had pool for 40p, and <laughs> it had a dartboard with an electronic scoring system. It also had that barmaid that used to lech on there, right? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but it also had a dog, and... <laughs> and did good chips, and it was £2 for a pint, which at the time was not bad. So, so great. Mark Paul, who got the most plastered? I guess this is a, a theme now. I probably drank ten times what Stuart did. Oh, oh, after WrestleMania, Adam was a bit drunk, because basically there was Adam, myself, Dan, Tom, and Paddy joined us for several events, and Tom had gone off and bought Adam like a double neat whiskey. He went off and bought two double measures of whiskey, and it cost him $60. Wow. I know, like pricey, pricey, the drinks at WrestleMania. So when we were then walking back to the car park where our bus was after WrestleMania... I I think I'm actually going to tell this because I think you'll you'll just, like, say it in a bad light. What happens was I was quite tipsy, decided to vault a gate that moved, got my feet trapped in it and cunted myself on the floor. And I just turned around because some guy goes, oh, is that guy all right? And I turn around <laughs> and it's Adam on the floor. I was like, is, is he okay? And he was like mumbling to himself. So I was I think, like, yeah, I, he's fine. I think I was laughing to myself because <laughs> even from my perspective, it must have been comical. <laughs> that <sounds> brilliant. <laughs> uh, oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> Speaking of raw booze... In at 25 is a moment from episode 40, SummerSlam 1996. Up next is 
Jake the Snake Roberts versus Jerry the King Lawler. Shall I leave for this one? (laughs) Following his non-appearance at International Incident, Jake the Snake Roberts called in during the match between Mark Merrill and the Goon on the following evening's Raw, where he was the subject of more abuse from Jerry the King Lawler, as well as guest commentator Stone Cold Steve Austin. On the 27th of July Superstars, Aldo Montoya pinned Jerry the King Lawler by hitting Lawler with a DDT. Montoya would go on to dedicate the victory to his mentor, Jake the Snake Roberts. I say mentor, Lawler instead claimed that Montoya was Roberts' designated driver. That seems odd that Aldo Montoya has a win over Jerry Lawler in 96. Mm. On the July 29th Raw, Lawler issued a challenge for a rematch, which Aldo accepted in what I'm pretty sure is the only mic time I've heard him have in approximately two years. <laughs> Lawler Montoya 2 would open the August 5th Raw, but not before the King got in another few minutes of verbal abuse towards Jake Roberts. Lawler would pin Montoya clean, and after the bout would pour raw booze down the throat of the Portuguese man of war. Raw booze? What's that? I don't know, it's Vince's world view of... Alcohol, alcohol that's not diluted. A raw alcohol. Jack Daniels isn't raw alcohol. No, no, that'd be like, um, you know... Just ethanol. ethanol. Yeah. Yeah. And if you'd have done that... He'd be dead. Yeah. Yeah. On the August 12th Raw, Jake Roberts briefly called into the show claiming that he would use his demons to defeat Jerry Lawler, with Lawler quite bluntly retorting, I will not be beaten by an alcoholic. <laughs> Which was slightly less comedy than his normal interactions, Anytime you become an addict or an alcoholic, there's so much shame and guilt involved. He had a problem and he drank it. <laughs> but the bottom line for me was, is whenever I got to a point that I didn't want to live anymore, where I wanted to die. You know, when most people get drunk, they see snakes. But when snakes get drunk, they see Jake Roberts. <laughs> My hope is, is that uh, I'll be able to help some of the younger athletes. Well, they don't have to make the same mistakes that Jake Roberts made. People like you are supposed to turn the other cheek, right? Yeah. Let's see if you turn the other Hey! You see, what I believe in is an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Aldo doesn't even drink. Smell the oh. oh! Jerry the King Lawler reveling in his victory. One thing I promise you. This week, you'll be reaching out and saying, God, please help Jake get off of Jake, please don't put that snake on me. God, help me. A hype package plays for the Jake Roberts-Jerry Lawler feud. In the arena, we welcome Mark Henry as Bullcook Kid goes ape shit. Yeah. And yeah. Mark comes out to Lex Luger's SummerSlam 1993 theme. Wearing like a really white kind of suit. And a flat thing. cap. He's an Olympic star. He even gets fucking fireworks. Like, did anybody else get fireworks? No, Sean, didn't he? Well, yeah. But anyone else? No. Also, what was it you said about Mark Henry working well as testing the colour spectrum of your television or something to that effect? Oh, because he's like, couldn't really say this. No, you can't. No, you can't say this. What we should say is, a few months ago, <laughs> or probably a few weeks ago, actually, we went to TK Maxx and we saw his salmon jacket. Did you buy it? It was too it, small. It was too small. He, like Adam tried to put it on and he, he just actually physically couldn't get it on. So I'm sure it's not Mark Henry's actual salmon jacket, but it was the same jacket, wasn't it? Yeah. Obviously, shops at TK Maxx. I, I, I could get that jacket, and then I'd say that I was retiring. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and you'd both believe me. And then it'd be and a swerve. And then, yeah, then I'd batter you, Stuart. <laughs> Shout, that's what I'd do at you. 
He joins the announce team but can't put on a headset correctly. <laughs> well, no, he puts the, the kind of thing that should go over the top of your head, over his neck, like the back of his neck, and therefore the microphone is basically pointing upwards. <laughs> and um, Jim Ross, I say, maybe you want to put your mic just down there a bit. He shakes Vince's hand and he shakes Jim Ross's hand. Uh, but he doesn't shake Perfect's hand. And Perfect has a go at him, like, well, you're not going to shake my hand. And instead of just saying... Making out that Perfect's the heel. He yeah, yeah, piss off, you're a heel commentator. He just says, oh, sorry. And just <laughs> and shakes his hand. Mark Henry, I will say, is just brilliantly naive <laughs> yeah. here. And we'll get into the line of the night. But this match, yes, welcomes to the podcast Adam's favourite wrestler 17 years from now, Mark Henry. <laughs> But one of my least favourite wrestlers for all the time going up to that. Henry, a lifelong wrestling fan, would have a successful career in powerlifting, lifting lots of heavy things and setting records that I'm <laughs> trusting are correct on Wikipedia. <laughs> he made his first WWF appearance on the March 11th, 1996 episode of Raw, where he press slammed Jerry Lawler. After Henry received a ton of media coverage in the run-up to his appearance at the 1996 Olympic Games, Vince McMahon offered him a 10-year contract. Wow. Yep. Is this the first 10-year contract that we've seen? It's certainly for someone who has no record of doing anything ever related to wrestling. You're not a wrestler, but you're quite strong and you're in the Olympics, so it's a 10-year contract. And the media know who you are. Yeah. Unfortunately, Henry would suffer a back injury and perform nowhere near his best during the Games, ultimately finishing 14th overall. Oh, right. Footage would air on the August 5th Raw, announcing that Henry had signed with the company. Henry would make a couple of house show appearances, giving Hunter Hearst Helmsley a kicking, with this essentially being his full-time debut. He's a Mm. member of the roster now. Henry will go on to have an illustrious WWF career, sleeping with old women, fathering a hand, losing his virginity to his sister, fondling a transsexual, overcoming sex addiction, spending a shit ton of time injured, winning the World Heavyweight Championship, (laughs) and wearing a salmon jacket. (laughs) And cutting that promo, which is still... Mm. Just amazing. I have to say, though, I think my favourite Mark Henry moment that, that, that's legit, that I really think is generally a really good moment, is it, it's not long after the whole Cena feud, and he comes out, and this is when the Shield are, like, running roughshod on everyone. Oh, yeah, I and, remember this. And kicking shit out of everybody. And he's cutting a promo, and they come down to the ring, and obviously he's on his own, but they, they like, circle him around the ring, and he's just like, yeah, fucking come on, then. Mm. And it, it's just a good moment. I and mean, I, I really genuinely think that was the start of something good, but I think then he got injured, and I've not n- seen nothing that. came of it. it. It's from just a random episode of Roaring. It goes nowhere, but I, I really liked it. There has been some really good Mark Henry stuff in, in recent years. I think he's one of those people that it took him a good, like, 10, 15 years to become all right. But I, I liked his, his Hall of Pain stuff. I love his... You know, the entrance with the camera shot of his back, yeah. where he walks out. And in fairness to him, like, it does take the majority of wrestlers that kind of time span to, yeah. I guess, to develop what they do and perfect what they do, but most of them... I wouldn't don't... say it takes people 17 years. <laughs> well, well, Adam kind of banded around yeah. kind of 10 years, but, okay. but as, as, kind of, as a starting point, the problem is Mark does all of that learning in front of everyone. Yes, yeah. true. So his developmental time is spent in main events on Raw, that sort of stuff, <laughs> which is which is weird. According to Wikipedia, Henry can be considered legitimately one of the strongest men in history, holding a ton of weightlifting records for a performer confirmed to be drug-free. Hmm. So there are people, I think, that have broken some of his records but haven't been drug-tested. Okay. So he kind of still has a footnote that, yes, that record stands because he was drug-tested. Hmm. Yeah. 
So the that's world's strongest man thing isn't as much bullshit as you might think it is. Okay. Yeah, good, on, good on Mark Henry. Taking a break from the list before we count down moments 24 to number one, here's a collection of ten of the best show intros. Tonight contains material of a graphic nature. Viewer indiscretion. <laughs> I mean, discretion is advised. Hi, I'm podcasting superstar Paul Scrivens with an important message for all the WWE universe. New generation podcasters are professionally trained reviewers. The pay-per-views we watch take years of counselling to forget and to discuss safely. I urge the entire WWE universe not to try to copy what we do on the show, at home or at school. Stay safe. Don't try this. <laughs> Give me all the difficulties. Duke shouldn't be a hard word to say, should it? It isn't. Duke. 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 Who doesn't say Duke? It says Duke. Duke. You can say Duke if you want. Duke. Okay. Duke or Duke? Whatever's easiest for you, Scrivens. No. But what is it? It's four letters. Duke. Duke. It's... 
Is it? No, what is it? Duke the Dumpster. Duke, okay. There is a D. Duke. Scrivens. 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 It's been six months. Scrivens. Do you know what today is? Yeah. Sold out day. It depends on my evaluation. How are you feeling? Fine. Any nightmares? No. Any hallucinations? No. None. What about the mathematical thoughts? All gone. These are sour mix. They're a very powerful sugary sweet. It's imperative that you take two of these a day. Two, two bags? Well now, for me to officially grant your release, you must promise me one more thing. You must avoid the people and the places that trigger your mathematical impulses. Can you agree to that? Yeah, I can do that. Great. Do you have somebody who could come pick you up? Hey, brother, how'd you feel? What's up, man? So, what's next? Bro, let's just get out of here, man. So, like, do I still got a job? Well, there's been an invitation for us to return to WCW. But it's not like it was before. What do you mean? From what I'm hearing, it's a much darker place. Sorry, I can't speak now. It's going to be another name that defeats, but this could be a long question section again. Richard Query. After realising Scott Stein is a mathematical prodigy... <laughs> is that another word on the band list? <laughs> prodigy. Prodigy. Richard Query. After realising Scott Stein is a mathematical prodigy... <laughs> Why can't I say that? Prodigy, 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 prodigy. Richard Query. After Adam shuts up. <laughs> Richard Query. After realizing Scott Steiner is a mathematical prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you laugh and, and giggling is making it worse. Shh. Richard Query. After realizing Scott Steiner is a mathematical. <laughs> Richard Query. After realising Scott Steiner is a mathematical genius. <laughs> Hire psychologist Sean Maguire. Robin Williams from Good Will Hunting to help him work through his problems and realise his potential. <laughs> you probably need to do that again without us pissing ourselves through it. No, I can't do it again. I think you're just going to have to leave it with the lads. <laughs> just, you'll, you'll just have to put in a couple of those other ones to explain the joke. So just loop me saying prodigy. <laughs> prodigy. 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 Okay. <laughs> Richard Quarry. After realising Scott Steiner is a mathematical prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Quarry. After realising Scott Steiner is a mathematical prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> so what? 
thought it was about right, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it was still wrong. Oh, sorry. Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I know it's wrong, but I can't tell the difference. <laughs> prodigy. Prodigy. Richard Quarry. After realising Scott Steiner is a mathematical prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> In 2013, a crack podcast unit was sent to watch King of the Ring 1995 by their listeners for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to iTunes and SoundCloud. Today, still wanted by the audience, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else will watch it, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the NGP team. figured to try and sell our t-shirt we'd just get you to cut austin's promo as as yourself so I've, I've written you a little thing there do you want to have a go at it as myself as yourself okay you sit there and thump your calculator and say your times tables and it didn't get you anywhere talk about your prime numbers talk about pi 3.14 to two decimal places scrivens 3.14 says i just did your maths all of it <laughs> all you gotta do is go and buy a cheap T-shirt from newgenpodcast.bigcartel.com and get back some of the equations that you had in your prime. Pink tights? What the hell is all that about, Brett? This ain't no ballet class. Sunglasses and sparklers? What a load of crap. So, Brett, you're, you're coming back to continue a legacy. No. Stone Cold's going to make your comeback a living hell. So you can start begging for some mercy right now. You will beg for mercy. I think you're not going to find it. That you're completely pathetic. You're the best there is. Son, what? you're looking at the best that there is. And Austin 3.16 rules. Because that's how you pronounce it. I will kick your pink and black ass. I don't say that lightly. All over the garden. I'm going to end your legacy. You will beg for mercy at Madison Square Garden. You know, Brett, the whole world knows you quit the WWF because you lost to Shawn Michaels. The pretty boy, you quit. the boy toy, kicked your ass all the way back to Canada. You couldn't face yourself, and you damn sure couldn't face your fans if you actually had any. You ran away in shame. You should have picked another time to come back, probably. Uh, oh, I ain't no sexy boy. When the bell rings and, and it's time to get down to business... Oh, I don't dance. I'm going to take seven years of frustration and being pissed off. Think about it like this, Brett. Out on your you ass. Can finally go home 
look yourself in the mirror and get a little peace of mind because you will know that you were indeed beaten by a real man. Does Mrs. Scrivens go through your phone search history? I don't know. She goes through my phone occasionally. But fuck. Check you're not having an affair. I think she just gets bored. I don't think she's. I don't think she suspects me of having an affair. I don't think she warrants me interesting enough to have an affair. Um, <laughs> go ask me on a really cheap mobile phone and a SIM only contract, and we'll start sending him sort of dirty messages. Yeah, but when I get those dirty messages, I'll just save that number as Stuart and Adam. I send them all the time. Yeah, and I'll just save it. As yeah, yeah, but then at, at one point, Mrs. Scrivens will have your phone, and a message will come through. Saying a up big knob scribs or something like that. Yeah, but but if I know it's you, tell her you're recording a podcast again. Yeah, but you know if if she sees that and gets horrified, and you say, "Well, that's just Adam and Stuart," she'll just think, "Well, that's of course that's what he's going to say." Yeah, to throw her off the scent. So in in in, in many ways, you fucked yourself. Yeah. No, I I really don't think I don't think that's a problem. Granted, you're the most unlikely person that's ever lived to have an affair, but it could still happen. I like that you took that as a compliment. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's because of his upstanding nature. and Because I'm vital, but good. Good day. You're listening to the New Generation Project podcast. I'm Paul Scrivens. Whom do we have on line one? I'm listening. Hey, Chico. The bad guy has got a problem with a golden man. This guy is sending letters to Razor Ramon. I need to know how to get him off my case. Well, I would consider my alternatives for ring attire. Have you ever tried a different coloured pair of pants? mentioned in your book that it was originally scheduled to be your brother Bruce that turned on you at Survivor Series 93. How did that end up getting changed from Bruce to Owen? I changed it because Bruce was the shit and Owen was great. If Ric Flair and Arn Anderson offered you a briefcase full of money, would you take it? Mongo certainly would, but did his dog. Moment 24 is from episode 35, The Great American Bash, 1996. We cut to the aisleway where Liz and Woman wander out holding a briefcase accompanied by Deborah, who has changed into some sort of lovely evening gown. Mm. It is a lovely evening gown. Well, why is it lovely? Well, it, it, it looks quite ornate, a nice colour, and it's got a titty window on it. Because she has changed clothes, Dusty doesn't know who it is. <laughs> what, what I don't get is, why has she changed? Because she switched allegiance to the flare camp, obviously, and you have to be dressed in a lovely evening gown. Fair yeah. enough. Tony speculates what is in the briefcase. Deborah shows it to Mongo, who opens it to find a horseman shirt and a ton of money. Deborah's reasoning is money, money, money. Yeah, can't disagree. But I like the way they put the T-shirt on top. Well, that, that, that's the primary <laughs> yeah. goal, is that T-shirt. There's probably like 50k in there, but look, you get a T-shirt. <laughs> I've got it in your size and everything. From the ring, Green looks at Mongo, and Mongo nails him in the head with the briefcase to a well, pop. It's not quite the head, it's more the back and shoulders. Okay. 
I love the way that it took Mongo approximately five seconds to decide, yep, cash, I'll betray my friend. Whack. (laughs) Flair covers green for the three at 2051, and Dusty wonders what the hell has happened here. (laughs) Macho enters the ring to protest, but Mongo grabs him and the horsemen attack. Flair whacks Macho with a briefcase. Mongo puts the horseman's shirt on and shakes hands with Flair and Heenan, and the horsemen and their women leave. Tony once again brings up the vital plot point that Mongo has sold out to money before, in case we forgot. Actually, really, really, really good fun. Yeah, because we've we've seen badly managed celebrity events, haven't we? Oh, yes. This was done pretty much as good as you could do it. It was certainly better than Celebrity Mania 11. (laughs) Is it more enjoyable than LT Bam Bam? Yeah, yes, I think probably. so, yeah. Although that wasn't a bad match. Yeah, I, that wasn't I, bad. I still I still maintain that was actually really good, but this is just done better. It's got more in it, more going on, so you can mask mistakes. Yeah, it yeah. was it was better planned out. And it's particularly for the, I think the length of matches stay in my interest. It's the longest well. match on the show, yeah. Yeah. Really, really good. Massive credit goes to Flair Anderson and Terry Taylor who helped train Mongo and Kev. Like I said, a ton of stalling, but there was plenty of interesting characters on the outside mm. which helped and when there was action for the most part, it looked good and played to the footballer's strengths. So, full marks all around, really. Is this the end of Kevin Green? No, he does crop crop up again. Okay. In 97 and I think again but, in 98. Well, it's a really good way of... You've, you've put Mongo in, he's got over with his dog on commentary, but then you need to get him over as, as a wrestler. Yeah. What better way than to shove him into the Four Horsemen in some sort of like dirty double-crossing convoluted plot yeah. line? Did his dog also turn heel? I'd like to think so. Well, did he accept a briefcase full of dog food <laughs> with, with, a, with a little horseman outfit? That would have been amazing. A little mini dog horseman if, t-shirt. If, if they'd have had to convince Pepe, <laughs> to, otherwise they're not going to get Mongo. Yeah. But also, who, who would he turn on? <laughs> bouncer from Neighbours. Also, if I were a wrestler, I would never, ever be involved, ever, 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 in a tag team match with or against Arn Anderson. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd, just, I'd steer clear of him and Flair, to be honest. Because, like, they're, they're, they're unreliable. <laughs> they're definitely it, an unknown quantity. They're either going to turn on you or turn on each other, which will then end badly for you. Are you writing their references? <laughs> <laughs> this is, like, literally the third tag match we've watched with Arn Anderson in. And every single time, like, he turned heel, then Flair turned heel to join him, then Mongo turned heel to join him and Flair. <laughs> It's amazing, but no, no, no yeah. I don't want to participate in that match. <laughs> Be aware. Yeah. So if we ever have to team up against them, I'm, I'm watching you two. Yeah. Who, who do you think would be the first to sell out to the Me. cash and the T-shirt? You. Yeah. You think you've got the least integrity of the three of us? I'd it's, go with that. It's not so much the least integrity. I think it is. No, I think it's more of a case that I'm, I'm quite gullible and I'm easily hooked into stuff. So... I'm quite easily kind of addicted to things like sweets and chocolate. <laughs> so if they give you a briefcase full of Haribo. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean like this, this is why I've, you know, I would never try a drug. Because if I'm addicted to Haribo, <laughs> imagine what would happen if I tried to smack. We jest, but I've had this thought myself, really, with Paul, is that I'm so glad that you've never tried any, any type of drug because I reckon you'd die within six months. Oh, I'm, I'm awful. I'm I'm so... Such an addictive personality. Part of that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Stone Cold is one of the most well-known wrestler monikers of all time, but it so easily could have been different if he had listened to WWF Creative. Moment 23 from episode 32, WrestleMania 12, reveals the other options Austin had for his ring name. So our next bout is Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Savio Vega. Isn't it Chili McFreeze? Our only major look at Steve Austin so far on the show has been his match with Ricky Steamboat way back at Bash at the Beach 1994. And, and his passionate speech at the Slammies, obviously. But, but also that Royal Rumble, which did we later find out some information about the Royal Rumble? Wasn't he supposed to be in for longer? But he fell out fell over out. the top, yeah. Because he had, was it Greasy Hands? Greasy Hands, like you. Or something, yeah. What had he been doing? Probably, yeah. Um... And he touched Armour Johnson, actually. <laughs> Austin's route here has been pretty well documented, so we'll just cover it briefly. Yeah. Following his feud with Steamboat and the influx of Hogan and his pals into WCW, Steve Austin became somewhat less of a priority to WCW's creative team than he had been. When injury forced the Dragon to retire from in-ring competition, the scheduled rematch with he and Austin at Fall Brawl 94 on September the 18th was abandoned. Austin was instead ordered by WCW Commissioner Nick Bonkwinkle to face Adam's other favourite... The Ultimate Warrior. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Oh, bastard. Austin proceeded to lose his United States title in 35 seconds. What? 35 seconds? Yes, in 1994, Hacksaw Jim Duggan beat Steve Austin on pay-per-view in 35 seconds. That must be the worst thing ever. When Austin suffered a triceps injury in May 1995, he was sidelined for a number of months, during which WCW Vice President Eric Bischoff famously fired Austin via telephone. While rehabbing his injury, he was contacted by ECW booker Paul Heyman, who was happy to have Austin solely cut promos on his TV show, even if he couldn't compete in the ring. Known as the Superstar, Austin feuded with the Sandman and Mikey Whipwreck over the ECW World Heavyweight title, but was quickly snapped up by the WWF. Seen as a decent in-ring performer, Vince McMahon hired Austin at the urging of both Jim Ross and Diesel. Okay, that's interesting. Diesel? I wouldn't have thought that. Austin debuted for the WWF as the Ringmaster, a name they had trademarked years earlier with nobody in particular in mind for the moniker, on the 18th of December Superstars defeating Matt Hardy. We saw the Ringmaster's run in the Royal Rumble, but Austin's time under this name was limited. Urged by the WWF to suggest a new alias for himself, Austin was inspired by watching a documentary on Mafia hitman Richard the Iceman Kuklinski and asked WWF creative for a name that resembled a sort of cold-blooded killer. The suggestions they offered back to Austin are also infamous. Fang McFrost. <laughs> Ice Dagger. Otto Von Ruthless. And Chili McFreeze. <laughs> oh my God, Chili McFreeze! <laughs> Can you just imagine how the course of everything changes? Well, that, that would kill the character. Yeah. You can't come out like Otto Von... <laughs> whatever, you know. Otto Von Ruthless. Yeah. Otto Von Ruthless is a terrible name. But can you not imagine, like, black trunks, black boots, bald head, goatee, glass smashing, 316, but the guy coming out is called Chili McFreeze. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I kind of can't wait until we do Mankind's debut as well, because the names they suggest for him are, are almost as good. Oh, I've not heard those. Yeah, the, the, there's a great selection there. Eric Ergon is one of them. <laughs> I know it's it's meant to be one of those sort of brainstorming sessions, but yeah. the fact that you'd even commit pen to paper is like, yeah, we should call this guy <laughs> Chili McFree. That's, that's an insult, isn't it, really? Not keen on any of these. <laughs> Austin took his name from a suggestion by his then-wife to drink his tea before it gets stone cold. Ah. And by the 11th of March Raw, Steve Austin was no longer the ringmaster. Instead, he was Stone Cold Steve Austin. You, you must be particularly fond of that, Adam. Well, because I really like tea. Yes, because you really like tea. I'm 
really like tea. Do you yeah. like stone cold tea? No, not generally, no. Do you I, like, I'm not a big fan of iced tea. Or, or chilli McFrozen tea. Chilli oh, McFrozen I tea. I like hot tea. Hot tea. <laughs> the renamed Austin took on Caribbean sensation, inverted commas, Savio <laughs> Vega. The Caribbean sensation. That's, how, that's what they call him, isn't it? The Caribbean sensation. On a side note, shown watching this match in the crowd was an Olympian named Mark Henry. Yeah. And on another side note, he wasn't either sat with an elderly lady or his sister. <laughs> the match ended in a double countout, but the two men continued wailing on each other after the bell, despite the officials' best attempts to break them up. When Steve Austin faced Aldo Montoya on the 16th of March Superstars, Savio Vega came down afterwards to stare down Stone Cold. The following week, with Savio Vega scheduled to compete in the semi-finals of the WWF Tag Team Title Tournament, he was in need of a partner due to the suspension of Razor Ramon. Roddy Piper held a random drawing, and who should be drawn as Vega's partner? Chili McFreeze. Chili McFreeze. It, but it's, <laughs> that, that sounds to me like it wasn't a true random pick. <laughs> I, I, I think it's... If there's one thing that I didn't want to happen. (laughs) This makeshift pairing would not progress in the tournament as Austin hit Vega with an axe handle off the top rope, leading to a pin by Skip. A final confrontation between Austin and Vega would air on the 30th of March Superstars, leading to this WrestleMania matchup. Again, not a tremendous amount of build for this one, and as we see, the match is kind of merely here as a backdrop for something else. Mm. Think Austin had it bad? Mick Foley may have had it even worse. Moment 22 is from episode 36, King of the Ring, 1996. It would be Jim Ross that pitched the hiring of Mick Foley to Vince McMahon. Agreeing to portray a character different from Cactus Jack, Foley was shown sketches of a Hannibal Lecter slash early Sabu-style mask and straitjacket outfit for a then-unnamed persona. Some early names pitched for the character. (laughs) Go on, then. We're ready? Yep. The Mad Crimmer. The what? The Mad Crimmer. What's Crimmer? I've no idea. Criminal? K-R-I-M-M-E-R. I've got no idea. Muskrat Jack. Leatherface. There is a Leatherface in Japan, isn't there? Yes. It's one in a famous film as well. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Scarface. Isn't there a film? (laughs) That's that's, that's a bad idea. Ear Man. (laughs) Ear Man is the best one. Helmut. (laughs) I stand corrected. (laughs) The Mutilator. Uh huh. Grimace. What? <laughs> Grimace. That's a terrible name. That is also Ronald McDonald's big purple friend. <laughs> is it? Yeah, the big purple blob thing that's Ronald McDonald's friend this is, is Grimace. Oh, Grimace. Yeah. I don't know if we've discussed this before, but were you guys also scared by Ronald McDonald's? Yes, as a child? you have discussed yeah. that. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> like, how, how, how did McDonald succeed as a company <laughs> with something that, that essentially. Terrifies a lot of your potential customers. I'm not done. <laughs> okay. Eric Ergon. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, Eric Ergon. Yeah, Ergon is one word, by the way. Mm. Almost like a knight. Herm Van Gogh. What? Ogre Van Gogh. So anything with Van Gogh. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Missing ear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Leech. Crag. Kraz, Kroll, Kroll, Metaman. Uh, that sounds silly. Lone Wolf. That sounds like a TV cartoon character. Odd Man. Uh, as does that. False Face. He Man. Gregor Mental. <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> Hector Hannibal. Hog Farm in Anthony. Moral Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dunphy did like shoplifting, didn't he? Yes, he did. Anthony Waddle Thompson got done for shoplifting. Yes, I think he was probably making an appearance on Ready Steady Cook (laughs) and forgot Forgot to pay. Yeah, forgot to pay for his bag of ingredients or something. (laughs) He's like, he did just steal some cheese or something, didn't he? Weird. Imagine being a security guard at Tesco's and having to stop Anthony Waddle Thompson from nicking your cheese. Yeah. Herman Lester. Oh, I like that. Mason the Mutilator. There you go. That's yeah. the list. That is a list of shit names. When you say WWE has like a creative department <laughs> and that's what they come up with. Well, let's not forget they also came up with them names for Stone Cold, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, what, I wonder, what are they paying these people for? I wonder if they do this deliberately just so that there's some good stories to tell. <laughs> in the future. In yeah. like 20 years' time. Think of the most silly names you can. Go on. Because I really wish at some point we'd have gotten to see Chili McFreeze versus the Mad Crimmer. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just imagine. What, what you want is you want some really big guy coming up to coming up in your company, saying, "We're working on a new character for you. What, what's your name going to be?" Hector. <laughs> the Mad Crimmer. <laughs> what the fuck is that? I don't know. Yeah. Or what? What were the other Stone Cold ones? I can't remember. The Ice Dagger. Otto von Ruthless versus Grimace. <laughs> Yeah, ice... that, that's the bottom line because Ice Dagger says so. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, Ice Dagger versus Eric Egon yeah. <laughs> doesn't quite have the same appeal as Stone Cold versus Mankind. No. The most recent moment on the list lands at 21 and comes from episode 95 Raw is War 5. The Attitude Awakens and sees Paul have a go at impersonating another newcomer to the WWF. We get a vignette for a new superstar heading to the World Wrestling Federation. (laughs) It begins with what can only accurately be described as sex noises and porno music. Yeah, I'd go with that. We pan across to a man in bed, seeming pleased with himself. He introduces himself to the ladies as Val Venus. (laughs) He says he's previewing his latest flick, Live Hard, and that Bruce Willis (laughs) has nothing on him. Venus says he's the real deal, all natural, and that the gift that he has, no other male on the face of this planet has ever been blessed with. When he penetrates (laughs) the World Wrestling Federation, all the ladies across the country will be squealing with delight. It ends naturally with the caption, Val Venus is coming. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting moment, really, isn't it? (laughs) At what point did the company turn into a company where someone said, shall make a porn star gimmick? And Vince went, good plan. Is that just, this wouldn't have happened a year before? Correct. And now things have, have moved in, in so much more of like an adult direction that they're actually thinking, well, you know what? Well, why not? I remember when I, when I used to watch it, and I just thought it was a male stripper because I don't think I saw any of these vignettes. I think I'd have only seen him probably on Heat. <laughs> yes, that's where he ended up. Yeah, it's a bit weird, but I did enjoy his promo <laughs> because every <laughs> couple of uh, <laughs> words he uh, <laughs> would uh, <laughs> have a. Uh, Chuckle <laughs> to uh, 
himself. (laughs) (laughs) Val Scrivens. Yeah. I'm not sure about that impression. But (laughs) but he does though, doesn't he? Like every couple of words, he he just has this little... It's very slow and methodical, yeah. With, With some chuckles. Uh-huh. These vignettes do run for a while, and I think at some point they do feature Jenna Jameson. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, certainly in 1998. Am I right in thinking that when he first comes on, he's kind of very well received by the audience? Yeah, yeah. He's, 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 <laughs> he's definitely bought in as a baby face. Yeah, uh, so you've got a baby face porn star whose main sort of thing is making porn videos with other people's wives. Yeah. And he gets like this massive reception like every time, so it does work. I think he tumbles quite quickly, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He also gets the the really amazing Titantron that's just full of like drills and like <laughs> or things, oil pumps, um, oil things. pumps and stuff <laughs> like that. Really, quite subtle imagery. <laughs> Trains going into tunnels and things. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you what's interesting about this then. So. The new generation is lamented for its kind of two-job superstars. So you have the likes of Bob, Sparkplug, Holly, Duke, the Dumpster, Drosy, and the IRS. But in its early stages, the Attitude Era isn't markedly different. It's just that the professions have changed. <laughs> instead of a bin man, you're a porn star. So yeah, instead of a race car driver, a bin man, and a tax man, we now have things like porn star and pimp. Like, <laughs> those are alternate careers for the wrestlers to have. Yeah, but, and I, but I guess, for a different age group, Yeah, I guess. and I guess blood-sucking vampire would be another one that, you know, you wouldn't have seen in the new generation, but you might have seen, like, you know, nuclear experiment. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure blood-sucking vampire is like a career choice. <laughs> well, in some ways, it might be. Is, Don't know. Is Undertaker the most successful career of any wrestler? Yeah, so so his in the early stages is definitely a two job gimmick, isn't it? As in, yeah, he builds coffins, he builds coffins and caskets. But by you know, I think by this stage he's like undead zombie wizard, <laughs> which again might be a two job thing. Well, it's kind of just getting promoted in the undertaking business, I imagine. I'm sure this whole piece is horribly dated by now, but I have to admit I did find it kind of amusing. It's it's hilarious because it's all double entendre and pun, and that's basically what everything is about it it's not double entendre it's it's just entendre, Single entendre. <laughs> there, there, there is no sleight of hand about it it is yes. a punch in the face like like the segment ending with just the screen filled with val venus is coming <laughs> is yeah like there's no double entendre there is there well, at least they didn't spell it with a u no, but they do, what is it, ultimately market a T-shirt for him that looks like it's jizz splattered on a T-shirt. Really? Yeah. You want to get one of those, Paul? No. Starting off the top 20 is a moment from episode 26, Baywatch versus Thunder in Paradise, and sees Paul lose his shit over Hulk Hogan and a certain method of transportation. Hogan says he's better with one eye than the other guy is with two. Yeah. Mm. But I, I love I love the way that this floating boat that's got this stealth mode must be the size of, you know, a, a decent-sized yacht. <laughs> it's, it it's not it's not like a small... If, if you're thinking speedboat, small, nip, nippy little speedboat, it ain't. It's a big speedboat. Speed boat. Also, it's got a voice like 
Michael's car from Knight Rider. I thought that the voice was like a cross between Ed 209 from Robocop and Stephen Hawking. Hogan's pal is smug about stealth working, but Hogan wants guns. And rocket launchers. Back to the woman and her kids sneaking around. Quick, stealth malfunction, radar vulnerable. Oh no. Hogan's pal wants to turn back, but Hogan says he isn't afraid of angry communists. It's the one thing we didn't want to happen. More sneaking by the woman and the kid, and they hide amongst some fruit. (laughs) On the boat... It's true, it's true. (laughs) On the boat, Hogan makes some rice in the microwave. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's it in my neck. (laughs) The voice of the computer is hilarious, and apparently thunder is amazing, and if anyone points a gun at Hogan anywhere, the ship will target them. (laughs) What have they designed? Paul's hurt his neck by sleeping funny and apparently <laughs> laughing really hard hurts him. That's really painful. Sleepy communists are shocked when Hogan's massive boat turns up. <laughs> Hogan's pal is called Brew and Hogan is called Spence, but for the most part I've just referred to him as Hogan. Hogan gets on some sort of jet ski, presumably not the same one that he buried in Baywatch. Yeah. Well, I've, I've put, we've already seen him on a jet ski today, but this time he looks annoyed when a rocket misses him, but does splash him a little bit. <laughs> he looks kind of stupid on this jet ski. Well, the he jet looks ski's, massive. Yeah, the jet ski's tiny, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, he looks really it's like, silly. It's like child size. Also, he's perfectly capable on his jet ski, and I mean, this is typical of any action film. He avoids like about 20 people shooting guns and rocket launchers at him. Yeah, he's taken on like a Cuban army on a jet ski, and he's still fine. And he's got no gun either. And it's not even just like swimming around. He's just riding in a straight line. But but then he happens just to ride in front of a boat and they decide to shoot the boat instead. (laughs) (laughs) He goes off shot and then comes back on it and it's all fine. (laughs) 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 Hogan spots the woman and the kid, but so do some communists who rush them away. Did the guy with the rocket launcher only have one rocket? Yeah, yeah because like that—that's him. He's done. Yeah. Hulk ditches his jet ski and avoids more gunfighter by simply being under the water. water. <laughs> Apparently, gunfire cannot penetrate about, water. About six inches under the surface <laughs> of the water. <laughs> <laughs> then he, he trashes their platform. He doesn't just he? pushes these massive wooden beams <laughs> that, by the way, are holding a house up. Yeah. <laughs> he pushes them apart with the power of Hulkamania. <laughs> There's, there's and the loads, communists fall in the water. There's loads of parts of this, which is just to sell Hulk Hogan as being like as strong as the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. It is quite ridiculous. In at 19 is another match review, this time from episode 63, In Your House, A Cold Day in Hell, and sees Vader teach Ken Shamrock how to... Mm, well, you'll find out. JR throws to highlights from the previous Monday's Raw, where Vader faced off with Goldust, and Ken Shamrock unleashed his own devastating brand of trash talk. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you, you shut up. He's like that girl in Donnie Darko. <laughs> Which one? The, the, the shut up girl. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Yeah, yeah that one. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen Donnie Darko? Um, I tried to watch it a bit and didn't like it, so I stopped. We cut to Todd Pettingill, who interviews Vader, who does a tremendous job of making everyone in the arena shit themselves. <laughs> that Vader promo is amazing. Holy fuck, he's scary here. Yeah. He gets a cool line about how Shamrock might be the most dangerous man in the world, but they said nothing about the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, it was, oh, yeah. 
I was playing with the boy. I was playing with the boy's mind. Yeah. He oh. just, he's a boss. He's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And apparently Shamrock knows nothing about pain. I, I believe you, Vader. I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fearsome. Doesn't, I don't know if it's Vader or Todd, or probably Todd who references Q8. This has done a lot for the feel of Vader, I think, at this time. This is someone that was so scary that they locked him up in another country. <laughs> Do you ever get that feeling like with Vader, we go through these cycles of like, he is clearly awesome and clearly really scary. And yet somehow they'll just do some stuff with him that just makes him feel not that way again. And then something will happen, like the Final Four match or yeah. assault in a foreign country. <laughs> and and it almost, you forget all the sort of non-stuff they do with him. He's, over his time there, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's so badly mismanaged. Mm. Just keep this guy looking strong. Don't have him in any sort of bullshit because he is absolutely fantastic and as, as that monster character, he's the best one that they've got. Up next is Ken Shamrock versus Vader in a no-holds-barred match. This bout was announced quite quickly on the April 21st Raw is War by Vince McMahon with Ken Shamrock joining the announce team to watch a video of Vader's guest appearance on Good Morning Kuwait. Instead of really addressing Vader, Charisma Ken would take the opportunity for some reason to challenge Mike Tyson, whom he deemed a bully. <laughs> Like the very best of this type of wrestling challenge, it goes absolutely nowhere, making me wonder why it ever happened. The WWF would air footage of Vader again on the April 28th Raw is War before a pretty decent Todd Pettingill-narrated promo package for Ken Shamrock. Wonderfully enough, it ended with Ken walking his dog. What? Great stuff. He's so dull, isn't he? And I I don't say that lightly because I like Ken Shamrock. I think he's really good, but this early... I don't know whether he's overwhelmed by now what he's in and it's so different from UFC and anything he's done before but he's so dull like I do wonder if he's just trying to come across as like icy cool and calm or he's just supposed to be like you know if they just said just be generic face Ken just just be yourself yeah just just, yeah, just <laughs> get in your zone he comes across like an encyclopedia salesman or something I don't know. <laughs> a really really fucking jacked up encyclopedia salesman <laughs> But by this one, it's it's the letter V. Vince would also clear up that there had been no response from Mike Tyson, R.E. Ken's challenge. Thanks, Vince. Vader would then come out for what can loosely be described as a match with Jesse James, but a more accurate description would be that Vader beat the ever-loving shit out of Jesse James. <laughs> On commentary, JR would call out Vader for being a bully and attempt to interview the Mastodon after the bout. Vader would refute JR's questioning as to whether he had felt em- he had embarrassed himself and the WWF. Vader would attempt to intimidate JR for his questions before Ken Shamrock interrupted and belly-to-belly suplexed Vader to a massive pop. Another video package building up Ken Shamrock as a modern-day gladiator, sadly without helmet, would air on the go-home 5th of May Rory's War, discussing Ken's troubled youth, his adopted father, his wife Tina and his four children. I'm not entirely sure these packages help Ken, if I'm honest. They're getting a bit boring. Is it like him doing his ironing or... Walking his dog. His, his actions speak louder than his words. Just start screaming instead, mate. You'll be fine. <laughs> Punch yourself in the head and have a good shout and, you know, that'll be fine. Following this, Vader would head to the ring to face Goldust, with Shamrock joining Vince and company for more quality guest commentary. After defeating the bizarre one with the Vader bomb, Vader would challenge Shamrock to get in the ring with him, angering Shamrock by spitting in his face. When Ken charged the ring, Mankind would appear from nowhere to attack the world's most dangerous man before Goldust made the save. Weird. <laughs> like, Goldust and Ken Shamrock. Weird. 
Bizarrely enough, Vader would interrupt the Undercover with Sunny segment on the April 10th Shotgun Saturday night after a lingerie-clad Sunny writhed around on a bed talking about how much she liked Ken Shamrock. Sounds pretty good. Announcer Brian Pillman would claim that Vader's interruption had caused Sonny to have, and I quote, a multi-orgasmic experience. (laughs) (laughs) Make Uh, of that what you will. I will. Howard Finkel brings us the rules of this upcoming match. They are as follows. Number one, no pinfalls. Number two, win by submission or knockout. Number three, standing eight count. After which JR immediately corrects him and says there's no standing eight count. Well done, graphics guys, or Vince, who probably changed his mind at the last second after (laughs) asking, what the fuck is a standing eight count? (laughs) Vader enters first. His Titantron has his scary, bloody face in it. Yeah, Vader looks cool as... JR hypes that Vader has had great success in this genre of matchup. Genre? Genre. I presume he means genre. No, we're all familiar with genres of matches. But, yeah, like, I, I, yeah, Vader has had great success competing against men. Like... (laughs) I fear for any woman that wants to compete against him. Oh, could you imagine? Shamrock enters next to a decent, yet nowhere near Ahmed Johnson-level reaction. He doesn't, however, have his sweet, sweet music yet. No, the the music sounded a bit odd. It was pretty generic. Yeah, dull. Maybe that's his thing. But he's got a nice dressing gown. Well, yes, his lovely red satin (laughs) dressing gown is excellent. Shamrock starts the bout by trying to take Vader down, but Vader backs into the ropes, which causes a break. Shamrock gets some stiff-looking kicks, a theory which is backed up by Vader's loud, Ah! <laughs> that, I think this... I missed that. It, you know what? Vader is a noisy wrestler as such, but the noises are normally more a noise akin to a bear. So I think this is where you realise that, because he kind of shrieks a bit. Yeah. I think, yeah, that he's actually being hurt. This isn't part of his character. That, that his, hurts. His character's kind of type thing, but this is more like Ooh. David Gower, Nasser Hussein, just put a chair yeah. on my foot. Yeah. <laughs> Vader swings at Shamrock from the corner, but Shamrock backs off and does some dancing that is a bit better than Billy Guns. Everyone's dancing is a bit better than Billy Guns. Vader gets a shot to Shamrock's gut and applies a waist lock, but Shamrock grabs a wrist lock, and once again, Vader bellows in pain. Mm. Shamrock gets another kick but misses on a further two, whereupon Vader backs him into the corner and hits his fists, but Shamrock escapes. Shamrock gets a waist lock and tries to lift Vader over, but Vader gets to the ropes. Shamrock leathers Vader with more kicks and takes Vader down after a waist lock, so Vader rolls to the outside, clearly in pain. Yeah. yeah. Vader wanders around the ring for a bit, and there's a very clear edit where all of a sudden he's back in the ring going for Shamrock. But again, Ken gets the waist lock and brings Vader over German suplex style. Yeah. It's impressive. It, it is. Vader lands on his shoulder but gets up quickly, so Shamrock forearms him in the face. JR brings up Ken's troubled childhood, saying that he was living alone in a car at the age of 10. Lawler gets him one of his harshest lines ever, talking about how Shamrock's adopted father believed Ken should have been born in gladiator times. The king quips, I agree, that way he'd be dead by now. Yeah, that, that's just not on. I, I thought it was quite brutal. A little bit. JR, to his credit, responds with, King, do you like gladiator movies? Which shuts Lawler right up. Vader once again rolls to the outside to get away from the world's most dangerous man, but when he re-enters, he gets some shots in on Shamrock. Vader whips Shamrock to the ropes and looks for a hip toss, but Ken blocks it and looks for a submission. Vader again quickly goes to the outside. Thinking he is conspicuous... (laughs) Vader moves his hand up to the side of his mouth and rather loudly says, Ease up. Ease up. 
subtle, Vader. I never noticed that shit, so that tells you how blatant this is. Right, yeah, I mean, I noticed that. <laughs> so that tells you how blatant it is. But also, I think there was, there was a bit more carry-on with the ref after that, trying to, try, you know, convey the message like he couldn't hear. But, <laughs> but what is interesting is, it's clearly it didn't work. <laughs> the loudest instruction that we've ever heard in any match. Yeah. Shamrock does not ease up. He just carries on going. Back in the ring, Vader swings for Ken, but Ken responds with kicks and forearms. Shamrock gets Vader in a front face lock, but Vader tosses him away. When Ken reapproaches his foe, Vader hits a whopper clothesline mm. that would bring a tear even to Bruce's eye. Yeah. And that's not even the worst one in this match. <laughs> it gets a reaction. Vader looks to apply an armbar, but doesn't really cinch it in, instead choosing to just rest his weight on Shamrock. Shamrock chances Ken is down. Mm. Is he over? I think he is. Do you think Vader's trying to tell him something while he's got him in this move? Yeah. Ease up. He's just yeah. like, ease up. Ease up! <laughs> you <laughs> bastard. See, I don't know if it's over. I'd say he gets a reaction. I think it's too new to be that over in that sense because it's the. I think at that stage it's the idea of a person rather than the person yeah. themselves that gets right. over if, if they are. He's been put across as a very dangerous, a very boring person. <laughs> The world's most dangerous slash boring man. <laughs> Shamrock gets to his feet and brings Vader down, applying an armbar. He moves into a triangle choke. It might not be. I don't know MMA submissions. Vader gets to his feet, though, and throws Shamrock off. Vader lifts Shamrock up for a suplex, making an almighty grunt, and drops Shamrock to the mats outside for a big reaction. Yeah, that was impressive. I that get was, the yeah. feeling that was one massive fuck-off receipt. Mm. Yeah, but just stop. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Vader follows to the outside and sends Shamrock face first into the steel ring steps. JR notices Vader has a bloody, possibly broken nose. It, it, to be fair, it's a minor trickle. Vader once again sends Shamrock face first into the steel steps. Shamrock fights back with fists, but Vader delivers one of his own to send Ken packing. Vader rolls Shamrock back into the ring and looks for an Irish whip, but Shamrock grabs the ropes. Eventually, Vader makes him cooperate and Ken hits the turnbuckle hard. Vader looks for the ankle lock, and Shamrock struggles to escape it as more chants pick up. Lawler is disturbed by this, claiming that Richmond, Virginia is proof that evolution can go in reverse. <laughs> I thought that was a clever line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vader transitions into a rear choke, but Shamrock rolls out of it. Vader hits more punches in the corner and whips Shamrock across the ring, proceeding to hit a big avalanche splash. Vader punches at Shamrock and slams Ken to the mat. Vader heads to the second... No, wait, top rope, and dives off for a moonsault, but misses, but, sort of. Nice-looking nice moonsault, But it was though. cool, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Ken sort of doesn't entirely roll out of the way. Yeah. Shamrock hits hard kicks and forearms to Vader, making his comeback. Shamrock slams Vader out of the corner and hits what I would describe as a knee DT, locking in a submission on the knee. Yeah. Mm. Vader gets to the ropes. Ken kicks away again at Vader, taking the big man down and applying a single-leg Broston Crab. Again, Vader makes the ropes. Vader backs into the corner where Shamrock hits several stiff knees and forearms. And I mean stiff, and I mean several. Yes. Vader appears to try and defend himself and bat Shamrock away. And in his head, he's thinking, Ken, calm down. Ken, ca calm down. I said, calm down, Ken. I swear, if you don't calm down, Ken... And then he fucking wallops Shamrock around the side of the head with the mother of all clotheslines. Oh, it, it just goes down like like a like a sack of potatoes. That that whole sequence that for me is the best part of the match, and it and it's the the realism of it. 
yeah. that like Shamrock really goes for it. I don't think it's realism. I think but, it's real. But he's not got the fucking message. Not only has, has Vader shouted at him to stop and then lobbed him over the top rope and he's given him a good clock, he's still kind of going for it and there's a big sort of like flurry of offence mm. and, and it looks pretty nasty. I think Lawler's common commentating on it and saying, oh, he's hit him again, he's hit him, oh, they hit him right in the face. And he is, he's actually whacking him in the face. Yeah. And, yeah, just Vader's reaction, you can kind of see him just getting belted around the head and just kind of, like, warming up for something. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking spanners hit him. It was was a real kind of, like, wow moment for me, but I'm not quite sure how this came about. So is this... Ken trying to shoot on Vader? Is this Ken not knowing his own strength? Is this Ken not knowing how wrestling works? What, what's going on? Well, see, that's a bit of a funny one because obviously he has a background as a professional wrestler. He was a wrestler before he was an MMA fighter, as we discussed when we introduced him. But I do get the feeling that the idea was put Ken in the ring with Vader to get him to calm down. Because if yeah. you put him in there with anyone who isn't as legitimately tough as Vader, he's going to fucking murder them. Yeah. Should have put him in with Rockabilly. Yeah, they probably should. Well, they did on that episode of Raw, didn't they? But he didn't have an actual match. He had a proper match. Yeah. But bloody hell, needless to say, this gets a reaction. As the crowd realise they've seen something perhaps a bit more real than perhaps they're used to. And yeah, hands down, we've done what, like... 63 episodes and, and a bunch of other stuff of this podcast and that is hands down the stiffest thing we've seen I mean, yeah and that includes the road warriors there was the aspects of me thinking is this trying to get a bit of ufc realism into it or is that just no no I, i'm gonna go with the theory that it's put ken in the ring with vader get him to calm down and ken isn't quite getting the message like adam said yeah okay. yeah Lawler gets a good line on commentary saying, the zone, the zone, he's in the Vader zone. (laughs) Vader approaches Ken, but Ken rolls him up and applies the ankle lock, causing Vader to tap out at 13.21, which I believe is the first tap out in WWF history. What? Wow. Yeah. So all of those submissions have always been verbal. It's a UFC ruling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the the tapping of the mat. Obviously, Taz has been using it in ECW, but as far as I know, I might be wrong, this is the first WWF one. Certainly, that's a proper match. I mean, probably Billy Gunn did it when he put the ankle lock on him that time. It got a decent pop, actually, I thought. Yeah. JR once again references Ken's stupid challenge to Mike Tyson, saying that Tyson will want no part of Shamrock. We get a replay of the Whopper clothesline and the tap out before Ken celebrates in the ring. Vader needs assistance from referees to leave the ringside area, and he trashes the ring steps pissed off on his way Ooh. out. Yeah. Have you ever heard like any interviews with Vader and his actual feelings on this match? I'll get to that. You tell me your feelings on this match first. I thought this match was dead good, just because it's got a kind of on-edge factor to it that you don't normally get in, in wrestling matches. It feels very different. I think there's a, you know there's a good story that's told throughout it, but it's not a story that's been set up. It's just happening at the time. Yeah, I think it's yeah really excellent stuff. Well done, Vader. I think because you know you wouldn't want to go in the ring no matter who you were with with Shamrock at this point no. after what he's been doing for the last few years, and for for Vader to handle it in the manner in which he did because he didn't Vader doesn't go in and try and kill Shamrock, does he? No. It, t- it like Vader's clearly got like a patience button. It just so happens that Shamrock keeps pressing it, 
and eventually... It's in the side of his head. Yeah, eventually <laughs> just kind of snaps. But, oh yeah, I thought it was really compelling. Yeah, that's that's the exact words I've got written down. Utterly, utterly compelling. Well, you see, I'm less patient than you guys. And although I found bits of this match interesting, so, you know, the last portion where it becomes clear or more clear to me what's going on here in terms of the stiffness and the reaction by Vader, that was interesting in terms of the match as it was going on, I wasn't particularly into it. And I think partly it was it was a different style. I'm not particularly interested by those UFC matches. Wasn't massively into the start of this. Enjoyed the end. So did you know what was coming towards the end of this match? Um, I'd seen a gif of it. Right. So I, I assumed it was from this match, but I, did, I wasn't 100% sure. So I wasn't surprised that I saw it. Right, but I didn't okay. know it was definitely from this match. Yeah, so I thought this was kind of a total car crash match, but in the best way possible. <laughs> like, there's car crash matches that are bad and car crash matches that are good. Shamrock has clearly been put in the ring with Vader to calm him down before he mixes with the rest of the roster, but fuck me, yeah, even even Big Leon had trouble getting him to settle mm. down. So God knows what else, like who else they could have put in with him. The Wrestling Observer makes a good point at the time when they suggest that Vader should have almost been something akin to an end-of-level boss for Shamrock rather than being the first guy he faces and beats, which totally makes sense. Mm. But yeah, I feel sorry for anyone who would have had yeah, to get in the ring with Shamrock prior to this. Would you really want to run the risk of Shamrock hospitalising several of your, of your players? Uh, hang on, I've got a solution. Ken Shamrock versus Ahmed Johnson in a two-by-four match. <laughs> Fatality. <laughs> yeah. That clothesline at the end is truly one of the most memorable moments I think we've seen on screen to date. And, and the crowd reaction to Shamrock was encouraging as well. This audience at least sees him as something of a star. Whether that's because of how he's been presented on WWF television so far in his dog-walking skills, <laughs> or whether that's down to his previous life in the UFC is, is up for debate. But there's encouraging he, signs. He's, he's got a name that comes with him, hasn't he? I think yeah. people are aware of it. As far as using celebrities, uh, this is a pretty good use of one. At least this is one that is transferable into your business. So, if you hadn't guessed, Vader left this bout a tad worse than he went in, i.e. with a nose broken in four places, his legs were so battered he couldn't walk for the next five days and he needed fluid drained from his knee. Seriously? Yeah. I ne- did not know that. Needless to say, he missed the next night's TV tapings. See, see like when it said, like, it's got a broken nose or something, I didn't think it looked that bad. Well, yeah. he has got a mask over it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably masked it somewhat. So, it did well to, it did well to finish the match? Well, did, did you did not well see to do the referee? A did you not see the referee helping him out afterwards? I mean, I saw that, but I didn't know how much of that was, you know, selling the ankle lock. Yeah, possibly. When asked by kayfabe commentaries if this match was a bad idea, Jim Cornette, who was on the booking committee at the time, responded, I think we were going for, hey, we're going to see two big rough fuckers that most people might think were real beat the piss out of each other. And that's pretty much what happened. I actually kind of liked the match myself. <laughs> As you may have also guessed, the PW Torch at the time suggests that Tempest flared somewhat during this bout, with Shamrock thinking Vader was double-crossing him by bailing to the outside, while Vader was merely taking the breaks he was taking due to how frustrated he was with Shamrock's stiffness. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a bit of miscommunication. And when Vader's saying that, you can only imagine how bad those elbows and kicks felt. <laughs> Did he not hear, ease up? Apparently not. <laughs> in a shooting Everyone interview, in the whole fucking arena heard it. <laughs> In a shoot interview, Vader would acknowledge that he realised Shamrock had no intention to hurt him and was simply green in the style of working professional wrestling. Mm. Yeah, but there's no substitute for this person's hurting me to make you lose your temper. There's definitely a solution for that. It's Mm. called a whopping great arm to the side of the head. Yeah. 
Yeah, or they should just strapped pillows onto Ken Shamrock's legs. You want to see Ken Shamrock in a pillow fight? No, just with pillows strapped to his legs. <laughs> it's not a pillow fight. What, like Ahmed Johnson's knee pads? Yes. It could, it could, have, it could have two. No. I, I, I think shin and foot need to be more insulated. Moment 18 from episode 47 sees one of the show's favourite performers return from injury at In Your House, It's Time. It's time. It's time. It's greatest promo ever time. <laughs> Vince McMahon is in the ring and he welcomes back Ahmed Johnson. Who's got a nice tracksuit and a fanny pack. Johnson is wearing a rather lovely blue tracksuit and bum bag. Fanny pack. If, you, if you're in England, it's a bum bag. If you're in America, it's a fanny pack. Fanny pack. Which I always found rather strange because obviously a, a bum is the buttocks. And in America, the fanny is the buttocks also. In England, it's the vagina, but still. But you don't wear... <laughs> Love your technical explanation of that there. But you, you, you don't wear the, the, the bum bag slash fanny pack... On your bum on or fanny? Your, on your Would bottom. you prefer we call it a cock pack? <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. I thought, well, we've got this. Cock pouch. It's pretty good. Yeah, we, we can't call it the cock pouch. <laughs> you don't put to, your cock in it. We're going to have to call it something else. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I swear having this kind of vague link in my head between fanny pack or bum bags and McDonald's, could you just, like, win them in some kind of competition for McDonald's? Keep, or am I making something up? I mean, I mean, you know, growing up in the very early 90s, like, bum bags were the greatest thing ever. Well, like that and shell suits. Yeah. <laughs> I never had one. You never had a bum bag? No. You're you missed childhood. Yeah. All the cool kids had a bum bag. I mean, you're not cool. Not in any way, no. You were cool, just not in that way. I think I was... I don't know how much were bum bags? I was pretty poor. They weren't really expensive. They were just uh, random. Yeah. I, I definitely I, remember having them on holiday as a kid. Yeah. yeah. I never had a shell suit. And I swear that that wasn't a costing thing. That was because um, <laughs> there was that story that came out that if you got like a, a spark on it, they kind of turned into a form of napalm. They pretty much do, don't yeah, they? Yeah, kind of like extra flammable, sticky plastic. But particularly good around fireworks night. Yeah. <laughs> or Mark Mara's entrance. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, do you know what else was a great piece of early 90s clothing? Those T-shirts that changed colour. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely had one of those as well. I didn't have one of those. What did I have? I'm going to buy you a shell suit, a bum back, and a colour-changing T-shirt. I don't think you can buy shell suits anymore. I think they're a fire hazard. The thing about shell suits is they were comfy. Yeah. They are really comfy. Mm. I'll just have to take your word for it. Yeah. I bet we can find one on eBay. <laughs> yeah. Imagine feeling really comfortable but highly flammable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's going to go from one extreme to the other. You're really, really comfy until you get set on fire, and then you're very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, sadly, Ahmed isn't wearing a shell suit. He is only wearing a tracksuit. It is a classic look. Vince tells us that Ahmed is back, and that at the Royal Rumble, Ahmed will face off with Farouk. Ooh. Ahmed, I think, tells us he has <laughs> lost his girlfriend, his car, and his house through this injury. So he's. Look at this. Ahmed Johnson's homeless, <laughs> <laughs> and all he's got. It's a tracksuit and, and a bum bag. <laughs> well, All his worldly possessions are contained within one bum bag. Because he hasn't got a car. <laughs> Maybe he's got the keys. <laughs> how, how did he get there? <laughs> Great I'm, I'm, I'm homeless, but I can fly out to Florida. <laughs> well, we haven't seen him in a while. Maybe he was just like greyhounding it across the country. <laughs> That's why he's taken six months to come back. <laughs> his kidneys were fine after a week. <laughs> but... What this means is that Vince clearly doesn't offer sick pay, which is, is obviously true. That's harsh. Ahmed had very little cash in the first place, and his girlfriend was clearly a money-grabbing tramp. 
And do you reckon he's like, so he's lost all his clothes? <laughs> apart from this, <laughs> apart from this tracksuit. I bet he's still got his red pants on. Does it just mean that this was what he was wearing the day that all of his stuff was repossessed? <laughs> Possibly. Anyway. I think his girlfriend just took it all. Do you think that maybe he might be lying? <laughs> nah. Okay. But it's really quite extreme because I think we saw Ahmed Johnson's living room, didn't we? Quite, yeah. It was quite nice. Yeah, it's all right. Ahmed says all he has now is his fans. Something, something, something Farouk is going to pay. Vince says Ahmed almost lost his career and Ahmed says something back. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> this, this is hilarious to watch. <laughs> but, it but really is. Partly, it is just the audio quality. Is... No, partly it's his mouth quality. Well, no, no, part, <laughs> partly it is quite difficult to understand, but partly, <laughs> it, like the audio quality is awful. Yeah, it's, it is it's, awful. it's not great, but he doesn't help matters. Also, you know, genuinely, if he was going to lose, like, his house, surely you would go to Vince and be like, Vince, can you... I've lost my house. I've lost my home. <laughs> Maybe you did, and Vince gave him a bum bag. <laughs> a tracksuit. I hope that's his gimmick when he comes back. Homeless Armoured Johnson. <laughs> Man of the people. The Nation of Domination theme hits and PG-13 do their rap as Farouk, Clarence Mason and Crush appear in the crowd. Yes, Crush is now in the Nation of Domination. Mm. Farouk says that Ahmed is the reason his race of people is behind 50 years and that he's going to dabble in eugenics by forming his own race of people. I'd like to point out, he doesn't mention eugenics, (laughs) but he does say that he's going to create his own race, which confuzzled me a little bit. It makes me really uncomfortable kind of watching this and then talking about it, if I'm honest, because I don't like... I just, Why? But the, 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 fact of the, matter, was... the, the fact of the matter is, Farouk said he was going to create his own race of people. <laughs> and that, there's nothing wrong with that. We can't change it. We didn't say it. All we're doing is saying, that's what he said. Now, what did he mean? <laughs> I don't know. What was wrestling thinking? <laughs> good, good point. And it, it, I can't understand a lot of the words that Farouk's using, to be quite fair. Yeah, I, I found that quite difficult. And when they're having a back and forth, forth. it's just two people <laughs> shouting and noises. Farouk also calls Ahmed Uncle Tom. What Now, what does that mean? Google that. All right, then. Ahmed responds by yelling gibberish into the microphone, ending with a phrase <laughs> that somewhat resembles, you're going down, but quite clearly isn't that exact phrase. Is, is that just the kind of the, the meaning behind the words? Well, I think that's supposed to be his catchphrase, but yeah, that's kind of not what comes out, really. Ahmed's theme hits to end the segment. Well, that was something different, that for was, sure. That was terrible, but terrible in a way that it was awesome. You know, like Hall- that's Halloween Havoc 95, put in yeah. promo form. Brilliant. And I, I'd quite like that. This is another part where, I don't often say this, but I really like Vince in this. Because Vince's facial expressions when these two are talking is genius. Yes, kind of, didn't we pause it on a rather it, yeah, amusing Vince It's kind face. of just mild confusion and bewilderment. <laughs> and I think he asks something and Ahmed Johnson has a good rant and then you see the look on Vince's face and the look says, I don't know what the fuck he just said. <laughs> what do but I ask him next? <laughs> I'd best just ask him a question and just ploughs on anyway. There's also a really uncomfortable point where Farouk says something stops and then clearly has to have a long think about what he's supposed to say next. <laughs> because Vince almost goes to start saying something and the fruits are, oh, that's what I'm going to say, gets it out. I also like how they can't kind of show any highlights of the beginning of this feud because that would involve showing 
Farouk in his blue gladiator gear, which they've now ditched in favour of a much more sensible, the word, gimmick? Different gimmick? It's it's a different gimmick. It's a better look for him because that blue gladiator thing was not doing anything and wouldn't do anything on anyone, I don't think. He may have been homeless, but Ahmed Johnson survived in the WWF for nearly another 15 months. When it came to say goodbye, the boys clearly felt this a lot more than most. Moment 17 comes from episode 89, No Way Out, In Your House. I don't know how to tell you this, boys. In fact, I'm not sure there even are any words. It's time to say goodbye to Ahmed Johnson. Oh. I know, Adam, I've mocked you recently the trope of missing people that we won't miss like Crush and Tom Brandy (laughs) (laughs) but I think I'm on the money when I say we're all going to miss Ahmed Johnson what happens to him? so Ahmed actually walked out of the WWF the night after this show at a raw taping unhappy at being asked to do a job to Kurgan though Ahmed has claimed the real reason he walked out was due to his sister having cancer as it happens neither side was particularly happy with the other Ahmed believing he was a bigger star than he actually was, whilst the WWF were naturally unhappy about his constant injuries, injuring of others and his poor in-ring performances. Ahmed was then released from his contract on February 23rd, despite the fact he had four years remaining on his deal. Wow. The WWF were legally allowed to drop him as he'd no-showed the weekend's live events. Uh Okay. Within the week, Vince McMahon would appear on both television and in print ripping Ahmed, claiming that Ahmed didn't know the difference between the WWF character of Ahmed Johnson and Tony Norris. Ahmed would quickly be booked by NWA promoter Dennis Coraluzo to appear in New Jersey in a bout against Sid, but in a story that's been popularised by Jim Cornette, Ahmed refused to appear when the promoter wouldn't send a limousine to pick him up from his hotel. At the show, Coraluzo then gave out the telephone number of the hotel room Ahmed was staying in to fans so that they could voice their displeasure at him no-showing, which they did all night. And to clarify, they did send a car for him. They did send it a car. It just wasn't a limousine, which I guess that, that does lead to, you know, believe what Vince says, that he believed... You know, the Ahmed Johnson thing and himself were the same person. And, you know, if you're that big a star in the ring, you deserve star-like treatment. Despite allegedly proposing a programme between himself and Goldberg, Ahmed wouldn't be picked up by WCW until late 1999, making his debut for the company on January 16th, 2000, by interfering in a bout between Booker T and Stevie Ray. Ahmed, who had gained a ton of weight and was almost unrecognisable from his WWF peak, went under the moniker of Big T and would team with Stevie Ray as Harlem Heat 2000 for six months before being released in July for his ongoing weight issues, something Ahmed had since admitted, claiming that WCW were right for not pushing him as, quote, had I gotten a belt, I would have eaten the belt. (laughs) At least he's got a sense of humour around it. Also, you'll, you'll like this, Paul. Ahmed Johnson feuded with Booker T in WCW over the rights to the letter T. Who won? <laughs> Ahmed. Ahmed T. No, he's Big T, isn't he? Big T. So then Booker was just Booker rather than Booker T. Wow. That is brilliant. Why, did it, why did it take him so long to get picked up by WCW? Because all the people talking at his hotel room door. <laughs> Possibly. My guess would be, at this point, Bischoff's got no interest in him. The time he's picked up by WCW is when Russo's there, so Russo may see him as somebody who was a decent-sized star in the WWF. Sure, I'll sign you. Okay. Post-WCW, Ahmed would wrestle a mere six matches, his last coming on November 8th, 2003, in Texas. 
Following his retirement, Ahmed apparently returned to school and received a degree in criminology from Houston Tillotson University in Austin, Texas, and appeared in the made-for-TV movie Too Legit, The MC Hammer Story, as Marion Suge Knight. Hang on a minute. What? He went to university and then appeared in a movie about MC Hammer? Yep. I would have never have guessed that. I'd have never guessed it was a lion's hammer either, mate, but... (laughs) (laughs) In July 2016, Ahmed was also named as part of a class action lawsuit filed against WWE, which alleged that wrestlers incurred traumatic brain injuries during their tenure and the company concealed the risks of injury. Oh, and in case you're wondering, in a 2013 interview, Ahmed clarified the rumour around his hometown, saying, I've never even heard of Pearl River, Mississippi. I've never been to Pearl River, Mississippi. Is Pearl River even a real place? (laughs) Yes, it is. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we would be sad to see him go because he did provide some absolute highlights of our run. He's been one of my favourite people to actually see and that's a really weird thing to say considering that he had mostly bad like performances in the ring but were they entertaining? We'll all remember Ahmed's plank, right? Yeah. Because that was a moment in time that will never be recreated and he, he just had this incredible run when we first met him. So let's think, just actually quickly, off the top of our head, can we name 10 memorable Ahmed Johnson moments? Oh, when Goldust kissed him. Yeah, one. Entrance at King of the Ring where he smashes through those doors. doors. Entrance as Legion of Doom, Ahmed. Yes. Diving over that ring barrier in the back of the camera at <laughs> WrestleMania 13. <laughs> the, the bit with the gold record with Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. yeah. His fanny pack where he's homeless. Yeah. How how he stops running just before he goes through the curtain. <laughs> yeah. It's constant butt cheek exposure. Come on, we're nearly there. We've got eight. Yeah, and they've come pretty thick and fast, actually. Diving out of his out of the ring head first at Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. yeah. Being in that awesome six man tag at International Incident. There, there you, you go. go. There, there's like, ten great Armour Johnson moments. Yeah, and that, that was done like pretty much in, in about a minute. And you don't remember anything. Yet. You contributed I, about seven of those. Yeah, I I've I have a very poor memory. But Armour Johnson's made such an impression on me that I can remember lots of great things from him. Also, he fucking slammed Yokozuna in like his debut match. And I know Luger had done it two years previous, but I don't think there were that many people that body slammed Yokozuna in his no. WWF yeah. tenure. So I'd be surprised if there were four, maybe. And it's tops. more impressive because in the two years since Luger slammed him, he gained about £300. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, man. If you'd have given Armour Johnson a boat and a bus, like... <laughs> It would have crashed it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's because he was trying to drive the bus in the water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, oh. but we didn't even mention any of his fucking promos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was that great one, wasn't it? In fact, it was the fanny pack incident where you had Farouk up in like a flipping yeah. balcony and Ahmed in, in the ring and they had a promo sort of like shout off for five minutes I couldn't tell you a single fucking word that was said <laughs> what do you think Stuart I think wrestling is a funny thing <laughs> you're not wrong like if you're objectively a bad footballer and you're just a bad footballer you probably won't play in the Premier League yeah yeah that's fair to say but in wrestling somehow you can be bad at the various components that make it up yet still get signed by the biggest promotion in the world and somehow be fucking awesome. Mm. Like, no, Ahmed couldn't wrestle and he most certainly could not cut a promo, but over the course of his entire WWF run, he's kind of become easily one of my personal favourites from this entire time period. 
Yeah. Was, it, was it describing as a, a guilty pleasure? Like, I don't think I even feel guilty about it. There's lots of people that will probably say the same thing. I think and have fond memories. Just a pleasure of of Ahmed. Like that's the thing. He joined kind of just after I stopped watching in 1995, so he was not someone I kind of saw at the time. But going back and watching his run from kind of start to finish, does it trail off in the last year? Absolutely, it does. And you know, bar the odd flash, post injury, he's not the same person he is pre injury. But yeah, like I like you say, like he's in a highlight in the sense that you kind of just want to see what he's going to try next. Yeah, mm. what, what's he going to do this time? It's easy to see why Vince was so high on him early on and in that first year he was dynamite yeah his second year contains a lot less highlights but every now and again there were flashes of what made him so dynamic early on so it was nice that on his last night he got a decent pop and I guess it's kind of fitting that his last real in-ring interaction was with Farouk it's hard to argue that he would have offered much more had he stuck around but that doesn't change the fact that it's sad to see him kind of bow out so close to our final act. Mm. Yeah. But like you say, if we could have had any finish for him, especially as we've, we're very aware that his in-ring performances have drastically gone down because of his you know repeated injuries, it is so nice to actually see him in a match that has importance, that has significance, where he plays a part and people appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I will miss him. I will, just the entertainment value. Farewell, Ahmed Johnson. Poor Ahmed Johnson. You have been appreciated and you will be missed. And I'm not going to rip on you for saying that. <laughs> I, I think I'll just get to the point where I just miss everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, IRS, man. I just, well, just really wish he was back. Well, no, 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 I don't miss IRS. <laughs> I miss his promo skills. But, you know, people that are around for quite a while... Isn't there some sort of Rick and Morty thing where he talks about love being an abstract thought that is just familiarity over time? Yes, there is. And I think that's what I'm what I feel about these people. Because they're around for a while, I kind of miss them when they're gone. Hang on, you're in love with Crush? Yes, I love Crush. <laughs> when when I go at the end of every episode, does Adam just pine for me till I'm back again? No, he mostly just clears up whatever stuff you've left around the living room. I need to get that chocolate out of the fridge. Yeah. Another goodbye came in episode 75, Bad Blood in Your House, and was another one requested many times to be included. Moment 16 is perhaps the most serious discussion on the list and offers a different side to what could be featured on the show. Earlier in the day, prior to the beginning of the show we're covering today, Brian Pillman was found dead in his hotel room aged just 35. His death was initially suspected to be due to an accidental overdose of prescription painkillers. However, a later autopsy revealed that Pillman had passed away due to a previously undetected heart condition, the same one that had killed his father aged 50 when Brian was just two years old. Pillman had competed the night before for the WWF at a house show in a losing effort to Goldust. Concern was first raised as to where Pillman was around 5pm the day of the pay-per-view when Bret Hart arrived alone. As a perk for his tenure, the hitman was often late without explanation, but after Pillman had missed both the shuttle from the hotel to the venue and a ride with Brett, questions were raised as to his whereabouts. The following is from Jim Cornette, quote, He was the last one not there. So Bruce says, Call the hotel he was in last night in Minneapolis, because they were in St. Paul, and see if you can find out what time he checked out or anything. So, I'm in the production room. I call the fucking hotel, the XL in at the airport, I think, or whatever. And I say I'm asking about one of your guests from last night. Brian Pillman, can you tell me what time he checked out? 
And he says, hold on one second, please. Boom. Puts me on hold. Whatever the fuck he's doing. He comes back. Sir? And I said, yes. He said, um, Mr. Pillman has passed away. Okay. First thing I'm thinking is, because I couldn't process that that could possibly be right, I thought that there's Brian standing behind the guy because he put me on hold. No. What he did was, he didn't want to say that in front of people in the lobby. He went into the back, but I thought he put me on hold to get the instructions. I'm like, okay, yeah, seriously. No, the police were here earlier. He's passed away. I think maybe he said they were still there. So I look around, and guess who's the only other person in the room? Downtown Bruno, Harvey Wilpelman. I said, Bruno, go get Bruce Pritchard. Oh no, he, he's busy back there. I said, go get Bruce Pritchard. Tell him I said, come here right fucking now. Right, I said, can you hold on one second to the hotel? And we get Bruce in there, and it was true. And they had, I guess, gone and knocked on the door, the maids to clean or whatever in the afternoon, and they found and called the cops right after. No internet back then to speak of, and nobody's got cell phones. So yeah, I had to deliver that piece of information. And Bruce comes in, and he's pissed at me, like, what do you want me to get on the phone for? And I said, Pillman's dead. So that cast a pall over the proceedings. End quote. Wow. In actuality, the police were the ones who had opened the door to Pillman's room at 1pm at the Budget Tell Motel in Bloomington, Minnesota, where they found several bottles of prescription pills, muscle relaxers and painkillers, alongside one empty beer bottle. Pillman had last been seen at the previous evening's house show, curled up in a fetal position on the floor due to the pain, and after a few beers with some other wrestlers, he headed to his hotel room around 10.45pm, where he left a voicemail for his wife, Melanie. She found out about her husband's death around the same time as Cornette and the WWF did when police knocked on the door. Upon hearing the news, she fainted. When Melanie told Brian's eight-year-old daughter, Brittany, whose mother had shot herself just two years earlier, as Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer wrote, quote, she let out a horrific scream for 15 minutes straight like a wounded animal. This is just horrible to hear. The most tragic thing about Pillman's passing seems to be that everybody saw it coming. Due to the severe injuries suffered in his car accident on April 15th, 1996, that caused his ankle to be fused, Pillman was heavily reliant on various forms of painkillers to perform. Despite an effort to transition him into a role as a colour commentator in early 1997, Pillman wanted to wrestle. He had been a standout performer for several years in the early 1990s for WCW, and just as he crafted a character that saw him become the most talked about performer in the industry, his physical gifts were taken away from him a realisation that by all accounts he seemed unable to come to terms with. Jim Ross recalls on the September 2006 produced WWE documentary Loose Cannon, quote, Brian's issue was strange. We knew he was hurting, but when you asked him, he would lie to you. I'll be all right. I'm working through it. Pillman was insulted by a drugs test issued to him by the WWF weeks before his death after he wrecked three rental cars in a month, two in the same weekend. He became angry with Jim Ross, who he developed a bond with, feeling that Ross had betrayed him. Pillman attributed his various bouts of erratic behaviour to wanting to develop his character and told Ross he thought they had a better relationship than Ross randomly drug testing him. Ross told him that they did and that he wanted their relationship to continue and for Pillman not to die. God damn it, I'm not going to die, Pillman responded. Pillman told Ross that all wrestlers took pain medication and queried, what about Sean? He is fucking worse than me. I've never gone on television so loaded that I can't fucking stand up straight, but Sean has done that twice in the last few weeks. Why is he so goddamn untouchable? Ross claims that the test found painkillers and muscle relaxers, but no street drugs. Pillman even made a call to WCW head Eric Bischoff one night, whom he had remained friendly with despite Pillman's departure from the promotion. 
Bischoff says that Pillman spoke in broad terms about returning to WCW and rejoining the Four Horsemen, but that Pillman's tone was so dark and despondent he knew something was seriously wrong. Another ally shared Ross's concern for Pillman's life. When Shane Douglas asked ECW booker Paul Heyman about staging a bout between he and Pillman at November to remember as a blow-off for their angle from early 1996, Heyman accurately predicted, Shane, Brian isn't going to be alive by then. He was clearly on a downward spiral, said Heyman in 2006, and a lot of Brian's friends were desperate to help him. But Brian didn't want the help, and Brian wasn't in denial. He just didn't want the help. Vince McMahon is said to have been sat in a makeup chair when he was told the news that Brian Pillman had died. Pillman had been scheduled to face Dude Love that evening in the next chapter of his feud with Goldust, a bout that would have seen the bizarre one handcuffed to one of the ring posts. Had Dude Love won, Pillman would have been forced to immediately wrestle Goldust. Almost 30 minutes of airtime had been put aside for Pillman's matches on the show and two bouts would be quickly added to the card to replace them. The story goes that the wedding vow renewal scheduled for the following evening's Raw is War would have continued the angle with Marlena and ultimately she would have turned on Goldust and sided with Pillman. It would be Vince McMahon himself who told the world that Brian Pillman had passed away on the Bad Blood pre-show. Standing stony-faced backstage, McMahon announced, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we have some tragic news to report. Approximately 5 o'clock central time, we here in the World Wrestling Federation were notified that Brian Pillman had passed away. Brian Pillman was last with the World Wrestling Federation last night in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was found dead in his hotel room in Bloomington, Minnesota this afternoon. At this juncture, we do not have more information other than to tell you that Brian Pillman is dead. We here at the World Wrestling Federation offer our condolences to the Pillman family. End quote. It can be particularly difficult to fully understand the decisions made by people in high-pressure situations, particularly those decisions made in the public eye. Vince McMahon's decision to continue with the Over the Edge pay-per-view on May 23rd, 1999, after the death of Owen Hart, is one that's much debated, but it's hard to truly say what you would do when put in those shoes and forced to make those decisions, with no time to debate the pros and cons of those choices. Vince McMahon's decision to interview Pillman's widow Melanie on the following evening's October 6th Raw is War, however, is one that I cannot fathom how nobody stopped and queried whether this was truly the right thing to do, and for what it's worth, in my opinion, is pretty much the scummiest thing I've ever seen. The decision to promote the interview throughout the broadcast, with shots interspersed of photos in the Pillman's home, in a manner similar to how they might promote an interview with a performer, only adds to the distastefulness of the situation. The show would open with a ten-bell salute for Brian Pillman, the majority of the roster assembled at the top of the ramp. Notable by their absence were Shawn Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Melanie's interview would not air until deep into the second hour of the show. Vince McMahon did offer Melanie one final chance to back out of the interview, but in a 2003 article in the LA Times, Melanie said, quote, Vince told me I didn't have to do the interview if I didn't want to, but I felt obligated to him. I knew he wanted me to do it, and I knew I would be relying on this man for food, end quote. McMahon did go on to pay Melanie the $50,000 balance of Pillman's first year contract, sent her $65,000 after a memorial wrestling show staged in Pillman's honour and gave her $12,000 to make a down payment on a home. We've all watched the interview with Melanie. It's difficult viewing. Yeah, really, really uncomfortable. Like you say, it's the the kind of the setting of it and the build-up to it feels awkward and uncomfortable. Little details like... You know, we were talking about it a little bit before, in the jacket that Vince is wearing, and, and the fact that 
it's something so somber and he's wearing like the Rory's war zone one is the war zone jacket that he's wearing yeah you you know should be wearing a suit it should be more formal it should be you know should be taking this more seriously should be giving it well you shouldn't be doing it sorry but it the tone of everything feels so wrong and as the interview goes on there's and like it's one detail after another after another that just kind of makes things hit home more and more and seem worse. How she looks, even to start off with, is very difficult to watch someone in that level of kind of. She looks kind of calm yet distressed. And well, they choose to because it zooms in, doesn't it, to a a rather kind of invasive big close up of her face. Mm. For the whole thing, so it's it's really quite difficult to watch a recently bereaved woman talk about her dead husband when, from like a perspective thing, we're we're standing right up in her face, yeah, and watching it, it just it doesn't sit quite right. It's not not good television. It shouldn't really be happening. Certainly not this close. Well, the, the question. The, it's also the the questions that are invasive and deeply inappropriate but you know as she talks about kind of her children as you mentioned earlier there's the talk about there's the younger son who she says doesn't really understand but there's the the older daughter who had lost her mum and was just like screaming for 15 minutes yeah and you can't you know how is she? How is she? I don't know how she manages to get those words out. You, you know, I, I don't know. It's really difficult. Really difficult. Are there a lot of people around the time openly speak out against this? There's criticisms of it, obviously. Yes. Okay. I'm surprised that you know, in hindsight, when you look back at it, I think everyone would say this was not a good thing to do this is this is uncomfortable viewing this is almost exploiting i don't think almost yeah, but of, of someone that's that's in massive bereavement i'm slightly bemused how why it's still actually on the network and it's it, the one thing that that struck me kind of as, as i was getting towards the end i don't know who you'd have with her but it feels really awkward as well that she's on her own yeah going through this and it, that feels like you know, she's obviously at a vulnerable time anyway, but kind of, she looks really quite isolated there, and that adds to the unpleasantness. I'm going to read a, a, a statement that kind of I've written and just see if you agree. If you disagree, feel free to say. Yeah, go on then. It undoubtedly, from my perspective, feels like an attempt by Vince to absolve the World Wrestling Federation of responsibility for the death of Pillman. I can see where you're coming from with that. The kind of the talk about the drugs. Well, the kind of prescription painkillers, and they talk about because he almost urges her to say to other performers and entertainers, "Don't do it." And it's like the mention of it's kind of like quite commonplace, isn't it? In in these spheres, yeah. The because it sounds like, particularly from you know what Ross was saying, they did the drugs test on Pillman to to check what was in his system, but it's very like Vince is very much angling down. 
making sure that everyone's aware that it's prescription drugs, it's prescription things that is on making sure that, you know, it's, so the, the performer isn't dirty, the performer was taking medication for his injuries. So it 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 almost seems like not a criminal type thing. Is, is that something that Vince is worried about, that perhaps like Pullman was on loads of different drugs and died under his watch? Was if it was just on things that had been prescribed by a by a doctor by a physician, that it would be a bit more understandable. And it, you kind of get the impression that Vince is scared that this is going to come off as a drugs thing. He does mention it quite a few times, and he's a bit like, I don't want someone on my roster to have died because of because of drugs. And the, the play up as well, don't they? The kind of ankle injury. So. Uh, and I don't know if that was during the interview or in, in the video afterwards, but they're talking about that as like almost like there's the reason why to kind of so people can stitch it together. Yeah, yeah. And he certainly doesn't want any mention of like let's uh, steroids or anything coming out there because it, he's already been tarred with that brush. The line of questioning is unashamedly inappropriate. Yes, I concur. Yes, asking a widow if her infant children understand that their father is dead is downright bizarre. In any sense, but on a live show out to millions, yeah. I mean, this isn't meant as a as a distasteful comment, but when I watched that, and I, I couldn't help but think of Alan Partridge in terms of it is so out there that again, it's just those those are words that shouldn't be uttered. Yeah, it goes past normal social boundary. Most people would think that asking these questions. I'm not doing that because that's really inappropriate. But he still asks the questions, yeah. which is which is yeah odd. Querying how she plans to feed those children borders on cruel. Yeah, absolutely. And we know how she plans to feed those children. She's doing this interview in order to, you know, keeping good with uh, with Vincent Company. I like to think we try and offer a pretty balanced opinion on topics and try to see the positives and even the worst of situations, but I can't find any positive here. No, I can't find any defence for this. No, there's, there's no positive attributes to this segment of television at all. I think when you kind of add on top the fact that it's promoted throughout the broadcast, you are shown shots of that room where the Pillman gun angle was staged. Yeah. Coming up later, Melanie Pillman. Coming up later, we're going to speak to Melanie Pillman. Here's Pillman's house. That is how you would promote an interview with a performer coming back from injury or someone debuting or some or something like yeah. that. It's not the right tone. It's not the right way to deal with this. I, I felt as well, I mean, we'll perhaps we'll talk about this later in the show, but during the pay-per-view itself, they keep revisiting the information. I know they might want to keep announcing, but it, but it almost felt like a bit of a, a segment build. Yeah. How they do it, because it's, it's like the drip-feeding information. You know, there's like an extra little detail, like the next time they talk about it. And that's just bizarre in itself. Mm. I, know, I know they need to address the issue, because people might have been expecting certain matches. I mean, I understand that. Like I say, it's a tonal, a tonal issue. Yeah, I think I just can't fathom, I think ultimately to kind of sum up, like there was nobody able, and maybe there were people trying, maybe there were, but there was nobody able to persuade Vince that putting the widow of a performer on television in under those circumstances 
the day after was not a good idea. I mean, I, th- yeah. I think the thing that is striking me most at the minute is I feel so uncomfortable talking about this now. Yeah, me too. It's horrible. I've, like, I've got a really kind of like horrible feeling and we, we normally try and be upbeat and, and kind of have a laugh, but you can't about this. Well, no, this is the, the least upbeat thing we've encountered. By a mile. Yeah. And this is why I tried to start us off with a bit of positivity. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it is odd, though, Ethan. There was no one that could get to it. Did he not talk to Linda? Does Linda not have any sway? Who might have said, you know what, Vince? Actually, you know, if you died, I wouldn't, wouldn't have wanted to be grilled on your TV show the next day. Mm. And that kind of perspective. Sorry, just another question for you. With the absence of Sean and Hunter... Why do you think that was? Do you think that the fact that they were so heelish at the time, you actually think that that might have been an appropriate step, or do you think it was... Because I think that's actually quite perhaps a difficult call. Yeah, it it depends on what you read into it. If you read into it that Sean and Hunter aren't even willing to kind of put their feud with Bret Hart to one side for those 30 seconds of television, then it makes them arseholes. If they were told not to be there, then then that's fine. Mm. But... I mean, Taker's not there and Kane's not there. And that, I kind of feel, is justified. You know, obviously, Taker's selling the beating from Kane and Kane's this brand new kind of mythical character. Yeah. But you have everyone else, you know, character alliance or allegiance aside, everyone else is on that stage. Yeah. With the exception of, of Taker, Kane, Sean and Hunter. And I just kind of don't see any reason why they couldn't be there. Mm. Okay. Wrestling-wise, we saw nowhere near the best of Brian Pillman. Hopefully one day we get the chance to take a look at some of the stuff from his WCW run. Because when I tell you he's a fantastic wrestler, he's he's a fantastic wrestler. Okay. I've seen some of the Flying Brian stuff from when you've been watching old WCW stuff, and it is absolutely amazing. Like, really good. But, yeah, I think as you pointed out on previous podcasts, since the injury, and, you know, he's got a fused foot, hasn't he? Like, he can't really move it. He can't be the same performer. Persona-wise, Pillman has been one of the most fascinating characters to discuss since we first talked about his loose cannon persona back in episode 30 for Uncensored 1996. From threatening to piss all over the ECW (laughs) arena, to bailing on his bout with Kevin Sullivan, to threatening to rape, pillage and plunder the World Wrestling Federation, to uttering the F-word live on the USA Network, to his triple X-Files, he's been part of some of the most interesting aspects of the last couple of years' worth of shows. It's interesting to speculate what he would have contributed in 1998, given that his best friend ascends to being the biggest act in the company. So would he have remained in the WWF when what happens to Brett happens to Brett? Would he have gone back to WCW? We know he's talking to Bischoff. Yeah, would he he have been there alongside Austin at the top of the card? Would that have been a feud they would have revisited? You know, would he have transitioned into a commentary role because he was obviously an excellent talker? Yeah. Yeah. It it is kind of cool that we can say... He was one of the most fascinating performers, but we rarely saw him perform in a wrestling capacity. But his character work was second to none, really. It's it's amazing that you can get that degree of interest from a character when you spend an awful lot of time with your leg in a plaster cast and you don't Mm. really wrestle very much at all, and you're a a wrestler. Uh, And and just on another note, one of the things that, that this did make me think about is going back to the kind of the gold dust Angle and Marlena, because obviously you're watching that and you've, you're thinking, my 
gosh, this feels wrong. Because you're, you're thinking about the kind of Marlena perspective. Yeah. But actually, that must have been incredibly difficult for him, knowing that your wife is watching this and you've got young kids as well. And that's something that, that I hadn't really considered before, that actually Brian's personal side of it, as well as kind of Golda's personal side of it, if you like. Yeah, I mean... And how uncomfortable that was. From- there's stuff kind of we've not... and won't have the time to go into. You know, there's stories that he and Melanie were actually undergoing a divorce or looking at a trial separation at the time. So there's kind of a bunch of other stuff that you can read or, or watch on the DVD documentary. But yeah, so sad. To wrap up this discussion, I'd like to share an anecdote sent to us by listener Matt Lewinsky. It goes as follows. The night of this show was the first and last time I ever called the WWF hotline. I was home alone and randomly decided to call. I thought it would be like the WCW hotline, which was 99 cents per minute. Instead, it was $5 per minute. What? All I can remember was hearing JR announce that Brian Pillman had died. My heart sank as he was one of my favourites from WCW, and by the time I hung up, 20 minutes had passed. Mm. Needless to say, (laughs) my dad wasn't happy with the bill. However, my neighbours didn't have to worry about leaves or snow on their driveways, or their grass being mowed for the following year as payment for the $100 phone bill. $5 a minute? Jesus. What do you do if Baby Scribbins comes up with like a £100 phone bill? I don't, from calling up the WWE hotline. Have they got a hotline anymore? <laughs> no. no. I mean, it's kind of redundant, I guess. What's the modern equivalent, I guess? The internet. What I'll have to do is buy my mobile phone, but top up only. And he gets yeah. like <laughs> a pound a month. How do you make one of the worst pay-per-views of all time a little bit more bearable to discuss? Moment 15 comes from episode 30, Uncensored 1996. Sees the lads resort to discussing an 80s kids classic. In comes Loch Ness. He's a deeply unattractive man. He shouts. That's, that's really narrow minded. He's a really good ambassador for Britain. What with his slim waistline and good dental hygiene. He shouts through his horrendous teeth about weasel-faced Jimmy Hart. He tells us that Hart promised him a shot at Hogan in the Doomsday match, but Hart pulled him out. What's his accent? Where's he from? Is he like black country or... I thought it was a bit more northern. I thought it was was verged on Scotland. (laughs) I don't think he's that northern. No, I don't think he is. You get my drift. I certainly think further north than Midlands. Gene says he'll introduce Loch Ness to his dentist... And Loch Ness just stares at him like he actually wants to kill him. Yeah, like, that's actually quite offensive, Gene. He, he's upset by you, this. You twat. It was such hard work watching this show last night that we, we kind of stopped to have a discussion about the 80s kids TV show Family Ness. Americans probably will not be familiar with this, but, but anyone around our age from the UK probably yeah. will be. But we'll if have vague recollections if of you, it. If you're not yeah. familiar with this, get familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> It had a great theme song. What, what was the show about, Paul? I can't remember. It was about Loch Ness, and, and there was different kind of Loch Ness monsters, and they all had names that ended in Ness. So there was one... Did you do some research on it? Or watch the show things like Grumpy Ness, Happy Ness. Grumpy Ness. Happy Ness. You just said penis. Penis. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Oh, no, that's Penis. <laughs> It's sticking out of the water. <laughs> Quit blowing your thistle whistle. Yeah, they, they, had, they had thistle whistles that they'd blow on to attract... Summon these Loch Ness yeah, monsters. To, to save the day. Did, in a did, zany... they, did they just summon random 
I think, Nessies. I, th- I think they whatever contributed to the story For that right, week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Floppiness. <laughs> Is that something you've struggled with? <laughs> Stiffness. <laughs> okay, here we go. I've, I've got the Wikipedia up. Okay, good. We have ferociousness, her highness. That's the queen of the Nessies. <laughs> Baby Ness. Uh, one of the characters is apparently called Mrs. McToffee. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been one of the humans. Yeah, but guess what she owned? A sweet shop. Bingo. Carefulness. Cleverness. Eagerness. Forgetfulness. It says it's played by Adam Wikes. Eyewitness. <laughs> That's that is the best. <laughs> it says, monster with a patch over one eye who looks like a pirate. He has a tendency to place his telescope over the wrong eye. <laughs> oh, that's gold. They, they can't have had a character called Eyewitness. <laughs> Apparently they did. Unless someone's edited this Wikipedia. That's possible. It was in an episode about a murder on the family nest. <laughs> that's bollocks. That no, doesn't exist. That is bollocks. I just made that up. <laughs> Uh, Grumpy Ness. Yeah. yeah, there you go. It says, extremely depressed monster, often plays board games against himself. <laughs> Fair enough. Heavy Ness, lovely Ness, and that's the only female Nessie apart from her high Ness. She has long blonde hair. Oh. Mighty Ness. Was there not a hairy Ness? <laughs> no, apparently not. Naughty Ness, Lil Ness, which is apparently a bright orange one. Hmm. Silly Ness, Speedy Ness. Sportiness and hungriness. There you go. Is that gingerness, scariness? Do we have any more of the Spice Girls? Sportiness. Yeah, we had sportiness and we had babyness. Yeah. Poshness. Poshness, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was fantastic. It ran for 25 episodes of Five Minutes a Pop. It was originally aired on Channel One. Related shows, Jimbo and the Jet Set and oh, Penny Crayon. I remember Jimbo and the Jet Set, I love that, yeah. Oh, Penny Crayon. Had a good theme song. I distinctly... Penny Crane was good. Well, so did the family Ness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Was it Jumbo Jumbo? Jumbo and the Jets. Jet set, yeah. I, I distinctly remember when I was at primary school, I went home and for tea, I had fish and chips and I got a fishbow stuck in my throat and had to go to hospital. <laughs> and all that they had there for, for a child of my age to read for about five hours, literally about five hours was while I was waiting, was a kind of annual of uh, Jumbo. Jimbo. Jimbo, Jumbo. Jimbo and the Jets. Huh? Yeah. What, what happened? Was your throat okay? It was okay. And in the future, I was told that if it was to happen again, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to get a little ball of bread. So you basically get a bit of bread, roll it into a little ball and swallow it. New Gen Podcast, saving lives. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, he didn't do that to me. He stuck a load of long tweezers down my throat and yanked it out. Sounds lovely. I got to keep it. I kept, I kept the bone for... Um, Posterity. Yeah. Have you still it, got it? No, it was, it, was like, it was in a little bit of gauze in a pot on my mum's shelf. Loveliness. Yeah. yeah, loveliness. And it didn't put you off fish and chips? No, I, I worked hard to get over that phobia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this pay-per-view fucking stinks. <laughs> we have to resort to talking about the family Ness. Moment 14 comes from episode 78, Survivor Series 1992, and sees Paul slightly confused about who the good guy is in the conflict between the big boss man and Nails. Can we talk about Sean Mooney? Sean Mooney, whom I love, is stood by (laughs) backstage and warns us that viewer discretion is advised in our next dead encounter. Do you you really love him? He's like Todd Pettengill, but good at his job. He's a... 
He's like Charlie State of the BBC Breakfast News. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see Sean Mooney on BBC Breakfast News. Yeah, yeah, national what, news anchor. What's his background? Because he does sound like a newsman. I don't know his, his background, but he's been in the WWF for a long time at this point. He, his tenure kind of ends in early 1993. I think probably Pettingill is actually his replacement. But yeah, he's, he's been around a long time. It was interesting. I wasn't necessarily his biggest fan. No? He had no charisma. You're wrong. <laughs> Just putting that out what, there. What, what sort of charisma was it? Was it a quiet charisma? It was a normal charisma of a man interviewing. Yeah, I, 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 I preferred Alfred. Alfred's, Alfred's got some moments. I think you're wrong. Yeah, you're outvoted there. But, but, also, but also, okay, Sean Mooney. Yeah. Which Simpsons character does he sound most like? I don't know. Principal Skinner. You listen to him. <laughs> that, that is Principal Skinner's voice. He actually turned up, was it last year or the year before, in the Edge and Christian show, just like randomly out of nowhere. Mm. Hadn't appeared on WWF TV in like 20 years and then just turned up in a skit in the Edge and Christian show. Nice. How bizarre. Yeah. They must be big fans. I guess so. Mooney brings in Nails, who looks like he's just spit a drink down the front of his jumpsuit. He cuts the same promo. He's cut at every stage of this feud, telling us he was in jail for 2,478 days, thinking about what he'd do to the big boss man when he got out. It goes on and on and on. And I don't think this is actually a particularly long thing, but he really does. He spends a long time not really saying anything. No. Apart from boss man. He says boss man about 50 times in this. He does genuinely look like a psychopath, which befits the gimmick. Yeah. It, the, the construction of the look of the character is quite good. Right. I don't know if it's good or not as a promo. I, I've got no idea if it's a good promo, despite the fact I've watched it. I'm telling you it's not, but go on. But. I am intrigued. Yeah? Oh, intriguing character to come across for the first time. And I've got no clue. Is he supposed to be a face or heel? Hang on, what? He's a heel. But why are they, why, why are they trying to get him so much simpy? I don't, I don't think, think they're trying to get him any simpy. No one's got him any simpy. I think... Do you not think so? Bobby Heenan's got sarcastic simpy. Hang on, you, you can't clock that Nails is a heel. Well, I assume that he was supposed to be a heel. I think it's really ambiguous in this match. Boss man! The fact he looks like a raving maniac. No, no, I I, I was wondering if he was trying to come across as... Wrongly convicted? Yeah, wrongly convicted, (laughs) kind of. In all fairness to Scribbins here, it would be very interesting. I don't know how much longer Nails hangs around for, but we never saw him in 93, so I'm guessing it's not long. (laughs) Uh, So you'll be able to tell us. But there is fuel there to progress the character in some way. We never know what he's done. No. And so it could be revealed, and the, the, it would be the weirdest face turn in history <laughs> if Nails became a face. But I think that there is potential there to develop the character in some way if he was a good wrestler. See, see, I, I, I did wonder if it, if it was kind of they were going for him as a kind of albeit a bit scary, a wrongly convicted character. This, um, with the big boss man being the kind of evil authority figure. Th- this isn't like a really well thought out diatribe on police brutality. This is the big boss man's a policeman. He's a good guy. What would be a good bad guy for a policeman? A criminal. End of story. Like that's the level. No, of no. Like that's genuinely didn't it. get it. I, I felt that from from all of the stuff that was saying. I, I felt that there were probably. <laughs> Positioning nails as a face character. Gosh, gosh, I feel like I've got egg on my face now. (laughs) Let's have a think about this in terms of the way that nails looks, the way that he talks, and the way that he behaves. What crime? (laughs) What crime did he commit? I dread to think. 
I'm, some sort of like multiple homicide, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, that, there was that lady that got um, done for, for picking up that £20 mail, wasn't there? What? Have you seen that in the news like this last week? There was a woman who got... Um, she, she, she literally... <laughs> Can I just stop you for a second? I've missed your stories. Go on. <laughs> no, no word of a lie. Picked up a 20 Somebody dropped a £20 note in a shop. She picked it up. Uh, I think at some random point in the future, the police take her in and say, you know, we're just, nothing's going to happen. And then so, so she goes in and says, yeah, well, I don't know if she admitted to it or not originally. <laughs> Sorry, I, I missed out some of the important details here, didn't I? <laughs> she um, picked up 20 quid and the police bought her in. Is that yeah, what you're trying to say? At, at some point later. But she went again and said, oh, nothing's going to happen. They then brought her back in a few weeks later with CCTV evidence. So she's like, okay, yeah, that, that was me. And then she, she got done as well. She pleaded guilty. She got done. And she had to pay like... £20? Not £20. Like, like it was a couple of hundred pounds in compensation and legal fees and things. Compensation to who? The victim. Whoever the victim was. She so, went, someone that lost 20 quid. She went to jail for 2,478 days. So what we're saying is that potentially Nails picked up $20 in, in like a quickie mark. Well, I wasn't sure if this woman was face or heel. <laughs> It's more likely that he would have committed a crime like that other woman got convicted for, which was picking up a cat and dropping it in a bin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not remember that? That, that, that was on the news that, a couple yeah. of years ago. There's like footage of this woman. She's, it's really horrible, but also really funny. She walks along, sees a cat, picks it up by the scruff of the net and lobs yeah. it in a wheelie bin. Yeah, and she, she got really hated on by the general well, public after so. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's so bizarre. Like, What sort of person walks along and says, hmm, there's a pet, I'll put it in a bin? Anyway... I feel like we've broken down Nails as a character. Maybe Nails put a cat in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but he did, like, so, so just go, to go kind of aside, he didn't get on with Vince, did he? Well, we'll get to that. Anyway, he says he's going to break the big boss man's legs and shove his nightstick down his throat. I genuinely believe him. Can I also say that, because I think, <laughs> I think the boss man also says something about shoving a nightstick. And every time they say, I'm going to take this nightstick, I always think they're going to say, shove it up his arse. <laughs> But they always say, shove it down his throat or break his legs. I do love the way Sean Mooney no-sells the promo by not being afraid of him, as we just... <laughs> we get, like, a really bizarre camera shot of nothing for about five seconds. Like, it's focused in on where Nails was, but he's gone. So you can hear Sean Mooney talking, but just see a blurry shot of a wall. Imagine the director's just like, stay on the wall, stay on the wall, stay on the wall. Go. Cut. Unlucky for some, Moment 13 is another from episode 75, Bad Blood in Your House, and features the debut of The Undertaker's younger brother. It's only a matter of time, once again, JR tells us. Until. lights go out and organ music plays. Paul Bearer appears in the entranceway alongside a masked seven-foot monster. There's a bit of a ten-second delay, but the crowd pops big when they clock who Mm. this is and what's Mm. happening. Vince gets in the call of his life, shouting, that's gotta be Kane. That's gotta be be Kane. Kane. In the ring, Taker looks bemused. 
Easily, Kane rips the door off the cell and rams Earl Hebner into the side of it. Kane steps over the top rope and enters the ring to stare down the Undertaker. Look at the size of that human being. If that even is a human being, bellows JR. <laughs> Kane brings his arms down and fire erupts from the turnbuckles. As it does, Kane lifts Taker up and drills him down to the canvas with a tombstone. Kane leaves the cell. Paul Bearer follows, a smug look on his face. In the ring, Shawn Michaels, with what little left he has, crawls across the ring. His face covered in a crimson mask, he drapes his arm across the Undertaker. Earl Hebner slides into the ring and wearily counts the one, two and three, giving Shawn Michaels the win at 29.55. The slowest three counts of all time. Fucking cool ending to a match. That is just like you were telling us the, like an actual story. That was nice. It's, well, it is, isn't it? It's a brilliant... It's one of the best constructed stories in wrestling. It's been sort of like simmering away for months. Six of them. Six months this has been going on. And the anticipation is kind of... It's at the back of people's minds, but it can only grow. Right. A couple of things that I'd add into this is I'm fairly sure that just as Kane's about to do his arms and pyro bits, that one of the commentary team, I don't know who it is, says, watch this. Okay. Like they're kind of preempting what's going to happen. I'm fairly sure that I'll happens. I'll have to go back and listen. But also the, the tombstone bit where he can't work out which camera to face. Yeah, bless him. Which I thought, like, that's the one thing that just takes a little gloss off. I, I, I kind of liked it in a way because from, from that perspective, right, yeah, we, we know he's trying to work out where the best camera shot is. But from another one, he's, he's showing, showing everyone what he's going to do to okay. his brother. Watch this. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Hunter, Hurst, Helmsley and China enter the ring to pick Shawn Michaels up. Rick Rude helps them through the ropes. JR says that Michaels has defeated The Undertaker, with Vince saying that no, it was Kane that defeated The Undertaker. JR reminds us that Michaels is going to the Survivor Series to meet the WWF champion. Jerry Lawler says that we now know that Paul Bearer wasn't lying. Kane is alive. We see a replay of Taker staring down what may very well be the younger brother he long thought dead. We see Kane's tombstone and Taker begin to come to as the show ends. Absolutely amazing. Just fantastic stuff. I love this very early Kane mask. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's so, so masked. You know, as, as the character progresses, he loses more and more of his mask until eventually he doesn't have one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the least mask you can have. Yeah, yeah. but but at this f- full mask, it's really, really good because you can't see anything going behind it. Yeah. And it's it's really cold, even though he's a really hot character. It's, it's very bizarre. You've got but mystique. I, I, yeah, I, I love the look of it. So when talking about the best matches we've seen on the podcast, and this is objectively personal favouritism aside, so... Paul, I won't mention Brett versus Austin at Survivor Series 1996 if you don't mention the Hogbed match. Okay. On the podcast, the best matches we've seen, it's pretty elite. So we're probably looking at Brett versus Owen at Mania 10. Yeah. Sean versus Razor at Mania 10. Sean versus Mankind at Mind Games. And Brett versus Austin at Mania 13. I think, mm. you know, if we're looking at those regarded as the best we've seen, I think those are probably it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This may very well be number one with a bullet. Mm. This is yeah, because this incorporates so much more. It's it's a really like interesting 
point where we've got this colossal gimmick. We've got this super long-running, venomous storyline with our two main characters. Plus, we've got the introduction of a highly built-up, mysterious new character. It all it all points converge at this one moment, and it's it's so massive. This may very well be both the best cage match and the best Hell in a Cell match in history. Mm. I've not seen them all, but this is spectacularly good. Slightly off, well, not not off topic really, but have you seen the the recent Hell in a Cell and what's happened with that at all? No, I've not watched it. That. that was last weekend. I've not watched any. Have, have you heard any reports of it? If it's supposed to be any good. I think the matches themselves were decent, but none of them are even going to be on the level of this. Well, no, but um, it's just just interesting to draw that kind of parallel with the modern day. And, and, you know, I guess it's been much covered, but how much the overuse of the cell has just... I mean, that's degraded a, something quite special. I mean, it's always going to happen. That's but. a topic for a whole other time, this yeah. sort of philosophy of it's October, so we have a hell in a cell, rather than we've come to this point between these two performers where nothing will settle it except Hell in a Cell. And I mean, that's what cage matches were. That's, you know, in the old days of wrestling, that was what they were designed to do, was everything between these two people has come to a point where they cannot be contained or their buddies and partners and managers and associates, you know, keep interfering that we need to put them in a cage to resolve this. Which is, Ryan, I think this is really interesting with the Elimination Chamber, because I think the Elimination Chamber works really well as a yearly event. Because for me, that makes sense. You're going to have this six-person match. Yeah, I'm I'm more okay with that as a yearly event because if you can construct an issue where six people need to be locked inside a cage, that's... um, But but if if they're competing for something, that's not necessarily... That's not designed to be the blow-off to a feud. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tournament within a match, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, so that I can live with. But the idea that, yeah, Hell in a Cell, because it's October, TLC, because it's December. Yeah, I mean, but that's a whole other topic. I think by the time you, you reach the... Undertaker, Mankind, Hell in the Cell. All subsequent Hell in the Cells are rare, highly anticipated super events that everyone has a, a special sort of like interest in watching. And now Hell in the Cell is a yearly event. Where you where have three on the card. And you just don't care about it. The entire segment here, from start to finish, is pure pro wrestling spectacle. Yeah. Mm. And it's and it's it's hit on the mark. Nothing is nothing misses a beat on it. It's it's all perfectly constructed. It has a baby face you want to see kick the shit out of a heel you want to see have the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. And he's like the most hateable heel at this point. To, to be honest, credit to Shawn Michaels, he has done that job of Oh yeah, yeah. You he's the man that you love to hate here, isn't he? Yes. Sean bumps around like an absolute boss, just as he did last month, and finds convincing ways to get offense in on a guy way bigger than him. Yep. Yes, and he, it can't be easy. Everything's difficult. Everything's a struggle, but he does make it look se- semi-competitive. Yes. Which is the best that you can hope for in this sort of situation. The blade job is brutal, and the bump he takes off the side of the cell is incredible, even if it gets topped twice, eight months mm. from now. Yes. And then there's the finish. Yeah, that's dead good. And, and like, like, I mean, you've said this... Probably for about six months now, Adam. But this is probably the best introduction of any character ever and may well not be topped. After six months of build, we finally get to see the debut of Kane. And I'll tell you why having him debut here is genius. Because he hasn't been mentioned on TV in a month. We've had months and months of build with Bearer and Kane going back to April. 
But then Taker gets sidetracked into this really heated issue with Shawn Michaels and things go quiet on the Kane front. He was kind of mentioned between SummerSlam and Ground Zero, but since Ground Zero, not a word uttered. And then boom, here he is. But mm. It's so different. It's such a unique way of building a character, isn't it? Because we've been used to the person that you see at ringside, the person that has their videos that you show. We haven't seen Kane. We don't know what he looks like. All we know is he was a presumed burned to death as a child. Yeah. And we don't know really any more about him, apart from that he's probably pretty cranky with The Undertaker. We, we, we still don't know what he looks like, even though we've seen him. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's absesolutely wonderful. I almost think that Glenn Jacobs was building credit. Yeah. You're an <laughs> evil dentist. Oh, bastard. And now you're Diesel. Oh, fuck. But that credit then gives you the best character and the best introduction that anyone will ever have. The genius is that you're not necessarily expecting Kane to debut here. There's no, bar the subtle hint at the end of the previous Raw, and the announcers don't even go into that. You've just got this kind of smoke and glowing red light. No one says, well, that must be something to do with Kane. So you're not waiting for him. You're not craning your neck down the aisle expecting him. And that's evidenced by the fact that, yeah, when that music hits and he walks out, there is 10 seconds of the crowd sort of... What's this? There's a pause, and then they fucking clock who this is, mm. and what's happening. Yeah, and the is... fact that he looks scary. Yes, he is a scary-looking individual in this. The, the, the costume has been designed in, in yeah. such a way where he's pretty much like Michael Myers or something. It's funny that you mention that. fucking walked out. Well, it's, it's that idea. I mean, I think the, you know, that red and black combination just works so well. You, you know, we've got the darkness of the character, the, the the red for danger. There's almost the, and the a kind of robotic, unstoppable motions that yeah. he makes, the way that he, that he wrenches the door off, mm. the, the way that he gets in the ring where he reaches up and he just grabs the middle or the top rope yeah. and yeah. hauls himself yeah. up in one motion and steps over. It's it's so purposeful and, and so, yeah, like I say, unstoppable. Mm. The, the doors, are, I think, an interesting one because they're something that you know, in this kind of moment, could go very wrong. Well, if you can't so, get the door off. If you can't off. get the door off. that time Mark Henry tried yeah. to do it, yeah. Or yeah. when Mark Henry tried to take his trousers off. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it didn't go wrong, and it worked beautifully. Yeah. Having Kane debut here also has the positive side effect of taking Taker away from Sean without yeah. having beaten him. <laughs> it gives him a reason to leave Sean alone now yeah. without having killed him. It's... It's, it's fucking long, brilliant. Yeah, it's long-ranging thinking, future planning. This is how this is going to work. And it's going to work perfectly. You also know, and we do know because we watched the opening segment of the following Raw earlier, that Sean is going to be a right cunt about winning. Mm. Yes. And, and, and that gets him even more heat. Yeah. Because he hasn't beaten... Okay, you draped your arm and Earl Hebner counted three, but you didn't beat The Undertaker. Yeah. He barely survived. Exactly. And But the, you know... Th- the introduction of the Kane character is so much more important to The Undertaker at this point that he has to leave Sean alone. Exactly. He has to concentrate on something bigger. Jim Cornette goes into a good amount of detail on the debut of Kane on the Timeline DVD. He says that he took the idea of having Kane rip the cage door off from how Kevin Sullivan debuted Doug Furness in Continental Wrestling in Knoxville in late 1986. Wow. He also details how Glenn Jacobs would have been released had Kane not been a success. Okay. Third time's the charm. Yeah. 
Cornette says he knew Jacobs would be a success as Kane, having had prior experience working under a mask, along with the fact that the gimmick wasn't bullshit. Mm. Yes, you're not a dentist. Cornette takes credit for the design of the character as well, claiming he took inspiration from the Michael Myers character in Halloween. Well, there you go. If one criticism can be levied at the match, it's the fact that within about 15 minutes of this no way in, no way out contest, they're on the outside of the cage. Admittedly, they came up with a pretty clever way as to have a reason for the door to be opened, but you could potentially consider going outside of the cage and up on the top of the cage in the structure's first bout, potentially blew the gimmick right out of the gate, meaning that this match would be difficult to top. Difficult, but not impossible. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, but the next one would be impossible to top. Any final thoughts you want to share on it? Watch this match. If you've not seen it, watch it. If you've seen it, watch it again. again. It's brilliant. This is one that I was looking forward to so much and delivered on every single account. It was pretty much the opposite of me with that minutes match from earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, you know, take it or leave it, I'd say. <laughs> no, um, you prefer it if it was held in a hog pen? That would be an interesting construct. Do you mean you just fill a cell full of pig Pigs. shit? <laughs> Can awful hell. I've still not seen that one, by the way. Right, with this match, I had seen it, but I'm I'm literally guessing it would be in the region of 10 years ago. Right. And I think what I've done is I bought, like, the, is it Tombstone Undertaker set? Yeah, it's on that. And it was at a time that there was quite a lot of matches on there that I wanted to see. So I was I basically spent, you know, time kind of whizzing through some of the matches I wanted to see and didn't give this the attention that it deserved. Because I remember it being like, you know, that's good. I enjoyed it. Having watched these things in context makes it so much better. Because that's, that's the genius of it, yeah. isn't it? That you, when you watch it in a set and it's just an isolated yeah. event, you don't have any of the run-up to it, but we've obviously watched everything, mm. everything that runs up to this, and we know the story inside and out, and it, it is just, it's, the, it's the final act. Because, I mean... It's brilliant. But also the first act. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it, or the yeah. end of the first yeah. act for one story. Yeah, yeah. We could bring a soap opera analogy into wrestling, really, couldn't we? But with, we, we won't. With this, I mean, like, if you'd have asked me to rate this match when I first saw it, to be perfectly honest, I'd probably given it three and a half stars. Right, and that—that's not being kind of. Don't know what I mean. It feels wrong that I say that now, but but I didn't rate it as like one of the best matches that I'd ever seen before. Is it because you'd seen the mankind match, and therefore it could never be as as as. Sp- spectacular as, as those um, bumps possibly but i do think that there's a few elements that, that are really key here the aggression so and that's something that i didn't pick up on as much when i first saw it kind of the hard-hitting nature and actually why the undertaker is being so physical it sounds like a few things but he's so physical in this match you've got the kind of clever bit of storytelling to get the cage opened. Whereas I guess once I've seen other Hell in a Cells, it's a case of, oh, they just need to get out and it doesn't matter how. Yeah. And actually I think how I hadn't appreciated why they needed the cell before. It was just a Hell in a Cell for the sake of Hell in a Cell. But here there is that reason for having this as a stipulation for a match. And I think you've got some good bumping. The level of kind of, as I say, offense between Taker dominating everything and little bits from Sean. You've got the build-up for Kane coming in. 
and also the forward planning for what's going to happen beyond this match. When you take all of those bits together, this is undoubtedly a five and a half star match. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, that like, <laughs> no, because it'd be five star for the match, but then like the forward planning just gets an extra half a star. <laughs> so, the bonus half star. You say that, but I do think, if I'm not wrong, there are a couple of matches that have been rated at like six stars. So. <laughs> have they? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, but but I'm not but like I genuinely, and you know th- this is something talking about kind of us sitting down talking as a, as a bunch of guys. You know, we we start not quite start off day, but early on in our conversation today, we've sat down and we've had one of the most uncomfortable discussions. Yeah. That. Well, the most uncomfortable discussion that we've had in, in this podcast. True. That was genuinely awkward to sit through. We took a break. Obviously, there'll yeah. be no break for people on the show, but yeah. we went yeah. out and kind yeah. of, yeah. like, shit, just need, uh, like, 15 minutes I, to kind I, of... I need a cuppa, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I have loved talking about this match as much as I loved watching it. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that says something. When, when you... Because, actually... If I'm talking to you, there's little bits that I hadn't picked out as much before. It's like, that makes it even better. That ma- that even tops that. It not that a lovely thing to be able to say about wrestling? Absolutely. Giving away a million dollars sounds like great television, right? Wrong. Moment 12 from episode 70, SummerSlam 1997, details what can go awry. We follow this with one of the most bizarre segments in WWF pay-per-view history. I probably won't have included the audio here because it just goes on forever. It's the million dollar giveaway. Yeah, this was weird. It was gold. Absolute gold. Entertaining, fucked up, but weird. I'll be honest, I really paid attention to this. <laughs> well, I paid attention to some of it. Hosted by Todd Pettingill and his glamorous assistants, Sonny and Sable, we meet two fans who have been flown in specifically for the chance to win one million dollars. This was something that played out over weeks of WWF TV. They kind of had these clues that you had to guess a phrase or something, even though it wasn't really that you had to guess it. It was just they told you week after week what you had to say. It was kind of weird. So you collected phrases. Yeah, it it was the key to a life of luxury was the phrase. So like the first clue was a key. (laughs) The next... The next thing was a hotel room with the number 2A on it. You, you get yeah, where I'm going. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't particularly cryptic. It sounds like some of the stuff that you used to get on Channel 5, where there'd be a competition, and you know, where they just wanted everybody to call in. And so it's, it's an animal. It's three letters. It begins with C. There's an A in there somewhere. It ends in a T. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Sort call of... in. As soon as, you, as soon as you figure this one out, give me a call. Yeah, it's stuff like, who scored last week for Manchester United? Was it A, David Beckham, B, the Queen, C, Nelson Mandela? (laughs) If you can figure this one out, I mean, mean, just look it up on the internet. (laughs) Just look up the word cat in a dictionary and then call me, say the word cat. And we'll charge you (laughs) (laughs) £1.50. Firstly, we meet 12-year-old Ryan Chaddick, who picks Key 52, and Patrick Stevenson, who looks a bit like an anemic Steve Austin, or more accurately, just incredible, who picks (laughs) Key 13. (laughs) This is where it goes off a cliff. (laughs) Todd says we're going to call two more people to participate. Why? Right now, no. They can't do this right, because they give away a house. Yeah, before, and this happened, when he was with Stephanie Wyand. Wyand. Yeah. 
and the same bloody thing happened. But why have two people been flown in and two on the phone? Maybe they... they... It's because if, if that's phoned four people, it would kill them. Why didn't they just pick four people from the crowd? Yes, that would be been Yes. Like, that would have been so less painful. Why didn't they do just Miss NWO? <laughs> really? No, we won't watch that again. Well, one highlight of this segment is the fact that Sonny's tits are practically hanging out of her top. Yeah, and they appear to be, have been well greased as well. Which oh, I greased. would have thought that you wouldn't want them lubricated if you wanted them to stay in that jacket. Todd has a good stare, which Jerry Lawler picks up on. Yes, like almost constantly, he makes no shame of it. Well, to be fair, she does hold the phone numbers. Oh, like, well, no, in front of a bust, and then he says, "Bit lower, bit lower, bit." There you go. <laughs> fair enough, Todd Pettingill. <laughs> the first phone number they dial, nobody answers. But also, it takes forever to dial. Well, you, do you see the size of the? She's oh, it's she's an got a list of about hundred phone numbers. Eight four pieces of paper of like size ten font of <laughs> and hun- hundreds of phone numbers. <laughs> but, but it's like it's like keep ringing. We'll, we'll have one more ring. No, no, nobody's home. This is great TV, guys. <laughs> I'm glad I paid twenty nine ninety five for this. The second one disconnected. <laughs> the third one, and this is probably the best isn't watching SummerSlam because his cable company doesn't carry it. Are are you watching SummerSlam on pay-per-view? No. No. (laughs) Also, I don't think he has a clue who they are. (laughs) Todd who? (laughs) Well, they're like, fuck it, let's just give him a chance anyway. Just pick a number, please. Please pick a number, quickly. Quickly pick me any number, any number, please. Or the next one, they just don't ask him whether he's watching. Yeah. 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 But I don't get why we were introduced to the two people that were there first. And then they go they to the phone. They pick their number and then they go to the phone. But, but presumably, if they won the million dollars, they wouldn't then be able to go to the phone. Yeah, but that would have saved us about ten minutes. Yeah, but this is such glorious television. It makes it really doesn't make any sense. Either you have everyone as a call, or you have everyone there. Don't don't have two people there and two people that you call in. It's just weird. Well, the bloke on the phone, whose name I didn't write down, picks key thirty three. We get a good look at both Sonny and Sable's bottoms at this point in the segment. Nice. So, Adam, this is probably the first time we've actually just seen them side by side. You know, a direct comparison. Which one are you going with? It's Sonny, really. I think I think we did talk about this before, of, of the, the women that are around in the WWF. I think Sonny has a, a more of an alert because she's got a personality. And the problem is with Sable, she doesn't appear to have one. Well, I actually watched the WWE documentary last week where Lita told me Sable had a big personality. She's lying. Oh, okay. Did she say a good one, just a big one? She had a big personality. She's got two lovely personalities that have been surgically enhanced, but I'm not sure that she's a good talker. How would you surgically enhance a personality? Um, Silicon. Yeah, okay. She should go down the charisma gym. Sonny tries, but Key 33 doesn't work. Oh, unlucky. They dial a fourth person who answers. Todd doesn't bother asking her if she's watching SummerSlam. Contestant number four, Rebecca, picks key 14. Sable tries to unlock the casket, but it's a loser. Why is it in a casket? Because the Undertaker. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I've got a coffin with a million dollars in it. Do you want to win it? It's really, really hard. And also, why did they give the phone people the opportunity to open it first? 
But it doesn't really matter about the order because only one of them's got the right key. I know, but if you'd been flown out there, I just, I just think you'd want the chance like quicker than the people that are on the other end of the phone that aren't even watching. To, to be fair, the, the kid and the guy are having a great time with Sonny. <laughs> so Sonny had her arm around the guy and it, like he couldn't look more pleased. Twelve-year-old Ryan tries his key and it doesn't work. Lawler says his life is ruined. <laughs> He gets a hug from Sable, which pops the crowd. So <laughs> And his pants, probably. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> I did you have fun at SummerSlam? Yeah, I got my first erection. <laughs> I didn't win the million, but I don't care. Well, he gets a $5,000 saving bond, don't they, for, like, losing? Yeah. Well, Pettingill didn't even tell the first call of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's not watching. Fuck him. I'm having that fucking round. <laughs> Patrick tries his key and it doesn't work either. The winning key was three. The end. <laughs> I, just, I so thought that, okay, well, this is clearly something that's going to rock on. So they'll take the same lot of numbers yeah. to the next pay-per-view. There's four less, so your odds are slightly increased until someone wins. <laughs> Not some bellend comes out and says, it was number three. <laughs> but, but I like the way- Here's what you could have won. <laughs> None of the contestants. So what were the numbers chosen? They were 33, 14... 13? 13 and, f- and something else. Yeah, 14. okay. I don't know. It, does, it doesn't really matter, but go on. Well, I'll definitely choose a prime number, so 13 had a shot, but... Well, three was the winner. Which is prime. <laughs> well, there you go. You could so have won a million dollars. also the magic number, isn't it? What was the point in this? I don't fucking know. And it really had an air of... Did you ever watch Bullseye? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, like, you've lost. Let's have a look at what you could have won. <laughs> it's a lovely powerboat. But it's, it's a lovely million dollars. Can you smell it, kid? Can you smell that million dollars? You, you know, it could have been yours. It's all in singles as well. <laughs> a million single notes. <laughs> in a coffin. It takes, oh. Do you get the coffin as well? I, I hope so. <laughs> you need something to carry in. Yeah, in other words, this was, this was compelling viewing, but utter shit. You know what this was, though, don't you? It's the partridge segment with the kidney dialysis <laughs> machine. Yes, it is, it really like, is. It's just that all over uh, again. No, it doesn't qualify as a break. We're going to have to send it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pointless. Just so, so pointless. But, but like I say, just compelling watching because it, it's like a it's a it's a crash of a giveaway. Mm. Do, do you think Vince was just like sat there sweating like I really can't afford to give away a million dollars? Please don't pick key I've number ma- three. I've made it so yeah. hard. This but, is a terrible idea. But don't you think that there's just like key, key number three, key number three? Let me let me pick that for you. Then pick key number four. <laughs> <laughs> Moment eleven is lifted from episode eighty three. Starcade 1997 and sees Lex Luger attempt to bring Buff Bagwell up to his level. Stay tuned at the end for a bonus advert from WCW Monday Nitro. Scott Norton drags Bagwell out of the ring as Miss Elizabeth runs down the aisle, which is the best part of this entire segment this, to help the macho man to his feet. This saved the match because it was at least enjoyable. Which bit? Miss Elizabeth's running down the ramp. <laughs> Who are you going to say that? Oh, my word. Um, <laughs> this, the way you've described this, I don't know how you do it, but you've made that sound like a five-star classic version of what it really was. <laughs> Just cut out about 
eight minutes of chin locks. Oh, it was just... There was just like, I don't actually remember anything happening apart from, like, the very final, perhaps two or three minutes, when it's kind of like interference, torture rack, blah-de-blah. Oh, but it was dull as you like. I wasn't impressed. Yep. Bad match. Boring. Not good. Heatless. It was, like, upsettingly bad. Yeah. Really bad. And only saved by Miss Elizabeth's Baywatch impression again. (laughs) Well, I've actually got an exclusive for the show here. It's the conversation between Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger backstage prior to the match. (laughs) Never heard before. So, basically, what happened was Buff goes up to Lex and is like, Lex, this is my big match. This is my chance to ascend to main event status. They've given us 16 and a half minutes. How do we fill minutes 2 to 14? And Lex responds, rest holds. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of rest holds. Bagwell says, anything else? Luger says, nope, just rest holds. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's what happened, isn't it? Nope. John no, just chin locks and a sleep hold. <laughs> Job done. Jobs yeah, are good. This was not a good use of 16 minutes of my life. <laughs> but it's the thing is, like, Starcade is their biggest show of the year, right? In theory, yes. And lots of eyes on it, particularly. Well, you know, well the most eyes. Most, most eyes. So let's, you know, let's really kind of capitalise on this opportunity, folks. Like what was what was Eric Bischoff thinking? We've got, <laughs> we've got a sixteen-minute match. All right, who's a cardio monster? <laughs> Lex Luger. Yep. <laughs> Who else can work a good one? Buff Bagwell. <laughs> yep, that'll work. Put it on. You've got other people sitting. You want loads of people sitting in the fucking audience. Ultimo Dragon. This is like the the. the 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 ludicrosity of it, and I know that's not a word. <laughs> but how? Like they they must have been sitting there, seething with anger. Yeah, even even like Alex Wright, yeah, would have been sitting there thinking, "Jesus, I could do better." They than they, this. they should have literally just jumped up, got in the ring, done some twirly stuff, and <laughs> saved it. If someone had just hopped the barricade... And just started having another match. And just said, this is shit, (laughs) and then just had another match, that would have been better. I guess if you want to look at what it's achieving or trying to achieve is, yes, it is trying to bring Buff Bagwell up and kind of take a guy who's a bit lower down the card and elevate him a bit further up the card, but it doesn't work. Has Lex Luger ever demonstrated himself as being someone that can take a lower talent and raise them up to his game? No. He's not, he, like, he's, he's not got that quality that, that Brett's got. And even Sean has that quality if he wants oh, yeah. to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there are people that are able to do this. Macho Man can do that. Yeah. Lex Luger just... He's, he bemuses me with his reactions sometimes because <laughs> he is so popular in some places but doesn't seem to embody any of the qualities of a really top-line performer, it apart is, from being big. It's thoroughly inexplicable. This was shite, but it was a 16-minute match between Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger, so what do you expect? Yes, I would have rather watched Miss Elizabeth run to and from the ring for 16 and a half minutes. <laughs> oh, man. Or, or if they'd just take, taken that rundown shot and doing what they did with that Pixies video and super slow-mode it. So yes. actually from the top of the ramp... To the ring, took 16 minutes, 
I would have watched that. Or just looped the same 10 seconds for 16 <laughs> minutes. Do, we made do, a gif of this run. Do you, do you ever worry about yourselves, boys? What? No. In, in what way? That, that that's kind of what you're dreaming up? Or, well, or that I've found a, a, a healthy pair of knockers <laughs> more exciting than Buff Bagwell versus Lex Luger. No, I'm not worried about that, actually. I'm fairly comfortable with it. Did you find Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell's 16-minute extravaganza more fun? No. All right, then. I'm glad we're clear on <laughs> that. But, but, I'm, but what I'm not doing is I'm not talking about <laughs> super slow-mowing down <laughs> a woman in a dress running to a wrestling ring to last for 16 minutes. I'm not against the idea. Yeah, seen worse ideas. This portion of the New Generation Project podcast is brought to you by Valvoline, the number one choice of America's top mechanics. People who know use Valvoline. <laughs> Adam regularly uses Valvoline on all his moving parts. <laughs> Sorry, that advert's just on like every episode of Nitro. <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll get a sponsorship from Valvoline but... <laughs> can, can only <laughs> we'll be sure to make good use of it <laughs> you can use it the next time your car breaks yeah. down probably what, not on the tyre or what, the brakes what, what is it? it's, it's a, a lubricant a lubricant yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> we reached the top 10 moments in the history of the new generation project podcast with number 10 from episode 80 survivor series 1997 part 2 is it the montreal screw job is it brett hart punching vince mcmahon in the locker room is it sean crying nope it's paul changing his tire on the way to mcdonald's and giving himself a nickname this feels very much like like a conflict between two little children it's like you come here you say that naughty boys okay go away now <laughs> that, that's what it feels like isn't it do you have to have that conversation with the Scrivens brothers? Only one of them at the minute. <laughs> Only one can talk, right? Yeah. Although the other one, I think, is on his way. The other one, the Sultan. He's got a tongue. Okay. <laughs> I hear your, your son's giving you a new nickname, Paul. Big fella. <laughs> but, but to be fair, I've encouraged that. Say <laughs> so what other names you can get him to call you. I'm, I'm sticking with Big Fella. No, I had, a, I had a tricky night last night with the boys, actually. Go on, then. Okay, right, I'll, I'll tell the story. As soon as you wanted me to. So, got home early from work. So I, I said, I'm going to take you to McDonald's. So, it's always on my own. Oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Right. You're treating the kids to a McDonald's. How magnanimous of you, Paul. D- didn't you actually say, Daddy wants McDonald's? No, no, he said, Big fella wants a McDonald's. <laughs> no, You're coming as well. No, no, because you'll love the start of this story, because I've missed it out. The start of, <laughs> the start of this story is... Mrs. Screwings was having a night out. Do you know where she went? An Ollie Murs concert. You do? It was an Ollie Murs she concert. She put it up on Facebook and I thought, oh my God. A form of social media, we do understand how it <laughs> yeah. works. It contains videos, images and words. But you, Adam, a multimedia might But say. Adam, for the record, prefers Twitter because there's more tits on it. Yeah, I can't for the life of me work out why Facebook censors so much. <laughs> Twitter doesn't seem to have such problems. Anyhow, so... Mrs. Scrivens was going off to see Ollie Murs, and so I thought, I'm going to have a treat. I don't want to wash up. 
and, and and you know this would be a nice jaunt out with you know just just the chaps. So I drive to a McDonald's, and it is rammed like it's it's like cattle in there. Well, there is cattle in there because <laughs> that's how they make the burgers. But it like it was it was rammed like the the drive through was rammed at like like I'm not doing that. So so. Baby Scrimmage is getting a bit upset because I start driving away from the McDonald's and he's got himself kind of ready for it. It's like, <laughs> agitated. It's like I need a toy, I need a toy. It's like, it's okay, we're going to McDonald's. I'm going to, go, I'm going to drive to a different one. Like father, like son. Getting so, agitated at leaving McDonald's. <laughs> so, so anyway, kind of go, just driving along and all of a sudden the, the tyre just bang goes. and So I'm just stranded there. As Baby Scrivens kicking up a shitstorm because now he's not going to any McDonald's. Is he going, big fella, where's my Happy Meal? Well, ba- <laughs> Baby Scrivens fell asleep and N'Golo was asleep and then it kind of went bang and so they kind of woke up. And that was like a couple of minutes where things were just like, okay, sort out what, what's happened here. So I start getting like the spare tyre out of the boot, which is quite good for me that I could even manage that because I'm not really the most kind of mechanic-y kind of person perhaps. Get you might out. Say. Does that surprise you? It does, yes. So anyway, so I get the spare tyre out. And by the time that I've kind of got everything out and kind of laid it all out and kind of got the manual out to see kind of where to put the jack and all all of those things that I don't really know how to do when it, I probably should, N'Golo is kicking off. And as N'Golo is kicking off, then Baby Scrivens then needs a wee. Classic. And it was just hell. It was absolute hell. To fast forward in the story, because I can see from the look on your faces that you're not quite sure where this is going. We, we, we get kind of a breakdown company on the way, but they're going to be a little while. So I actually make a good effort at this. I kind of manage to get the wheel off, unscrew the nuts, get it, get it off, and I put the new one on. Just as I'm tightening up the nuts and, and lowering the jack, I kind of like tighten the nuts, lower the jack, and then really tighten them, because that's what you should do, I think. Yeah, the breakdown van comes. It's like, oh, typical timing, I've just done it. Well, typical you. It took it's, about an hour and a half. Well, no, you, but you think, I'll call the breakdown service, and then because it's taken a while, you think, God, I may as well just do it then. And you start doing, why don't you just do that in the first place? Because I had the kids kicking off. That's that's why. Because you can't hold a screaming baby and change a tyre. Not even the <laughs> F1 pit crews yeah, could do that, and there's loads of them. Well, I, I put this to you, that the kids are strapped in, right? And, the, and the, you've got child locks on your doors. So can't you just shut them in? And change the tyre, therefore <laughs> you, reducing the decibel level of the kids by quite a lot, you know. I, I think leaving kids in that level of distress is probably not a good thing. I don't want to traumatise them if I'm ever going in a car again. You'd already traumatised them by promising them McDonald's and not delivering. I did deliver. Um, anyway. Well, well, that was going to be my question. Does <laughs> so, this story have a happy ending? So, it had a happy meal. <laughs> 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 so anyway, the breakdown guy gets there. So, so it... it I'm sorry, mate. I'm literally, I'm just, I'm just tightening up the screws. So as I look at the nuts are on the wrong way, <laughs> <laughs> and that's really. I'm fairly sure I would have made it home anyway. Anyway, so I kind of decided that it's been so long now. I bet the previous McDonald's that I went to isn't so busy. So did you go back to so, that one? So I went back to that one, and you know what? It was busier. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, like the the. Um, they're actually kind of queuing out on the road for um, for the drive-through, and so and this is kind of similarly with KFC this evening. But at McDonald's, they actually had people out there taking their orders, which is you know good preparation, I guess. But yeah, oh my god, it was hell. I didn't even get to finish my cheeseburger. 
Just my Big Mac. <laughs> before um, Angolo started crying, it's about to drive off a kind of half finished meal. That was like and, a five minute story about the Scrivens family McDonald's outing. And that was my Friday night. <laughs> and then I had to then I had to watch all the wrestling. Wow. I've forgotten what we were talking about. I think we're doing Survivor Series. <laughs> Moment number nine is the longest one on the entire list. So strap yourself in for this. From episode 55, Sold Out, comes the entire Miss NWO contest. We see some of the lovely ladies here for the Miss NWO contest as we join Bischoff and Deviossi at the announce table. Ted has some lovely dad glasses on. Didn't really notice that. You know, like the kind Arn Anderson wears. Oh, I like those, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you are a dad. I'll get some. We see random pictures of women who allegedly wanted to take part in the Miss NWO contest as the crowd chant, boring. Bischoff throws to Jeff Katz, who asks if we're ready to crown Miss NWO. Do you like biker chicks? I don't, now, ordinarily, I'd say yes. Adam, you used to really like Steph from Neighbours, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, she had a leather jacket and a, and yeah. a motorbike. Yeah. What is it with you and women named Steph? It's only McGovern and Scully. Yeah, that's it. And um, (laughs) two, no McMahon, Stephanie. Yeah, we've identified a pattern. Oh shit, there's a trio. (laughs) (laughs) That definitely counts as a type. Yeah. (laughs) All right then. All right. Fair. I'll I'll go with that. These pictures of women that they they flash. Can the crowd see those? I presume not, because there doesn't appear to be any sort then, of video screen that they're watching And at they any seem point. pretty pissed off, don't they? Mm. No, there, like, no, there is a video screen. Yeah, but they don't seem to ever be showing the action on those video screens. Like, the only things we see on that is, like... No, they do. Hall, Bischoff and Nash, or do they? Yeah, there was a bit during a match that I saw from a camera angle where it, it, I thought, oh, that looks weird. But it was the okay. action going on the back. It's smacked of kind of... It's kind of like a reader's wives type feel to... <laughs> To this, to this segment. I think that's making it sound more exciting than it was. <laughs> well, Jeff chats to someone's mum sitting on a bike wearing loads of blusher. <laughs> <laughs> he meets another woman with a mullet who says she'd do anything it takes to tame Kevin Nash. And we're one segment into this, and, and my notes read, this is fucking painful. It's, yeah, her, her mullet's trying to carry her through it, but it's not. it can't overturn this. I mean, surely, surely, somebody must have been there backstage saying, "Let's let's scrap those sections. We'll we'll, we'll do some promos. We'll, we'll do whatever. We're, we're going to fill that time because this is not going anywhere I good." Did, I just I wonder what the pitch for it was. Like, okay, plan. In between matches, we're not going to talk to wrestlers. I'm going to have some slightly rough, awkward-looking women sitting on motorcycles who don't know what they're doing, while some guy comes around and interviews them about. Clearly questions they'd never heard before because yeah. they all look quite, you know, rabbit in headlights whenever they're asked anything. They don't know what to say. Well, it's kind of asking them questions that, that are meant to be, uh, that are meant to be a, a, a suggestive answer. I almost wanted the woman just to say, who's Kevin Nash? <laughs> it was it was a little bit um, blind date. <laughs> that, yes, I've got that, like a shit blind, blind date. date. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it was it was horrific that <laughs> no, because essentially this is all i mean it's quite di- different to kind of wwf kind of in the time period that we're watching because that's titillating is is perhaps the way to go yeah, sonny's job is now to come out and shake her knockers yeah whereas whereas this is let's make fun of some women which is incidentally her job in 2016 as well <laughs> Walked into that one. <laughs> do, do we want to talk about that briefly? 
Not really. Because I told Adam about it, and then I didn't see him for about three weeks. Because <laughs> I'll follow Sunny on Twitter. And in real life. And yeah, <laughs> So she, she constantly tweets, and there was a, a period a, a few months back where everyone just seemed to be asking her, so are you doing this porno film or something? And she just got really pissed off. No, I'm not doing it. I'm never doing it. Not going to do that. Not my job. Not going to do that. And then suddenly it's, oh, she's doing it. All, all wrapped up in a publicity stunt about selling her Hall of Fame ring. Yeah, because she said she's not done that. Yeah. And and, and to that, uh, well, I'd imagine that's what I saying, I'm not doing, I'm not doing it. It's probably also publicity as well. That's going to so. drive interest up. Well, Joey Ryan said, off, <laughs> off, off, offering a different amounts of money to not do it and do something else with him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but needless to say, you'll be watching it when it comes out. There's a certain amount of interest in that, but... Paul, maybe, maybe it'll be one for couples. I, I, I don't know. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. <laughs> I'm next to the band. Hey. <laughs> eh? So, let's talk about <laughs> Jeff Katz, because I'm going to guess you have no idea who he is. Who in the name of God is Jeff Katz? I've, I've heard his name before somewhere, but yeah, what what is this guy? So, first off, here, he is allegedly 18 years old. What? I guess he's had a hard fucking life. He's about 37. Well, he's described at this point as Eric Bischoff's teenage protege. No. So, no. I I can't find his date of birth online, so it might be wrong, but if he's a fucking teenager here, Jesus Christ. 1964. What what was Jeff Katz thinking? (laughs) Katz would later go on to work as a VP of production for 20th Century Fox and New Line Cinema and is credited as an associate producer on cinematic masterpiece Snakes on a Plane. You what? Yep. Stands to reason after this. (laughs) In early 2011, Katz would launch the Wrestling Revolution Project, later renamed as the Wrestling Retribution Project, on Kickstarter, receiving $100,480 from fans backing the project. Taped over three days in October 2011 in an underground warehouse setting, the project would feature a roster including Timothy Thatcher, Joey Ryan, Chris Hero, Chris Masters, The Amazing Red, Davari, Brian Cage, Doc Gallows, Carl Anderson, MVP, Colt Cabana, Sammy Callahan, Kenny Omega, Kenny Dykstra, Adam Pearce, and The Young Bucks. Fucking hell. Pretty good. Yeah, good lineup. Instead of portraying their usual personas, each wrestler was given a character unique to the WRP universe. For example, MVP played a character known as Lord of War, and Chris Masters was known as Concrete. <laughs> For his personality. <laughs> Does he have slightly different mixes, depending on what his function is? Possibly. Generating rather a lot of buzz given the roster and a couple of short trailers, to date nothing has ever been formally released. Yes, Jeff Katz took $100,000 from fans and has yet to give anything back. Wow. I'm guessing he must have paid these wrestlers or has never, nothing had been filmed. Well, presu- yeah, it was filmed. It's, it's all yeah. been taped. He's got it all. I presume people were paid for it. Claiming he had some sort of breakdown, he spent the money and had had to rebuild himself in a late 2015 interview with MVP. Katz spoke of all the regrets he had related to the project and its lack of release, but not once did he mention anything related to stealing the money of fans who supported him, claiming that one day he'll probably release it. Well, he could send the footage through to, to me, I'll edit it together. Well, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. A couple of matches and footage 
from the show is available on YouTube that Katz gave to Joey Ryan, who wanted to use it for a WWE audition. All right. With Ryan later uploading the footage to the internet himself. The main promo uploaded sees Ryan's character on the show, Chase Walker, come out as gay to the support of a crowd, most of whom were paid to be there. If you had that lined up, now granted, we're a few years ago now, but still names of note. Yeah. Why would you need to pay people to be there? Apparently they filmed some of it on, like, weekdays, so they... I, th- I think it's a thing in general, like, TV production. There, there is a thing for, like, paid audiences. Yeah. But it just that seems counterproductive to the idea of wrestling where you need a bit of investment in it. The reaction, yeah. Yeah. So there you go, that's Jeff Katz Did he have you. a big sign-up above the ring that said, applaud now? Possibly. Mm. So he is a dickhead then? Yeah, pretty much. All right, okay. I just thought, you know, maybe this was a character who's playing on TV. But, I mean, just this, this segment was just so bad. Badly thought out, unrehearsed. Badly executed. Yeah, just terrible. Good news, everybody. There's another five. Yeah. I, I, Excellent. I, I honestly just felt really sorry for all the women here because presumably they weren't told, we're just going to take the mick out of you all night. Yeah, the, the joke is that you, none of you are actually that attractive. Right? Well, that's the thing. I, I, I almost don't get what the punchline is and no. we'll get to that at the end. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't understand, like, am I missing the hilarious joke? No, I don't think you are. I just don't think it was hilarious. We go back to Jeff Katz, who was with more contestants for the Miss NWO contest. Jeff asks one woman what she would do to be in a Hulk Hogan movie. She says, whatever it takes. W- whatever it takes. A popular answer, that. Santa with muscles. She might have had a different answer if she'd have seen that. Jeff approaches another lady whom he describes as buoyant. Uh, is he talking about her chest area? Is this the one that's all right? The one that you thought was all right, yes. I, I was going to say, when I, I, did, I did like a bit of a running commentary when it gets to the final later and I put in brackets next to number four. This will be Adam's favourite. <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you later. Yeah, well, I think I've noted down when it comes to the final. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's all right. He references Zillionaire Ted's quote of everybody has a price and he asks her price as he has $1.50 on him. She says he'd walk away with a big bill. Uh, at least that was a relatively sharp answer, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I thought she, she did okay, actually. But she she was um, a, some kind of trainee nurse? or Yeah, yes, I believe she was, yes. Whose hobby was curing hangovers, I believe. <laughs> yeah, she indeed is Adam's dream woman. <laughs> She's got o- big fake bike. knockers, owns a motorbike... And treats hangovers. If I had a three-box tick list, <laughs> uh, that's pretty much all three of the boxes. You do, it's on your wall. <laughs> Back to Jeff Katz, who tells us we're about halfway through the Miss NWO contest. Halfway? Oh, no. He asks the crowd, what do you think of the women? And Tumbleweed rolls by. <laughs> he speaks to another woman, asking her what part of her anatomy she would use to help her win the contest. Feet! She says her feet. Yeah, amazing feet. Well, you can't really see, she's got boots on. Yeah, and and we never get a shot of her feet. No. She might have no feet. Yeah. Might be a joke. Might be in a jar somewhere, I don't know. He moves on to someone's biker grandma who can't hear what he's saying. Eh? <laughs> 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 he asks her what she'd use to buff Buff's biceps. I can't hear what you're saying. But again, she can't hear and has no fucking clue what he's on about. <laughs> we'll, we'll just move on. It was, yeah, this was comically painful. 
like, okay, Bischoff's in charge of the company and he's out commentating, so he's not at, you know, the gorilla position watching this pay-per-view as it goes on. But you would think someone would have communicated this urgent, urgent, urgent message that these segments are just dying live yeah, yeah. on air. Or, or, you know, someone tell these women what they're going to be asked so they can yeah. prepare an answer. Yeah. Or something. Not, not You know that woman that's about 90, with really bad hearing, we're going to talk to her about a wrestler called Buff Bagwell, which she won't even recognise as a fucking name, and ask her to comment on what she'd use to polish his arms. <laughs> but, but the thing is, to be fair to her, she, she genuinely is right next to the band. Because they've got like... They've got, uh, like to the cap band it all playing... off, sticking next to the PA speakers. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is just unbelievable. Did you spot also the band looked bored to be yeah. there? Yeah. Well, well, they're playing the same eight seconds of music on loop. <laughs> Splendid. For fuck's sake, we go back to Jeff Katz. Oh, no. He speaks to this woman about Vincent from the NWO wearing a cheap powder blue suit and a hairpiece. I wonder who that's a dig at. Hmm, I wonder. Would she dress up with him? I don't know. I can't hear you. I can't, I can't, <laughs> hey? can't hear you. You'll have to speak up, Sonny. <laughs> She, she just agrees to wearing sexy lingerie, which is not something I really want to see. <laughs> Contestant 8 gets quizzed on Scott Norton's flashing problem. Jeff throws back to Eric Bischoff, and I want this man to die. <laughs> <laughs> is this the woman as well that looks underage? There's one really young one, yeah. yeah. The, the, the age range seems to go from about 14 up to about 84. <laughs> like... Well, I think we discussed this when you were watching it. it. Like, unless we're missing the point of this hilarious joke, which we may very well be. <laughs> but, like, obviously, when the WWF introduces the Godfather character, whatever the town they go to, they just go to a local strip club and go, let's go. Here's X amount of cash, I imagine. Do you, want is... to be, do you want to be on telly? Yeah, you're, you're going to portray a prostitute, but you're okay with that, right? And all these women said, yeah, sure, great. It's, it's $1,000 for 10 minutes' work, that sort, that sort of thing. Yeah, like, how hard would this have been to do unless there are no strip clubs in Cedar Rapids, Iowa? Or, I don't, I don't want to be... But maybe, maybe none of them owned their own hog. Well, true. Which is part yeah, of the criteria. You could get them to lie. Or I'm not going to check up on whether these women are registered Harley Davidson owners. And remember, we've just seen a clip of what the internet's like in 1997. (laughs) I'm sure that information wouldn't have been available anyway. Here's a thousand dollars. All you've got to say is you own a motorcycle. And and you'd suck Scott Hall off. Yeah. (laughs) Or you'd you'd buff buff Bagwell's (laughs) bicep. With a duster. (laughs) uh, With with an angle grinder. With a... One of them I did notice was listed as being semi-retired. Yes. Probably because she's about 80. Yeah, there's definitely one of them that's fully retired. (laughs) Bischoff throws, once again, to Babe Master, Jeff Katz. Babe Master? He asks some woman we can't see what her favourite manoeuvre is, but she says she can't show him as there are children watching. The thing is with this is, for the entire time he's talking to this woman, they're showing replays of what just happened in the match. Yeah. This is... Cutting edge, mate. This is badly designed. Cutting edge. Great production. Well, yeah, she says she can't show them as there are children watching, and my note says, if there's anybody watching at this point, I'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) He asks another contestant what she'd do to make Masahiro Chono stay in America more comfortable. She says anything he wants as long as something, something, something. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck this guy. 
fuck this contest <laughs> and fuck whoever dreamt it up. Eric Bischoff. Also, on a, on a side note, I don't know if it was just before or just after this, because uh, my notes are perhaps a little out of sequence. At some point, they're talking about DDP, and it may have been while these... I think it was just before this started, perhaps. And they do say he's dumber than a bag of something, but I didn't catch what it was. Oh, it was a bag of, of dirt. Yeah, that's it, yeah. That's, dumber than a bag of dirt. That doesn't even make sense. Back to Jeff fucking Katz, who wants to introduce us to the contestants one more time. Yes. Because once once just wasn't enough. This is the finale of the Miss NWO contest. He encourages us to cheer our backsides off. They are contestant number one. Miss Natalie, whose occupation is manufacturing specialist and hobbies are tapping kegs and shooting pool. She, uh, she gets apathy. Number two, Miss Laurie, who has an epic mullet, works as a self-employed subcontractor and has a quote of, men with bowling shirts turn me on. She gets less than apathy. She got a pop from me for the mullet. Three, Miss Rachel, who is an accountant banking specialist that enjoys training Rottweilers. Was she your favourite? No, she she was met with silence. (laughs) (laughs) But, But she's an account banking specialist. Yeah. Contestant number four, Miss D, the buoyant lady that is a registered nurse, whose hobby is treating hangovers. In many ways, the perfect woman. I mean, my notes say, like, you you can literally see, crowd on, not quite dead, because she only still gets a mild reaction, despite being clearly the best. Cures hangovers for a hobby, and Adam's favourite. Adam's favourite, definitely. You know me very well. My my, my note says, I guess we found Adam's dream woman. She she should have won this contest. Quite clearly. the, The criteria never fully set out, are they? No. Yeah, well, what are they being judged on? Whoever's got the best bike, I don't know. Yeah, well, we don't really see the bikes, that'd be outrageous. <laughs> Number five, Miss Connie, a school bus driver with the quote, shut up you brats. She got negative noise, if that's even possible. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, that is not possible, but yeah. Six, Miss Illa, who unsurprisingly is semi-retired and surprisingly likes detailing pickup trucks. Yeah, she's some kind of crazy grandma, I think. <laughs> Number seven, Miss Becky, a homemaker with Deirdre Barlow glasses that says her hobby is cooking bratwurst and french fries. Yeah. That's weird. Like, how is cooking chips a hobby? And I think as we were watching this, I said, she's a bit rough. (laughs) Number eight, Miss Trisha, whose graphic (laughs) that says actually Mary, who looks young enough to be Becky's granddaughter, though allegedly her job is a grain grain inspector. (laughs) And she says... Men in leather and flannel get my motor running. Uh, Eddie Vedder wears flannel shirts. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting, though, because grain inspector, that must be quite an unusual job. I mean, well, I mean what type of I've never of heard grain? of one before. Is it, is, it, is, is it like grain as in barley type grain, or is it the grain of wood? Well, I was thinking maybe she might uh, be choosing the Willow for Cricket Bats, possibly. Or, or grain inspector, yeah. Or it could be like in Preacher, where he makes that guy count the grains of sand on a beach. Grain of sand inspector, yes. Yeah, and then the wind blows and he has to start again. Number so nine, thing. Miss Mary, who is also a grain inspector. <laughs> who knows? And she too says men in leather and flannel get my motor running. It's highly unlikely that those two hobbies would come side by side in, in a Miss NWO poll. Maybe well, they work together, though. Yeah, best friends. Yeah. The FFs. Number 10, Miss Jodie, a shipping and receiving clerk who counts bowling and playing the lottery as her pastimes. Oh, <laughs> my. My. Past, my pastime is playing the lottery. My hobby is playing the lottery. What, what a catch. 
Uh, any thoughts on her, Paul? Well, my, my whole comment for the whole of this is don't associate yourself with this, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff tells us that the audience don't decide the winner. The decision belongs to the king, Eric Bischoff. Eric joins us and says that in the NWO, they pick winners. I'm not sure they do. <laughs> Eric says that these women were chosen for a lot of reasons. One being that they lived in Cedar Rapids, so they didn't have to pay for a hotel room or a plane ticket, but mostly because they own their own hogs. Who doesn't love a woman with a hog? They mean a pig? No, they mean a motorbike. Okay. Hog. Bischoff says that the contest has come down to a tie, come. so he's going to ask the two finalists a single question to decide the winner. Bischoff says that the question and answer will be between him and the woman, so the audience won't hear, which draws booze. Like, why? Why, why do, and I've literally put, this is the worst TV ever. <laughs> yeah, I've put, this is horrible television. I'm amazed that you haven't said what was wrestling thinking yet. Is there an entire page of them? Ooh, hang on. He's put what was wrestling thinking, but there's lots of capital letters in there. <laughs> and, and lots of T's. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> That's perhaps more W's and T's. What? <laughs> was wrestling thinking? Eric goes to contestant number two, Miss Laurie, who whispers in his ear. I guess Easy e likes mullets. Yeah. And this was the point where I said, okay, so it's come down to two. I can see why she's one of them. The hair. <laughs> Let's see who the other one is. Bischoff plays like he has a boner from her answer. Adam, what do you think he asked her, and what do you think her response was? I really don't know. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything that he would have asked her which would have got that response. I, I, I know I know what it's asked her. What? It, it's how do we get out of this horrible segment? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, I don't know, go and talk to another woman. <laughs> And that really excites Eric. His second finalist is number seven, Miss Becky Barlow. (laughs) (laughs) She she whispers to Eric too. He seems less aroused by her answer, but declares (laughs) Becky the winner, but not by name, because he doesn't remember her name. Our winner, Miss NWO. (laughs) Eric Bischoff, on live pay-per-view, makes out with a 50-year-old Deirdre Barlow look-alike biker on a show that WCW fans have paid to see. And Twice. Like, now, Twice. this is the point. This is the point where I think we're supposed to understand the joke, but I still don't get it. Yeah, what's, what's the punchline? What's funny about it? Uh, I, I, think, I think the intended punchline is still to come which I'll reveal to you in a minute. But my next note is, where are you going, love? Because she just does like um, a... A lap of the ring, yeah. Of, of yeah. the ring. And she goes to slap the hand of that one person who pulls her hand away. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not touching you. But she must have been so embarrassed. I feel for this lady. Yeah, well, well emb- embarrassment's sort of like coming up like double fold, isn't it? Because she goes to sit down on her throne. And I, said to, I said to Stuart as we were watching this, she's sitting on a toilet. And he goes, what? And sure enough... It pulls back and she's sitting on a, a giant toilet. <laughs> she's one missed NWO, been given some flowers, been made to humiliate herself around the ring, and then has to sit there on stage on a giant toilet. <laughs> this is where we say, what was wrestling thinking, surely? But you talk about embarrassment, like, yeah, there's tons of stuff that I imagine if you were like a teenager and you order a WWF or WCW pay-per-view and your parents walk in, it's probably a bit embarrassing. 
But like, imagine watching this and having someone walk in the room while what you've convinced your folks to spend 28 bucks on and what you've got is <laughs> Bischoff making out with some fat 50-year-old biker woman. Unbelievable. I put to you that she's not 50. I think she's a lot younger, okay. but, but she's substantially rougher. I mean, uh, I mean, the, the thing that I've put is not the punchline, because I don't think it's a punchline, but it's almost the thing that makes something bad even worse for me is I think... Eric, Eric Bischoff, the joke of this is when he gets back to the announce desk, I'm, I'm not 100% sure he says this, but I'm fairly sure he says that she's beautiful on the inside. He does, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, okay, so you've now gone through this whole thing of that's clearly something that's supposed to be insulting, but you play it in a, a kind of semi-serious way, and then you just say, we were just clearly insulting you the whole way along. And I think that's just actually just genuinely horrible. This is the single worst segment in the entire history of professional wrestling. Well, I've not seen all of professional wrestling, but this is the worst thing that we've seen, right? This is the most just god-awful piece of shit television that we've watched, and we watched Uncensored 96. And King of the Ring 95, and In Your House 4. Yes. And tons of other random bollocks. Nazi stormtroopers in Smoky Mountain. Mini pallbearers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of that stuff pales in comparison to Eric Bischoff running a demeaning contest for, like, housewives where he humiliates them and then makes them sit on a toilet throne. I've never really been one to steal catchphrases, but there's one sentence that there's nothing more appropriate to say right now. What was wrestling thinking? I I honestly don't know. Here's the Wrestling Observer's take on this segment. Go on, then. Miss NWO finally ended with the sight of Bischoff French kissing an overweight mid-50s woman to no cheers, even fewer laughs and a lot of gagging around the country. By this time, the show was about as much fun to watch as three hours of somebody masturbating. In fact, I'm not sure that that isn't not what we were watching. Well, it depends who the person is that you're watching, in all fairness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I'm sure if we sold you a three-hour pay-per-view of Eva Marie masturbating, you'd be all over that probably more, more enjoyable than this well yeah true there you go anyone feel like a main event now or anyone just want to go and wash <laughs> it was yeah it, it's pretty bad don't watch it if you've not seen this and i know we said we said this for king of the ring 95 we said this for uncensored 96 do not watch this do not watch it watch something else What celebrities have you heard of? More than two? Well, you've beaten Paul then, as Moment 8 from Episode 52, Santa with Muscles, reveals his complete list. Hey, look, there's a young Myla Kunis in only her second film role, after appearing in Piranhas the previous year. Which one's she? The little black-haired girl. Do you not know who Myla Kunis is? I've not got a clue. Who is she? She's a very famous actress. What's she being in that I might have seen? Well, here's five fun facts about Myla Kunis. (laughs) Number one, she shot to fame in That 70s Show, aged just 14, playing Jackie Burkhart for eight seasons from 1998 to 2006. So, if you fancy her in seasons one to four, feel bad about that. Her co-star was Ashton Kutcher, who she is currently married to. Really? I didn't know that. In 1999, she took over the role of Meg in Family Guy from actress Lacey Shabert and still voices the character today. I've heard of Family Guy. I always thought that she was the original person, isn't it? No, there there was someone else before her. What season did that happen? I think she takes over in season two, maybe. Oh, okay. Number three, she is an avid computer game fan, most notably World of Warcraft. Two reasons have been cited for her stopping playing the game. 
One, that she became so addicted to it that she had to stop. The other being that people online recognised her fairly distinctive voice. Ah, yeah. Number four, she was number one on FHM's sexiest women in the world list in 2013. Apparently she's become less sexy in the last two years. Or someone's become sexier. (laughs) (laughs) Only two possibilities, really. (laughs) Number five, you'll like this one, Paul. She has a lesbian sex scene with Natalie Portman in the 2010 film Black Swan, which would be slightly sexier if it wasn't happening in a traumatic Darren Aronofsky film. Oh, you see, what, what? I, I, I was well say... up for watching that, and then you said Darren Aronofsky, and I thought, <laughs> no, nah, probably not. Did you say, I will like this? Yeah. Why would I like it? You like lesbians? It's a film about ballet dancers. Mrs. Scrivens would totally <laughs> go for it. I think Mrs. Scrivens has seen that. I've not. Probably should. She eats Natalie Portman out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I expect it's done more artistically in the film. <laughs> I believe you don't know who Myla Kunis is. Why would I? She's rather famous. Yeah, it's not that famous. If I've if not heard of her, she's not that famous. <laughs> I don't think that's strictly <laughs> true. <laughs> There's other famous people that I've heard of. Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you can't think of anyone. <laughs> the only famous person that Paul knows. You know when your mind goes blank, and you really should know. It's, it's like it's like if, if, if I was to say, you know, name as many things as you can beginning with the letter B, and you just can't think of anything other than a blue balloon. <laughs> okay, so Nelson Mandela. But That's I heard of him, right? That's it. <laughs> She's less famous than Nelson Mandela, right? <laughs> Probably yeah, yeah. not, actually, no, no, now. No. I, I, think, I think that's a valid point. Nelson Mandela was pretty famous. She was still, in, still is, you know. She was in Ted, have you seen that? I've seen Ted, yeah. Yeah, she's the girlfriend in that. Okay, I didn't like Ted. <laughs> I didn't, I thought... But I quite like him. Um, what's Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, I, I liked that um, shooter film he was in. The Departed. No, yeah, Shooter. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's all right. It. Have you not seen that film? Probably not. Can I deride you over that? Yes. Okay. I'm not going to. I'm, yeah. As for who the other kids are, I don't know. Hulk and Don make it to the orphanage as the scientists steal some statue with their ice cream truck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've got to say, it seems a little bit pointless, the whole statue thing. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still just laughing at your list of famous people that you've <laughs> Oh, I've got another one. <laughs> Martina Navratilova. <laughs> Just popped into my head. I would think in the modern world, Myla Kunis is slightly more famous than Martina Navratilova. <laughs> well, not with tennis fans. <laughs> Recording a podcast with a hangover is pretty difficult. It's even more difficult if your co-hosts are a hundred times more chipper than you are. Moment 7 from episode 34, In Your House, Beware of Dog, sees Adam learn this lesson the hard way. How are you both doing today? I'm really kind of invigorated, lively and chipper and just feeling really good. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's, it's WrestleMania lo- morning. Yeah, and World Cup final day. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of reasons to be alert and happy and alive. Uh, but particularly to be alert. Yeah. How are you feeling, Adam? I feel fucking awful. <laughs> 
It's taken about an hour this morning to get Adam out of bed. Is, that is no exaggeration, yeah. And, and that was me pushing him from one side and you pulling him from the other. <laughs> Stuart, are you feeling okay? Yes, I'm great. I've just got back off my holiday. You've been on holiday? Yes. I didn't know that. You did. I did. You bought me some sweets, thank you. Yeah, you're And welcome. a moose. And a moose. That was more for the baby scrivens, but okay. I figured, you know, you'd like it too. No, I like, I like moose. To, to smear it on a person would be demented. <laughs> <laughs> I've prepared for you some, some fun facts about Sweden. I thought, I thought you might like mm. to learn a little bit before we get cracking. I do love to learn. Love yeah, it. okay. So we've got, they love something called fika. It's based around meeting for tea or some sort of drink and pastries we had a really tasty cinnamon bun thing which was lovely it's like a cultural thing that they have to do did you have coffee i I didn't have a coffee because i don't drink coffee but i did have the bun okay have we revealed this kind of dark secret about you that you don't like hot drinks yet i don't think we actually have but no that that is true my next swedish fun fact is a traditional dish they have there and you'll like this one adam this is where they take herring bury it underground for a year and then dig it up and eat it. I think they do something similar in Iceland, if, right. if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Did you fancy some of that, Adam? I've actually bought a jar of that back for you. <laughs> I really? think the, the last thing that I want now is year-old <laughs> buried herring. <laughs> and then you drink some alcohol called Snaps, which is like 40% proof to basically get rid of the taste. It just sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> the most common birthdays for children in Sweden is the end of March. Is, is, is that a late summer thing? Due to it falling nine months after Swedish midsummer, which is based around the summer solstice where people get naked and have sex. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. They have this awesome warship called the Vasa, which was launched in 1628. It was built under orders from the king to be their flagship as part of the war they were having with Poland and Lithuania. It was huge, massively ornate, heavily armoured, and sank 1,300 metres after it left the dock. <laughs> nice. Basically, some wind blew it over. <laughs> True story. <laughs> it was recovered from the sea in the 1960s and was in really good condition for a wreck due to the fact that the water it was in had a really low salt content and therefore it didn't house the worms that eat wood in water. So it's wow. been restored and it's actually really awesome to look at. Yeah, but it's basically the slightly shittier Swedish version of the Titanic. Wowzers. Yeah. Sweden hasn't been involved in any kind of war since 1814 due to their overwhelming neutrality, yet they are the world's 11th biggest exporter of arms. Basically, they don't fight wars, but they will facilitate them. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, everyone in Stockholm speaks English, which was really handy. Mm-hmm. And finally, I went to stay with Sam, who does our banners, and Vicky, his girlfriend. They lived with Adam and I for a little while, a couple of years ago. And we asked Vicky what Batman was in Swedish, as she's Swedish. To which we were told he was simply Batman. When we then asked for the actual literal translation, which was Flader Mouse Manon. So if you then translate that back into English, it translates back as Flapping Mouse Man. Which which somehow sounds less threatening than Batman. No, I don't know. Flapping Mouse Man's pretty intimidating. It it became the funniest joke of the week. I don't know if it's that funny out of context, but I just thought I'd mention Flapping Mouse Man. So yeah, it it was wonderful. So thank you very much to Sam and Vicky for letting me stay with them and show me around Stockholm. A second promo with a dramatic voice highlights the same thing. And this has become somewhat regular on these free-for-alls. Promos for the same match right next to each other. Is, Is this the one where you get the silhouette of the hair from that woman? Yes. That's just weird. She's got like the biggest hair ever. I think she's probably going to be your mullet of the night. It's pretty spectacular. We can't see it as all, all its glory because it is just a silhouette. But... That, that was just a noise, Adam. <laughs> I'm really not feeling great. We're going to do our best to keep Adam engaged in the conversation over yeah. the next hour or so. Just poke him with a stick every now and again, Paul. Do you, do you want to... Do you want to... 
bottle of Lucasaid. Did, did everybody else do that when they were ill, when they were a kid? That's something my grandma get, always get, used yeah, to say. You, it's get, like, yeah, it's, you get a bottle of original Lucasaid. It'll right. make you better. But isn't that illness rather than you drank too much? Possibly, but I kind of, I kind of feel this, like this like is a kind of illness. Adam. Everyone, send us in your your surefire hangover cures in case Adam's still hungover on Wednesday. You know what is supposed to be one? Genuinely, chocolate is supposed to be one. Really? Mm. As is though, I did also hear rubbing lemons into your armpits. What? <laughs> yeah, I've, <laughs> I've heard fuck that said that. I don't know who said it, but I've definitely heard it somewhere. I mean, I haven't got any lemons, so you can try it. But I don't know if it's the same for all citrus fruits. I've, I've always gone with toast. Paracetamol in a shower. Mm. That seems fairly standard, but but useful. I've always gone with vomiting up as much as I can. <laughs> well, How's that worked for you this morning, Adam? I have evacuated my stomach, and, and now I feel a bit rough. Did you not have anything to eat before you went to bed? Did you, did you have a big glass of water? I, before you I, went I, I, I had a couple of burgers. You had a couple of burgers? Yeah, I did the Paul Scriven special. Like big Matt meal with me. a cheeseburger? No, no. I had two little cheeseburgers from Burger King. Why don't you get a big burger? Because this is always the thing to, to bear in mind. Do you go for two little ones or one big one? <laughs> well, the thing is, like the big burger is like four pound fifty, and yeah. the two little ones is one pound ninety eight. Okay, so I was thinking, both. You know, from, from a from a fiscal point of view, very reasonable, the, isn't it? The, the sensible uh, move. I always find a good thing to do is eat a big portion of like chips and cheese because it's very carby and soaks soaks things mm. up. You, you know, stop talking about food, please. Well, you know, just just before we stop, do you know what is would be good? Ice cream and gravy. Oh, God, but no. <laughs> pigeon and bacon. Yeah, pigeon and bacon. You know what? Actually, as I was driving here today on the A47... You stopped for some pigeon and bacon? No, no, but but on the route that's obviously King Richard, like, the last last weekend, it was like a week ago today. But anyway, I was, I was driving down that very road that, you know, the, the King, what, what was it, 530 years ago, whatever, was, was being driven along. Yeah. And there was a badger that had been run over, and I can only describe looked, or part of it looked like pate. <laughs> True story. I'm not just making that up for Adam's benefit. It's true. <laughs> Adam, you said to me after you watched it last night that you didn't like it, and I half wonder if that's because it's just so unusual, what with the main event being halfway through the show, a distinct lack of promos, and it's the first show we've seen that doesn't feature Brett, Diesel and Razor, so the roster looks really different to how it's looked for the majority of our run so far. I agree. <laughs> it was definitely refreshing to have Jim Ross on commentary again, as it's been so long since we've had him as a sole play-by-play announcer. The couple of times we've had him on the shows, he's been sort of hampered by Vince. Mm. But what, what, what did you make to him on commentary this time? It's all right. Yeah, pretty yeah, good. Yeah, pretty yeah. Good. yeah. So, match of the night and MVP. Do you want to go first, Adam? I can't find my notes. Just, just next to the pictures. It is Undertaker dead, it says. <laughs> I think you're going to give match of the night to the strap match. All right. Okay. The strap match. And your MVP. Goldust. <laughs> no, it's not going to be gold <laughs> The strap match is definitely. Uh, okay. Savio Vega. I'm going to point out now, just for just for clarity's sake, that Adam has left the room to be sick. So, <laughs> so we've replaced him with our friend Patrick, who's who's stayed with us last night. Mm. Who, in fact, took Adam out and got him incredibly drunk. Yeah. Take responsibility for Adam's performance to take Patrick. What have you got to say for yourself? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> match of the night in MVP poll. The, the strap match, and I'm going to go for Austin. I, I thought he was, you know, obviously very close between Savio and Austin. And I've got to say, I've never been more impressed by Savio Vega. Uh, but I think that's testament to the talent of Austin. Isn't yeah, it? and I, th- I think that Austin did look really good. And that bump that he took off the off the top, top yeah. rope, that was that was pretty incredible. And certainly a side of him that I've not seen before. Yourself, yeah, Stuart? Ma- match of the night, definitely the strap match. Although, like I say, I thought Mario Helmsley was quite good. And so was Bulldog Sean. If you take away the ending and Sean's little paddy, I thought some of the action was quite nice. And MVP, 
basically, I watched all the Raws and Beware of Dog yesterday. So, based off the last month of WWF television, I'd say Jim Cornette. But as we're awarding it for yeah. specifically this show, I'll go with Stone Cold Steve Austin for both taking and giving a hell of a beating in the strap match. Yeah, Savio Vega definitely deserves a mention too, as does Mark Marrow. And Adam, mullet of the night, who would you like to award that to for this show? Pat Sharp. <laughs> And I know one thing Adam wanted to point out but hasn't currently got the mental capacity to do so is that the video is called Beware of Dog and on the front there's a picture of Diana Hart. So take that for what you will. I think it looks more like she's the dog rather than the British Bulldog. It's unfortunate. She may have made a less than stellar sex tape in 2016 but surely the 1997 version was better. Find out in moment six from episode 53, Shotgun Saturday Night, when the gang break down Sonny's sex tape. Vince tells us that we might need to call somebody as it's time for Sonny's home sex video. Like, would you really want to call people and tell them that? I suppose I would call you. Like, <laughs> Dude, Sonny's about to have a sex tape. Yeah, if, 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 if I was like 17 years old at this time, as I would have been, and I legitimately thought that there was going to be a Sonny sex tape on, I probably would call you. You'd have to call my house phone and then ask probably my mum <laughs> to put me on the phone. At 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Sonny says, put the kids away. Probably a good idea. <laughs> well, if you've got them up at half past 11 at night, you're probably doing a bad job anyway. Especially if you watched week one, would you have really been... <laughs> Get, kids, it's time for Shotgun Saturday night. <laughs> kids, watch some real low-grade, low-production wrestling. <laughs> I'll throw to Adam for play-by-play on what happens on the sex tape. So, so in fact, tell us, no, what, what were your expectations going in? Paul wants to know. Yeah, what were you expecting? Well, normally, in your bog-standard sex tape, two people will have sex. Okay. That, that's my understanding of it. So, have, have you watched any sex tapes? I think I've seen the Pamela Anderson one. Obviously, Tommy Lee steers a boat with his cock. <laughs> what? That, that, that's quite, that's, the, that's True the, story. That's the unique selling point of that sex tape. <laughs> steers a boat? Was it yes. a boat? Basically... <laughs> It, it, it's for, what is knob or the boat? It, it's for people who really fancy Pam Rance in the 90s and nautical enthusiasts. <laughs> Hamilton's. <laughs> what, what about it? Have a good time. <laughs> what about that one with John Leslie in it? You ever see that? John Leslie? Leslie. Who, who's that woman that he went out with? Oh, Abby um, Titimus. Yes, yeah, yeah. Was that not John Leslie in, in a sex tape? Probably. And it, he, he was implicated in the whole Eureka Johnson debacle. He mm. was. That, that blew up on, was it the right stuff? It did, yeah. It's, it's the, the crowning achievement of the right stuff. <laughs> so anyway, Sonny's sex tape, Adam, take us through it. Starts off promising, Sonny is on a bed. She's got an Elmo doll. That's weird. Then a massive elbow walks into the room <laughs> where it should be like a plumber or a TV repairman or something. But no, it's it's a massive elbow. It's a, a fondle me Elmo. Is this like a real thing? Tickle me Elmo was like the biggest selling toy around this See, time. That's, that does fondle sound me a Elmo bit not dotty. so much. I just love the way that they must have had some kind of sanction from Sesame Street to do this. <laughs> Could you imagine the Jim Henson company being that happy about this? No, it's just going on with their other string of of Sesame Street <laughs> sex tapes. Next week, come at the Frog Fist <laughs> <laughs> And Oscar the Grouch bangs Marlena in his bin. 
<laughs> anyway, while ca- Big Bird looks on. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Big Bird would have to star in something. <laughs> well, you know, Elmo obviously gets out his massive three foot furry penis and starts spanking her around a bit with it. But no, <laughs> actually, what well, happens? Let's, let's cut all that. That's disgusting. <laughs> what What happens is the screen goes black and we get some funny noises. Can, can you recreate some of them? I don't. I think, I, I think they're, they're they're just like boing and stuff like that, aren't they? Yeah, the, the Chuckle Brothers sex noises. <laughs> will describe them as. To me, do you? To me. <laughs> Are they having sex with each other? <laughs> and and then, then the lights come back on and Elmo needs a cigarette. <laughs> also, Which I like to think, actually, <laughs> from the makers of Sesame Street, not only have they implicated that one of your beloved characters and biggest selling toy is actually having sex with a wrestling manager, but also is a smoker. Well, he also seems to have lost something. Well, I don't know. Yes, he, he doesn't know where his cock is. But I don't see why this should make a difference. He didn't have a cock in the first place. Well, like, has having sex made him realise that he hasn't got a penis? Or did it come off during the act? Well, where was he keeping it? In Sunny. I guess. Anyway, this was, as, uh, I don't know, as far as sex tapes go, crap. <laughs> as, as far as television goes, crap. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, she seems satisfied. <laughs> How about you, Paul, were you? I just thought the whole thing was, again, it was a bad idea, badly executed. <laughs> you show it to Mrs Scrivens, just to see what her take on it would be. No, no, but... You perhaps should. Yeah, OK, yeah, yeah. For the record, it was Todd Pettingill in the Elmo costume. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Mm. He had all the best jobs. Growing Mirror Universe beards, Dressing. calling Hillbilly Jim an inbred. Dressing up as Elmo. <laughs> Well, that was different. Well, that was it. That that, that was the, the sales pitch of this episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, and it was shit. So the rest of it's bound to be good. Did they get in trouble with Sesame Street? Oddly enough, I, I, I can't find anything about that, but I would imagine they probably weren't happy about it. Yes, this is, this is a character from a children's television show. Yes. A smoking, prostituting <laughs> character from a children's television show. Just imagine like how bad it would have been if like little children had gone... Like, if they'd heard about some of this and said, oh, there's a fondle in the Elmo doll. (laughs) Like, like, seriously, that would have been awful. And it'd been on loads of kids' Christmas lists the next year. Are you going to get Mrs. Scrivens a fondle me Elmo for next Christmas? (laughs) They don't really exist, do they? (laughs) Big Elmo suit. We'll we'll pay Todd Pettengill's airfare. He's probably still got it somewhere. (laughs) It was Mrs. Scrivens' birthday recently. Yeah. Adam got her a card. Did he? Yeah. That's what you do on people's birthdays, right? It was a pair of singing, dancing underpants with eyes. On the card? Yeah. I thought... It scared that, my son. I thought that it would be the funniest card ever. It was quite amusing. Well, to be honest, it's a very irresponsible parent who shows that to a child. It well, wasn't for the baby Scrivens. It well, said very clearly, Mrs Scrivens. Yeah, we put our cards up. It's on, it's on the little bit of string. But Adam meant to bring the, the, the card and present over the other night, but he forgot. What, what, what did we do that night? Oh, we played Monopoly. We, we didn't just play Monopoly, did we? It was WWE oh, yeah. Royal Rumble edition. Monopoly. Royal and, and, and how did that work out for you, Paul? Oh, I got upset and fell out with everyone, <laughs> pretty much. Did you fall out with me? Not so much you, because you came even laster than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly Stuart and our friend Rhea. Well, so, sorry, Stuart's gesticulating for me to kind of flesh out that story a little bit more. You want me to pad it out? You're king of anecdotes. <clears throat> well... Stuart, before we started the game, read the rules, which appeared to just be the rules Monopoly. for Monopoly. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll put this little bit in there. Apparently, in the rules, is not the, the whole thing where you put any like taxes and stuff into the middle for yeah. the free parking. That isn't a rule. No, I, I, as far as I'm aware, that was never a rule. But everyone just played but yeah, it. like yeah. everyone played. It. So it's like, well, we'll play it. You know, we like that bit. And the other thing is, before the game started, he basically says his tactic because Stewart's got this like unbeaten streak better than The Undertaker, because this is a beaten streak, where he said openly in front of everybody there that was participating in the game that the way that he wins is he'll make a deal and he'll convince the, convince you that the deal is a good thing for you, even though it ultimately won't be in the long run. So he openly said this. I did, correct. Then, probably about half an hour into the game, where we, you, you know, you've done a couple of rounds, as it were. People have started buying, buying stuff. stuff. Yeah, he, You owe he, each other 20 quid. He did a deal with our friend Rhea. I kind of forget what the deal was. So it's the deal was free vent on some properties. She had two of the train stations, which were tag teams. I had yeah. the other two. She had two of the blue properties. I had one. I traded her my two tag teams for her two blue cards, and she had free passage through through those developments. Developments. So once I built hotels or stadiums stands and stadiums. stands and stadiums on them she, she she gained free passage yes that was the deal yeah we, which ultimately ruined the game for the rest of us <laughs> you missed out kind of like about a three minute badgering by paul to our yeah. friend about how she should not accept this deal well, well what it is i repeatedly pointed out to to her that Stuart said that he openly admits that his tactic is to do stuff that won't be good for you in the long run so don't don't make that deal. And I, I repeatedly said this, and she, she still did. See, this was part of the joy of it, though, was well, I, while I sat there as the calm, rational human being offering a deal, Paul screamed in her face <laughs> <laughs> that she was an idiot to take the deal. It pretty much was that. Yes, yes, I, I'll admit to that. But I, I was just trying to implore her from falling into your evil clutches. Didn't work. No, it didn't work. And, and then we had a bit of a debacle because we made a deal, but you thought we made a slightly different deal to the deal yeah, that we made, yeah. and Adam agreed with me. It's My not, understanding it, of the deal was it, different. It's but, how I heard it, yeah. yeah. But you kept landing on the free parking pretty much every time you went around. Everybody landed on Seamus. <laughs> £20 rent. Adam spent a couple of nights in Page. Yeah. Yeah, fairly cheap. I spent a night in Sasha Banks, though, and it's well expensive. Yeah. Yeah, you you do, 650 you developed... McMahon books. Yeah, she, she had a stadium on her. <laughs> But it was it was a good game, fun for all, and we're all friends now. Splendid. Mm-hmm. Apart from Rhea, who will never talk to you again. <laughs> oh, she sent me a message, it's fine. She wished me a happy new year. I think I think we're good. But she never wants to play Monopoly with you again. That that's now on the Cluedo list it's, of games, I yes, guess. Yes, it is, yeah. Anyway, Vince thought the sex tape was hilarious. Unbelievable. It was kind of funny, but but make no mistake, that was not a sex tape. Moment 5 comes from episode 8, Bash at the Beach 1994, and sees Paul confuse Bunkhouse Buck with a certain BBC light entertainment presenter. We see a video package of Dustin Rhodes versus Bunkhouse Buck. Bunkhouse Buck? Because I was a bit confused, because I, I, I kind of misheard, I thought it was Bunkhouse Bob. No, it's not Bunkhouse Bob. Because <laughs> I nearly got confused and called him Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the post. Bunkhouse Bob. <laughs> Bunkhouse Bob Bunkhouse. <laughs> Tagging with Terry Funk. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm down uh, with that. All right. Video package shows us Terry Funk cutting an awesome promo where he gets to call Dusty Rhodes an egg-sucking dog. Yeah. Which is always great. <laughs> Dustin Rhodes begging Arn Anderson to be his partner and double A accepting. Buck 
not Bob, and Funk botch a spike pile driver as well. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, they go for it a couple of times, and then they decide to just like hold Give him up. there. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Much like two drunk people might do <laughs> if they were trying to wrestle. We see footage of radio DJs facing each other. I didn't make any effort to find out who these people were, why no. they were there, or what they were doing. I, I, I don't care. And I don't did understand. not get it. I just did not get what was going on. WCW seem to love doing this. They do tons of stuff with radio DJs. They Publicity, I'd, I'd guess. I'd wager. Terry Funk is Terry Funk, and Terry Funk is awesome. Yeah. Old broken down babyface Terry Funk is awesome, and <laughs> maniac crazy bastard heel Terry Funk <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Yeah, too he's true, amazing. Yeah. Here, he is the latter. Bunkhouse Buck is second generation wrestler Jimmy Golden. As a quick aside, he was briefly in the WWE. Any idea oh. who he was? No. Is well, it... well, I know him. You may not have seen it, but oh. he was there very briefly. How, what, what kind of year was he there? 2010. 2010? <laughs> okay. 2010? Let me, yep. let me think. So 2010, who, what was happening in 2010? Probably Randy Orton versus John, John Cena. Cena. It was always worth that, isn't it? <laughs> Is he John Cena's dad? You're close, but he wasn't John Cena's. He was bought in as Jack Swagger's father, Jack Swagger Sr. Fucking ah. hell. He got tombstone by Kane. Excellent. <laughs> Unlucky. Here, they are a part of Colonel Robert Parker's stud stable. Do we know who Colonel Robert Parker is? Some oh. old dude. I did know this. It's the guy from Dallas. <laughs> it's not J.R. Ewing. <laughs> oh, I can't fucking remember now. Tennessee Lee. It's Tennessee it's Lee. It's Tennessee, Tennessee Lee. Lee. Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. The Stud Stable is a group that had been active in various wrestling promotions in the mid to late 1980s and more recently in 1993 in Jim Cornette's Smoky Mountain Wrestling. The group resurfaced in early 1994 in WCW with Parker, Funk, Monkhouse and Meng, <laughs> a.k.a. Haku. Their main feud has been against Dustin Rhodes and this upcoming match is a continuation of that. Okay. Interesting to see Haku. That's he looks Haku. badass in his suit. He does look, he looks dangerous I have in the no suit. idea that's who it was. Dustin Rhodes is of course the son of the American dream Dusty Rhodes. Dustin had debuted in the World Wrestling Federation in late 1990 and played a part in his father's feud against Ted DiBiase and Virgil. When Rhodes Sr. left the WWF following the 1991 Royal Rumble and rejoined WCW, Dustin followed where he became the natural Dustin Rhodes. By mid-1994, he is a former two-time WCW United States champion and two-time tag team champion. About 10 months from now, at WCW Uncensored in March 1995, Rhodes will face the blacktop bully, Barry Repo Man Demolition Smash Darso, ah. in a King of the Road match, a bizarre WCW creation in which the two fight each other on the back of a moving 18-wheeler truck. I think what? I've seen footage of that, actually. Yeah. Why? Despite taking place at the Uncensored pay-per-view, the match was taped a few days prior and was heavily edited due to both men blading, which was against WCW policy at the time. Both men were fired. Six months after that... <laughs> <laughs> Rhodes would paint himself gold and debut in the WWF, but that's another story for another time. Yeah, like 20 years later, he's still there. So our next match is Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Bob Monkhouse. It's <laughs> 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 just, just you bullying against me. This time I'm calling the WCW hotline. <laughs> All you'll get is Mike today. Yeah. Against Dustin Rhodes and Arn Anderson. <laughs> I just keep. I look at my notes and it says bunk, and all I keep seeing is bunk, bunk house. Yeah. <laughs> well, imagine what, what trouble I had typing my notes, having that in my head the whole time. I've got to say, Paul, I didn't see this one coming. <laughs> it's just a bunk. Bunk house, Bob, bunk house. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> that is genius. 
That is genius. I mean, my, my hearing isn't the best, I'll, I'll say that, but like, I honestly, I honestly couldn't tell you by the end of this match whether his name was Bunkhouse Bob or Bunkhouse Book or Bunkhouse... Bob Bunkhouse. Bunk. Bunkhouse Bob Bunkhouse. <laughs> uh, shall, shall, we, shall we continue? I'm trying. <laughs> Have you ever taken a sign to a wrestling show? If you did, did you feel the need to clarify a performer's sexual orientation? Moment 4 from episode 79, Survivor Series 1997 Part 1, puts to rest once and for all The Undertaker's preferences. A foreboding, stomping theme brings us the Truth Commission, walking down the aisle in a very military, lined-up manner. It did very much sound like stomp. The camera quickly zooms in on them to avoid an informative sign that tells us, Undertaker is not a homo. Good to know. Yeah, th- thanks for the update. This crowd is so so kind of invested in people's sexuality. And like, well, I must point out that, that despite the fact that I'm calling everyone at home on this, the Undertaker isn't. Yeah, we're going to chat faggot for half the people on the yeah, show, but... but it's important that you understand the Undertaker is not a homosexual. Unreal. Like, like I know last year when we were in the hotel. Like, we wrote some pretty bizarre signs, like Steph McGovern and yeah, yeah. Baron Jeremy Corbyn and all that <laughs> jazz. <laughs> Please, at WrestleMania this year, take a sign that says, Undertaker is not a homo. <laughs> but can you imagine, like, you're sat at home, you're thinking, what shall I take to the show? Like, what what, 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 what sounds really good? You know, like, Ass 316, yeah, that's great, yeah. Like, I'd rather be in China, you know, I love the WWF, fuck WCW, anything. Yeah. No, I, I specifically must point out... <laughs> <laughs> that the Undertaker is not a homo. I, I, There's a wrong here that badly needs writing. <laughs> uh, uh, I quite want to show my appreciation for Stone Cold Steve Austin. On the other hand, I'm quite keen on this Kane character. But I think overbearing everything else, I must point out that the Undertaker is a heterosexual. <laughs> One of the more perplexing signs we've encountered. Yeah, or ever. (laughs) The first song on the list lands at moment three and comes from episode 31, the Slammy Awards 1996. Rather than one of Paul's dramatic readings, this one is something of an original composition. Having sunny day, Hogan, John to fire. 
He was always winning. There's a new beginning. Hogan jogged to fire. It was from a camera. He's off to Atlanta. Click down at MSG. Venture of royalties. Tenth of since Syracuse. Fat to cut tie shoes. Bruce Hart clothesline. IRS promo time. Rap, rap with SummerSlam. Horror with a million dollar man. Sean Razor Ladder match. John Pierre's eye patch. Brothers fight at Mania. Vader in Arabia. Huckster, Nacho Man. 95 is in the can. Here's Golders really game. And it's the year to Hogan job to fire. He was always winning, there's a new beginning. Hogan dropped to fire. It was from a camera, he's off to Atlanta. Mark Merrow, mankind, Pillman's out of his mind. Hakushi, Lex Express, Sullivan, Dean Douglas. Jim Ross, Michael Hayes, Mabel Saturn, take his place. Techno team, Marcel Frank, Brody Swan, who really sang. Uh oh, quick for the play job. Helmsley is a rich snob. Luda was a major flop. He'll slip in goblins on up. Midget kings and midget clowns. Fire rates are severely down. Tatanka has no grace. How's a field dick face? Hogan, job to fire. He was always winning. There's a new beginning. Hogan, job to fire. It was from a cannon. He's off to Atlanta. Ken Rafe for bigger low, Terry Funk's a no-show, maybe his boss is really sick, Patton Gill is a dick, he'll turn Alex right, Gonzalez is a load of shite, Paul Nakano, Ajakam, Vince McMahon is never off, Bulldog Nitro, Sid really is a psycho, how much is this guy weigh, what else do I have to say? Hogan, John to fire, he was always winning, there's a new beginning, Hogan, John to fire. It was from a cannon to Atlanta. Brett Ruth is the shit. Uncensored was the pit. Scott Steiner, Adam Bomb, Booker, Brian Ferguson. Bushwhackers, well done. Body done is smoking guns. Yoko, my mountain rock. Sean almost shows his car. Shango, Owen Hart. Foley lost a body part. Sharp shooter, tombstone. Tell Turner on the phone. Waylon Mercy, man of war. 80s relics out the door. Table matches make me snore. I can't take it anymore. Hogan, to fire. He was always winning. There's a new beginning. Hogan, job to fire. Moment number two is from episode 35, The Great American Bash, 1996, and details 50% of the entire career of self-American legend El Gato. Our next bout is for the WCW United States title. It's Conan versus El Gato. Who's he? Despite being the company's secondary title holder, Conan never bloody appears on Nitro. I watched about two months worth between catching up from Uncensored to this, and he's just never on it. All that was done to promote this match was a 30-second interview with Conan on the June 10th Nitro, where Conan said that he was facing El Gato at this show and that Gato was a legend of legendary proportions in South America. That's brilliant. Mm. El Gato is not, in fact, South American. He is 
Hawaiian by way of Japan. <laughs> he is Pat Tanaka. Ring any bells? Probably not for you, Paul. No, t- Tanaka rings a bell. Tatonka. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's probably what you're thinking. No, 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 no. He's formerly a member of the Orient Express from the WWF in the early 90s. Oh, wow. Where he played Japanese, but he is, in fact, Hawaiian. So, naturally, why you put him in a mask and call him South American? <laughs> he was also an early ECW performer as well. To, I was about to say Tatonka then. Tanaka <laughs> would wrestle merely two matches as the Gato persona, but re- would remain in the company under his real name as a jobber to the stars until January 1998. Mm. Why they've dreamed up this gimmick rather than... Only two matches? And this is one of them. So this is 50% of this character's appearances? Yes. Wow. And El Gato means... The alligator? Try again. They say it on commentary. Dust, Dusty queries it. It means the cat. The cat? He's literally the cat. Ooh. Like uh, Phil Tufnell. Or Ernest Miller. Mm. Out to tribal drums, which I wouldn't describe as South Americans, but I may be wrong, <laughs> comes El Gato. It's an entrance on the proportion of Sting at WrestleMania 31. <laughs> he seems to have also stolen Tiger Mask's mask. I like yeah. his mask. Yeah, I like his mask. But well, I said you've got a mask similar to that. I have got a mask similar to that. He queried that. Well, well I didn't think it had as much fur as El Gato's cat mask. No, I've got the Black Tiger mask, which is the Eddie Guerrero one, not this one. I told you, Adam. Mm. He gets no reaction, fully enough, because he's only had one other match, mm. and they don't really know who oh, he so is. Oh, so this is the second of his matches, then? Yes. Oh, okay. Conan gets a slightly bigger reaction, and he's changed his outfit to some sort of Mexican flag dressing gown. He's got a shitter mask. Yeah, what is up with how he dresses? Oh, it's awful. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he removes most of the garb, actually, before it's, he starts wrestling. It's a bit Triple H. <laughs> it's a bit like really, really budget Triple H. Yeah. Instead of a Terminator, he's a... Mexican flag. Yeah. <laughs> he now, does look slightly better than he did at Uncensored, but yeah. he's still got a really stupid mask, yeah. Adam, talk us through this referee... Mullet and moustache. Yeah, the mullet and moustache referee. Great mullet. Suspiciously straight fringe. Yeah, it's that fringe just gets it's, me every it's time. It's almost like he's, 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 he's cut and shut the back half of a mullet in a bowl cut. <laughs> <laughs> but, of but, course, then, yes. but, but then to give the front a bit more flair, he's just grown this massive moustache. It, it's a fierce moustache. And the, the, my favourite bit of perhaps this whole pay-per-view is for a good five seconds, he's holding the title towards the camera. And it just looks like a mugshot. <laughs> <laughs> but a mugshot with a championship belt. Gatto gets the early advantage with an arm drag following an exchange of arm bars. We move to kicks and Gatto gets a leg screw takedown. Gatto gets another arm drag before Conan gets a fancier arm drag after leaping to the top rope. A very nice move early on. Conan gets a clothesline and Gatto gets a compact version of the Rikishi bump. Yes. Conan slows things down, taking a hold of the arm and neck of Gato before Gato sidekicks Conan down after a pair of leapfrogs. The kick he yields him a two. Gato locks in a sort of bow and arrow type submission as Dusty and Tony argue over who gets to call it, as neither of them know what it is. Yes, so it's you call it. No, you do it. You can do it. It's a, um, he's got him hurt in there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the one when he got it and, and Dusty's on about, he doesn't know whose leg... He's looking yeah, at. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. There's not that many to choose from. There's four. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a fifty percent chance of being right. <laughs> I must say about El Gato. Certainly, he's better than he looks from the outset because he looks very in terms of his package very blandly. Well, it's a budget version of a Tiger Mask character. Yeah. 
It's the sort you might see in like a shit British show in like the late nineties, <laughs> featuring the UK Undertaker and yeah. the <laughs> Welsh Legion of Doom. <laughs> the Welsh Legion of Doom <laughs> I don't know. There would be Sheep and Dragon, I don't know, something like that. Jorns and Jorns. <laughs> but yeah, Al Gatto doesn't look particularly athletic, but, but he is agile. So he's, he's kind he of a bit, a, bit, um, a bit pudgy. Yeah. I and mean, maybe in the same way that you know, Fatu is. He yeah, looks yeah. A, a bit on the hefty side, but he's actually, actually quite athletic. Quite athletic. Yeah. You won't have seen them, Paul, but some of the Rockers Orient Express matches from the early 90s are in fact very good and mm. a sort of highlight of those early 90s WWF pay-per-views. Conan leaps up for a Hurricane Rana, but Gatto hits a powerbomb. Gatto goes back to the arm and neck of Conan, but Conan works his way out and applies a leg bar. Conan does some really weird Irish whip into the corner where he rolls through, and when Gatto bumps back out of the corner, Conan hits a bulldog, but there's no room to hit it, and it all looks a bit weird. I think there's quite a lot in this match that looks a bit odd. Like they're, Again, they're not, they're not clicking on the, on the same page. Things are done without the space, things aren't done crisply. I think there's a lot of good stuff going on, but it's not executed the way that it should do. It, it, it's, it's just like the, they haven't quite got the chemistry. Yeah. They're both... Obviously, good wrestlers, and their the, the planning of the match I think is quite good in terms of the moves that they've got planned and the sequences. But it just hasn't got the fluency. The other thing I'll say is, you talk about Conan's leg hold; he looked like he was really going for that. Yeah, and and that did look very sore. Conan's bulldog gets him a two. Conan does the same roll through on a clothesline for a two, but there's a bit more room for that one, so that did look a little bit better. Conan grabs Gatto's wrist, but Gatto pulls him through the ropes to the outside. Gatto looks for a baseball slide, but Conan moves, and Gatto sort of falls to the outside. That wasn't yeah. smooth. Conan comes back in the ring and brings Gatto up on the apron, hitting a messy sunset flip powerbomb to the mats outside. That and that was one of the messiest spots of the night, I thought. Yeah. The, the problem was, Al Gatto held onto the ropes for too long. Yes. It was a shame they showed a replay of that, I thought, because you could kind of half get away with it at full speed, but on the replay it was so obvious. Yeah, and it also looks like the actual powerbomb part of the move, he only starts to hit it about two foot from the ground. Yeah. But it does get a pop and gets the crowd into the match for about the first time. It sounds quite thumping, I thought, as as he hits the floor. It must have been quite painful, and maybe that's because... There wasn't, like, it wasn't ex- executed with the right timing, so it was perhaps hard to prepare himself for it. Yeah, perhaps. The crowd do chant Conan, and it is the first time they've interacted with the match, so it's definitely worth something. Yeah, yeah. Gatto comes back in and looks for a head scissors in the corner, but Conan gets an Alabama slam and flips over for the pin and the win at six minutes and three seconds. That was brilliant. That was a very nice pin. Yeah, the, the finishing move, I thought, was, was crisp and looked dead good. No, oh, that was slick as anything. I didn't think this was a particularly exciting match, but it's, it's not terrible. And I actually watched it, well, I watched the whole show for a second time this afternoon, and I would say I enjoyed this match on a second viewing more than I had the first time. Hmm. It was one of those things, that, although it it wasn't as crisp, and certainly that gets highlighted by some of the action later on in this pay-per-view, it was, it was still entertaining. There was enough high spots in it to, to keep me hooked. I would say that, again, there's a lot of stuff in there that looked all right, but I don't think enough of it was performed with the fluidity that would make it a good match. Perhaps, like I say, on a second viewing, I might prefer it a bit more, but just from the the one time that I've seen it, I wasn't a massive fan. 
It probably suffers from the fact that nobody really has any idea who Gatto is as he's not an actual character. I mean, they're making out like he's a South American legend, but there's not even going to be a fan in the audience unless they're a fucking bullshitter going, (laughs) yeah, I'm a big fan of Gatto. He's he's a real legend of legendary proportions in South America. (laughs) It's it's Pat Tanaka in a mask and no one really knows who he is. (laughs) That's how they should have badged him. (laughs) (laughs) They've rebadged him, you fool. (laughs) It's Conan against Pat Tanaka in a mask. <laughs> Paul's lost it again. But, but it's a bit weird that this is like their second most important title. And and yeah, it's Conan against a character they've just made up out of nowhere. Or Pat Tanaka in a mask. But, and Conan's a big deal, right? Well, so, they, they seem to be trying to make out that he is. I, 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 I am to understand Sorry. that Conan is a big deal. Yes, yeah. yeah. He's the Mexican Hulk Hogan. But it sounds like they're not giving him any time on their show to promote him in any sort of meaningful or way. Or any meaningful programme to work with. I so, mean, they sort of almost tried to turn him heel at Uncensored as well with the cheat win over Eddie Guerrero, yeah, so but never really went anywhere with, with that. With, with the head to crotch. Yes. <laughs> there wasn't enough of that on this show in my life. <laughs> yeah, there was far less penis-to-face winning matches in this. And I must say, the show was better for it. <laughs> was it ever going to be anything else? Moment number one with a bullet is from episode 70, SummerSlam 1997, and sees the British Bulldog attempt to feed Ken Shamrock a certain tinned food product he isn't keen on. Back in the ring, Davy wails away on Shamrock more as we get a shot of Ken's bloody mouth. Bulldog goes for his fourth chin lock of the match before throwing Shamrock outside again. Now, Ken's bloody mouth... It's a bun name. I, 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 I couldn't help but feel, just every now and again from a shot, it kind of looks like he's really messily eating a burger and just has ketchup because it's all just around the kind of lip and the mouth yeah. area. It's a very, very weird way to be busted open. Bulldog slams Shamrock on the floor before getting some of the dog food and shoving it in Shamrock's face. Because it's just, mm. is it on the announcer's desk? Yeah, with like and it's scoop. It's got like a scoop that you normally have in pick and mix <laughs> stabbed into the top of it. I hope nobody takes that back to the pick and mix done later. You've won the jackpot, your pick and mix is dog food. <laughs> I wonder if you could have like pick and mix with dogs. I wonder what they'd make of it. <laughs> Well, shoving dog food into Shamrock's mouth seems to have an almost Popeye-esque effect on it. <laughs> I was trying to think that yeah. dog food was his version of something. That's spinach, it. Yeah. It's his spinach. <laughs> Shamrock starts screaming and battering Davy Boy. <laughs> never, ever has like, the word ape shit had a more <laughs> accurate description. <laughs> Shamrock whacks the bulldog over the back of the head with the can of dog food and gets himself disqualified. (laughs) (laughs) It's at 7.29 to Big Booze. Shamrock continues to wail away on the bulldog before battering the referee. (laughs) (laughs) Applying a choke (laughs) hold He basically chokes him to death. It's horrible. (laughs) He carries on holding him. His his face has got a bit red. (laughs) It's got a bit bit black. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. 
Various referees and officials emerge to encourage Ken to let go. It takes ages. He just let go. Even the, the, the commentators start saying, I think he's in trouble. He's trying to kill him. Eventually, he does to a mixed reaction. Before he starts belly to belly suplexing, Pat Patterson, General Briscoe, and loads of referees. Ken wanders around the ring screaming, blood on his chin, half his butt cheek hanging out. Is Armin Johnson the same? Good match, really. Oh, but that ending is amazing, though. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's show. We hope your favourite moment appeared on the list. If, in the meantime, before you're waiting for the next episode, you feel like checking out another podcast, why not check out Skip to the End or Mark and Me? They're both available on either skiptotheend.co.uk or markandme.com. Hey, you've got to get a shameless plug in somewhere. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for episode 98, King of the Ring 1993 Special Edition. I'll leave you today with a special live performance from Paul Scrivens, singing one of his very greatest hits. Someone check Jarvis Cocker isn't in the building. sunrise what about rain what about all the things that you said we would again what about killing fields is there a time Ooh. what about all the things that you said was yours and mine did you ever stop to notice all the blood we've shed before Did you ever stop to notice Here's the cry these weeping shows Stop.
to notice all the children dead from war. Did you ever stop to notice? Crying out this weeping shores. What about us? What about us? <laughs> 